Hello, and welcome back to The Rewind. I'm Josh, and this is a podcast where I watch a bunch of movies and talk about them with my friends. Today's episode is about the entire year of 2019 in movies, as I'm doing my second annual Rewind Top 10 podcast, in which I will have The Rewind's most frequent guests from 2019 on to give their top 10s, and I will assign point values to those 10 movies and combine them with my top 10 movies to form a composite that will be representative of what the movies the rewind ultimately valued the most from last year if you consider the rewind to be me and the people that join me most frequently on this podcast uh today we're going to start out with uh my friend josh brown who josh i didn't i meant to actually count it up beforehand but you probably led the team in appearances last year so i'm glad that you're leading this off how's it going I just feel sorry for you now. I'm like, I was the person, I was your most frequent guest. Like, yeah, I know. I mean, like, it, I, I bring it upon myself that I invite someone on that just has, like, <laughs> a, a technical difficulties every other time or has to drive <laughs> drive through traffic every other time. So, I mean, uh, that just shows how valued of a guest you are that you keep that we keep coming back to you in spite of all that. Uh, <laughs> thankfully, you're not doing this one from a bar, though, because um, this, this is my favorite podcast of the year. I, I, I mean, I've only really ever done it once, and it was a lot of work, but it's a really fun exercise in my opinion, just to like, because I, I think my my friends that come on, they value different things, and it's kind of cool to see where it all falls, if you, where, where it all shakes out when you just combine the movies that everyone liked. Uh, before we drop in, jump into your top 10, Josh, as you were putting together your top 10 and finalizing it, because you, like most people, are probably rounding out your top 10, uh, as of the recording of this podcast, we're a few days from when 1917 got released, which was like the last thing a lot of people had, so I'm sure you've been doing some reflecting as you finalized that, as that was probably one of your last th- boxes to check off. Did you have any big picture thoughts on the year in movies that you wanted to share see i'm actually pretty satisfied with this year in movies mm-hmm. um you know it rivals uh, strong years like 2017 and 2013 and 12 as a pretty good movie year a pretty good oscar year to be honest i think me and you are probably barring a few snubs here and there i think you and i are probably the most satisfied with how the oscar nominees shaped out this year where there's like six of the best picture nominees where I'm like, I'd feel pretty happy if either one of them won best picture. And, and cause like, you know, they're on my top 10 and, or like, you know, I would feel comfortable in saying that they're the, you know, second best movie of the century to win best picture or something like that. I, I, yeah. I'm thinking I'm about the same point. I might even, uh, I'm probably about six of them and there's not really any of the best picture nominees that I, that I disliked aside from Joker, you know, I, um, <laughs> Ford versus Ferrari like wasn't in my top 10 or anything, but like, that's like a solid movie. I mean, I wasn't like angry when I saw it get nominated, yeah. you know, it's not, it wasn't like the one, two, three punch of vice Bohemian Rhapsody and Green Book. and green book. Yeah. I already forgot it. Yeah. There you go. So I, I, I th- that, that gives us something to be happier about. And I, I think the, the big thing was, I actually kind of like, I keep a running list on letterbox that I'm a little, I was a little behind on just because I've gotten like kind of anal about posting the podcast along with my reviews. And when I fall behind on my reviews, then it's like, all of a sudden it looks like I haven't written up anything on any movie in a month, but it's more me waiting to like put out the podcast on that movie to then post the review on that movie or any subsequent movies that I might have already like done the podcast on. It's like a whole thing where I'm very anal about wanting to post everything in order. So I was like, I, there was just a bunch of stuff missing from my list. And I, I just wasn't even thinking of what those were off the top of my head. Like I didn't have knives out on my list like a week ago, just cause I just like, for, that's the other thing. I just like forgot to put some stuff in my in, in my list, you gotta, you can't just log something under a letterbox and have it automatically go to the list. So I was like looking at it, it just didn't look as good. And then when I actually got, got to updating it, I was like, oh wow, this looks like a lot stronger than I like I previously thought it was. So I'm, uh, I'm, I'm pretty happy with how it turned out. 
as well. And I some of and some of the higher ranked ones I have aren't even like nominated for Oscars. And it's like and I'm and I am happy with the Oscar nominees. So it just kind of shows that it's a it's a pretty deep year that a handful of Oscar nominees that like I did like aren't even in my top ten. So I'm ultimately pretty satisfied with how it turned out. But like I always find plenty to like. You know, I, I don't I don't really think like movies are dying or anything like that as a lot of people might or want to say sometimes so i just I, I guess i'm more of an optimist than a lot of people and uh i don't know if like 2015 is like a pretty meaningful year for me too that was like the first year i started doing the movie podcasting and there was just like a ton of stuff i liked that year with like you know sicario creed mad max spotlight i don't know i, I don't know if i've ever f- found a, a year quite as top heavy as that but I'm still pretty happy with like what we did get this year at the box office. So yeah, do you wanna do you wanna get this thing started? So my number ten of the year, I know it's probably on your list because you and I are pretty high on Greta, and that's Little Women. Mm. Um, it narr- it, it, it it just bumped out uh, Ad Astra and us uh, to make that tenth slot. Um, and as someone who saw the 1994 adaptation of Little Women. I was like, oh, you know, when this project was first announced, like I was like, ah, what, what could she bring to it? This seems like a pretty underwhelming um, movie, you know, to follow up Lady Bird. Right. I would want to, you know, the thing what I like about Greta is her contemporary idiosync- idiosyncrasies, you know, the neurotic, you know, almost screwball vibe that, you know, she brings to the movies that she made with like Noah Baumbach. Right. right. So. To be trapped in a genre I hate, which is like the costume drama, I was just like, I the only thing going for it was just Greta. And then I saw the movie, and I was just kind of mesmerized by how she adapted that book because she tells it in non chronological order, but she juxtaposed like certain scenes from the book in which you're in the present and it's just supposed with this moment in the past. So you'll see a character who's fighting an illness and in the past, like she succeeds and it's just supposed with her funeral or like she'll cut from a funeral to, um, uh, wedding. The, yeah, to the wedding. And it shows like, Oh, Saoirse lost two sisters. Like those were the days that she lost her sisters. And it's, it's very clever. And also those contemporary uh, flourishes while well, I wish there was probably a little bit more like I wish this was more in the vein of Sofia Coppola's Marie Antoinette but it's still there like with the dance sequences with uh, Saoirse and and um, Timothy Chalamet like it was just amazing how much her voice shined and how f- she made something pretty old that had been adapted several times feel fresh yeah I, I i said this when i i actually just posted the podcast on it yesterday and i uh i was pretty taken aback on the second viewing it really fell into place a lot more for more, more for me i started picking up on a lot of those things and how meaningful the certain time cuts were and you know i i think the it would also really clicked into place for me was especially what vaulted it into my top 10 it's my number five i'll say that and it was 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 that like it i just chose to believe the ending in which joe doesn't get married it it works so much more for me that way, and I was so torn after my first couple of viewings when I'm like, wait, are, are can we are we supposed to be thinking with one or the other, or is it open to interpretation? I'm like, I'm just going to choose this interpretation that makes a lot of sense because I just think it makes a lot more sense that way, where she gave Louisa May Alcott the ending that she was never able to write, and this whole thing, this whole last sequence is shot like a rom com, unlike the rest of the movie, so it almost makes more sense that it's not really happening, and she's just doing it to like make the guy happy, and especially because they didn't make Frederick Bear a real character, I think it almost like 
adds on to the fact that she's just tacking on an ending to make this publisher happy and be able to negotiate a good deal for herself in the way that a woman would be able to do in a more progressive time for women as far as how where that where they're positioned economically in the country and i really loved all that and my only nitpicks were really just a couple nitpicks about things where that could have been set up a little better if you had a little more time but i acknowledge it can't be a three-hour movie and these performances are so good that it almost makes up for any like lack of emotional buildup to certain scenes that i wanted to a certain extent so it's pretty incredible that she found a pretty unique way to do this because it just feels a lot more i'd be so much more excited to go watch this a fourth and fifth time than i would be to go watch the 1994 version a second time and i watched that for the first time recently too um yeah and like there's no knock on the 1994 one it's fine but this one is like very exceptional and it also works as a companion piece with Lady Bird. If that movie was about mothers and daughters, this movie is about sisters, the mm-hmm. relationships that sisters have with one another. And I just think, you know, like I, I said, like in my review of it, that Gerwig, um, you know, this is a film that is actually a perfect example of classical filmmaking in which, like, again, like she allows like her contemporary touches her neurotic uh sensibility her screw her screwball like rhythms to enliven this you know traditional story and just make it feel fresh and relevant for the 21st century well still like it's not like it's like being completely anachronistic and talking like they're in the in the 21st century you know but still feeling it's still feeling kind of more modern in its own way very smart in that regard so uh what's your number nine my number nine of the year is toy story four ah there you go Uh, we overlap again that is wait really yeah toy story four is my number six see i feel like this movie's gotten the short drift uh quite a bit because like i think after toy story three which was nominated for best picture people are like that's the perfect finale for a trilogy. How can you top it? And I think some people were reluctant to give this film the benefit of the doubt. And also, it happened in a summer where there was the Disney monopoly at full force, where, you know, all their blockbusters, like, were doing so well. And I think there was some type of resentment towards that aspect. And I feel that sentiment. But, like, Toy Story 4 is by far the best thing that they produced that year. It made me bawl my eyes out. Hmm. I, I personally, I, I, in a way that I've never cried in a movie before. I've cried many times in many movies. I can get teary-eyed. But, like, this, I was full-on heaving. It was just, like, an emotional catharsis and release that when I got out of the theater, I thought, okay, something really came over me. I need to probably see this again to just like fully get it out of my system. But Toy Story 3, I always thought was kind of overrated. Like I love, like keep in mind, Toy Story is a seminal franchise in my like childhood. Like the first two Toy Story movies like were essential for me as a kid. I watched them all the time. I love those movies. I think those are perfectly told films. Um, I felt like Toy Story 3 was kind of like the sum of its parts where like a fine movie, but I think like, we re- when we think of that movie, we really think of like the the climax of the film when they're in the incinerator mm-hmm. and the emotional catharsis that comes about of it. But the rest of the movie felt like a rehash of Toy Story two, and in this one, I felt like they actually went into a a completely new direction with the film and was asking questions that about like our own mortality. Um, and like it's a very existential film. That it's just, you know, uh, the idea of just, you know, you devote your life to 
someone and it's almost kind of like this unrequainted love and then you have to sort of like figure out like what are you without these people that you you're trying to please like woody's well, journey well toy story 3 asked that question too about i mean thinking that andy. they're only meant to andy but i think part of what really worked so much for me about toy story 4 and that i was so pleasantly surprised by was that like i was just man it did seem like toy story 3 is just a really great spot to end but i don't think they'd be doing this again if they had a really good idea and i was like wow like that was actually a, a good idea that was just staring me in the face that i didn't think of whereas you know toy story 3 is actually kind of the end of andy's story even though andy's not really in these movies that much they're actually ending woody's story in like in a way that makes much more sense than actually toy story 3 did even though like i didn't leave toy story 3 dissatisfied with where woody was left you know i just i was like wow like that's a really smart way to like actually find a better closure for woody and i really thought that was just very impressive i i, I mean toy story 3 is top 10 of the decade for me mainly because i was i got very emotional on that like you said you did in toy story 4 and i don't get that emotional in movies and i think it only rose in my estimation when i rewatched it before 4 for the first time since seeing it in a theater when i was about to i was one year removed from going to college so of course It'll make me kind of emotional. And then I sobbed even more when Andy gave the toys away. So I was like, wow, like this movie just really does it for me. But like, I mean, Toy Story 4 is just like start to finish really, really great. And I'm like, wow, it's there's just a higher degree of difficulty in doing it for a fourth movie and doing it that well. And I got to give them credit for it. And the animation is stunning. There's like some in-camera moves that you don't really see in an animated film. Like there's some deep focus shots, a split diopter, and it's all very subtle. It's not very like show off. They're like, ooh, we're kind of mimicking like a live-action film. It's all in this over in this uh, service of telling the story. It, 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 it's just you know, it, it's it's a profound film. Like I, 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 it made me feel things I had never. It's just the idea of just figuring out your purpose in life uh it, it tackles that pretty well agreed what is your number eight my number eight probably would not shock you that it's my number eight and that is martin scorsese's the irishman ah just missed the cut on my top 10 yeah um the irishman um it, it's weird because like this is actually kind of against like Martin Scorsese's argument about like the cinematic experience because when I went to see it at the local art house theater here in Orlando, like the theater was packed. Like I came there ten minutes early, could not find a seat. That's actually very heartening. Yeah, yeah, no, it, it, it is heartening, but also like the screen is kind of small and it's far away. And it was very, I didn't have a good spot. It was very uncomfortable, right? And I still really liked the movie the first time I saw it, but then when I saw it. The second time, I, I really felt the intimacy of it. It was much. It was a much more pleasant experience. But that aside, I think this is the most quotable movie of the year. I think this movie. I just been in, in like our group chat. I've been quoting it. The gifts, you know, it is what it is. You dumb motherfuckers. It didn't Where apply to you. Didn't apply <laughs> to you. <laughs> um, the incomparable Peggy. Um, or uh, who wears shorts at a meeting, you know, <laughs> 10 minutes late. Like all this, I did account for the traffic. Like we watching a bunch of Scorsese films, there's two things that stand out. He makes really long movies that are incredibly rewatchable, right? Like mm -hmm. the Wolf of Wall Street, Casino. Like, the, you, you know, if you ask me to rewatch Endgame, that would feel like a chore. And I thought that was okay. But like rewatching like, you know, Wolf of Wall Street or Goodfellas, like I could do that all day. And then the second thing too, I realized like he's a director obsessed with behavior, right? And he finds the behavior of these like reprehensible people so absurdly funny, especially the more mundane it gets. Like 
all the scenes with like Pacino, you know, like I think Pacino, like it's, it's, it's a tough year. We're going to get to another movie on my top 10, but like, God, if it wasn't for another actor this year, like I would say Pacino was my performance of the year. Wow. Okay. Um, I'm probably more of a Pesci guy, but I really enjoy Pacino too. I love a full ham. Like, it's just like, to me, when he comes on screen, it's the funniest stuff in the movie. Uh, You, 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 you have real heart for his character. And then especially like, you know, it makes the, like his assassination uh, uh, pretty brutal. But the thing about this film is that Scorsese knows like a daughter's silence is probably far more, far more harsher than any mob killing that you can depict on screen. Right. Yeah. And Irishman is 12 for me. So, and I still really, I still really, again, I still really liked it. I just, uh, and I, and after I did my podcast with, uh, with Joey from award circuit.com and about the, uh, just about it. And he, he gave his case for like why we shouldn't be that upset that Anna Paquin didn't have as many lines, which I mean that, that all that has been talked to death. I kind of get it. It's like, and I, 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 then somewhere else I saw like, look, it would be almost too stereotypical to give the woman the big blow up scene and nothing else, you know, that would be like, that, that would seem like too rote and too, too obvious to have it be like that. I think I might've just like wanted a few more scenes where, not, she doesn't have a blow up like that, but just more where it's like, or even not even with just with her, but with maybe just with where you see him neglecting the family. And I get it. The point is he's not around the family at all, but I feel like maybe just some of more of the loneliness that he had at the end would have hit a little harder for me. And I don't think it's too long and I'm not, I don't think the movie's too long at all. And I'm not saying like, Oh, I thought that stuff was bad. It should have been cut out at the end. Cause all that stuff is still pretty great. I just thought like you could have done away with the entire, like, Crazy Joe Gallo sequence, which is like 15 minutes of the movie, and it doesn't affect any of the rest of the movie if you just cut it out. And then maybe have a few more scenes of the family, and then, like, I honestly wouldn't have had, like, any quibbles. But that was just, like, one thing that I think would have made me even that much more emotional at the end of the movie. But other than that, like, I mean, I think it's just kind of freaking incredible. Did you go to the bathroom? That's the one thing I have to ask since you saw it in the theater. Oh, no, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't have to. Okay. Um, I'm very proud of myself for not going to the bathroom when I saw it in the theater. So I'm, I'm asking everyone that that I hear that saw it in the theater, too, like I did. I, I probably I remember like towards the end of Endgame like feeling like oh I, I gotta pee but um, I stopped but drinking like, at two o'clock that day so I prepared <laughs> for it but like I mean just the fact that like you said you can make rewatchable movies that are that long that like I'm not even like compelled to like go to the bathroom during because I'm that zoned in, zoned in I, I was I was completely engrossed it's just yeah I, I mean just had a few small a few small nitpicks that maybe I didn't have any that that maybe bothered me a little more than anything else I had above it on my list so. And I don't want to do any disrespect to Joe Pesci because, yeah. like, Joe Better Pesci not. might whack you. Oh, yeah, I know. It old is what Pesci, it is, bro. Yeah, old Pesci in the prison, like putting his bread in the grape juice. Yeah, yeah, it's adorable. <laughs> and also, like Stephen Graham in the movie, Ray Romano. Everybody's good. Everybody's good. Yeah, no, like Irishman. Yeah. Great film. What's your number seven? My number seven. This is a pretty divisive film. It was one of those. It could have been a contender. Um, and I, uh, Gemini Man, of course. Uh, well, <laughs> here's the thing. I, I feel like I did. And looking back, I think I did Gemini Man dirty because I gave it a three, and I'm like, that was a three point. Yeah, I gave. I, I think I gave it more stars than you. But, yeah. Okay. What's your, what's your, we can't. We don't have time to go into Gemini Man again. What's your seven? Yeah. Maybe I should put it at seven. <laughs> um, waves. Okay. See, I wasn't expecting to like Waves. Like, I sort of just you know wrote it off as like it. Barry Jenkins, like, knockoff, like, A24, just kind of, like, checking their boxes. 
And then, and also, I wasn't a fan of uh, Trey Edward Schultz's uh, previous film. What was it? Uh, it Comes at Night in Creation. Yeah, In Comes at Night. I had very low expectations for this film, and I, I, I found I was just I ended up being his probably its biggest defender. I was so swept up in like the emotions of the film as a diptych, and then also the sweeping visual style of the film. It, it really emotionally devastated me. Yeah, well. You know, I really wanted to love it. I, I, I avoided learning shit about it because I, I heard that it was best to go in blind, and I really love both Kreisha and It Comes at Night, so I was kind of on the opposite of you, where I was expecting to, to like, really love it. And I don't know, I, I just couldn't get there, man. I, 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 I don't know if you listen to Daniel and I talk about it, but I thought I was getting, like, ordinary people but with an upper-middle-class black family. And as I, I put Daniel on the spot in the podcast, I was like, can you think of any other movie – at, at all that focus on like what an upper middle class black family would go through and what their what and what that what all that would entail to try and keep that place in life and we couldn't really think of anything and i was like all right well that's interesting and i wanted to see like just that version of like ordinary people or something where it's like they're having to focus on drama and instead i watched like this kid ruin his life for an hour and being an idiot which i mean maybe that is a thing that could actually happen i just didn't i really didn't enjoy it and I, oh no dude that first hour like people say uncut gems is a very stressful movie and i like uncut drums yeah. i always got like kind of a like I, I don't get it like i didn't feel any stress or anxiety when watching uncut gems no not like, like it, a good time but like i still really loved uncut gems but just i didn't feel that like i expected to. right and and like yeah i like uncut gems it's not just yeah. on uncut gems i just i think people just oversold it as like the stressful experience yeah. when it's more of a character study like right. a serious man but waves that first hour holy shit that was like the most stressful hour of my life watch uh, like of the year watching a movie i was just like fucking like and almost too because like you know the movie pretty much like foreshadows something bad is gonna happen right, right but for me like, it wasn't stressful in a good way you know like <laughs> i was like I, I get why this kid like may, maybe his dad's his relationship with his dad is too superficial and based on sports and stuff but it was like why is it so important to him to like fuck up his shoulder playing wrestling it's not like he's this is like a sport where he's gonna go pro in and make a shit ton of money presumably like he doesn't need the scholarship this family has a lot of money i'm like i don't get i don't i don't quite get See, it why I, he's being I, this I, self-destructive <laughs> Here's the thing, I bought all of that. Like, I just I, I just bought that it's just a kid kind yeah. of focused on the now and, like, pleasing his dad. And, and also, like, and the mistake he makes in the movie is, like, a mistake I could see, like, a kid doing. Um, well, I could see a kid getting uh, overly possessive of a girl. I just, like, most of the other stuff just really bothered me, though. And th- what got him to that point, you know, and got him in a place where he's, like, in that deep and, like— sh- substance abuse and all that i was like i i i just think you're smarter than this man and i I just don't really buy that this character would do all that i love the second half though but i just like i don't know i just i had very high hopes for the movie but i can see why it would be an emotional wallop to some but i will say this it has one of the funniest fucking scenes of the year oh the texting one right yeah that was i couldn't like daniel said you guys laughed a lot at that yeah, I couldn't control myself. I thought the whole audience was just like, you know, invested and they're like, uh, you know, silent during it. And I'm just like, I was like spitting up water, just <laughs> finding it hilarious. Like couldn't wait until it gets memed. But that requires a lot of people seeing the movie. Um, but yeah, it, it, it was I was swept up with both its yeah. style and also how moving it gets, especially when you tell like the daughter's uh, the daughter side of yeah. the story, um, and how it you know gets to this cathartic point. So yeah. it worked for me. 
Yeah. I'm a sucker. Who knows? No, yeah. I mean, I didn't like the last five minutes of It Comes at Night, but I really loved the rest. But I think he, he clearly so he's like bursting with talent, Trey Edward Schultz is. You can just tell by everything he does with the camera that he is. I just want him to like put together a script that like on a bigger scale than like Kreisha or It Comes at Night that like totally like knocks it out of the park. But I'm waiting for it and I'm very excited and I wish it had made more money because I and I hope A24 keeps investing in him. What's your number six? My number six is probably the most agreed upon movie of the year. I have yet to find someone um, who dislikes it, even in Richard Brody's uh, uh, pan of it in The New Yorker. Is it Parasite? It, yeah, yeah, Parasite. Parasite, when you're watching that film, because I, I went in blind other than knowing it's a Bong Joon-ho movie and that people really like it, um, and that maybe has something to say about class. Um, and I think it's kind of the South Korean, uh, 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 you know, parallel to us, right? Like, I feel like those two films are in conversation with each other. Uh, Parasite is just, that's a masterful film because, like, I don't think anybody sees, like, the twist it's going and also the tonal switches of that film and also the heightened genre elements of, like, you know, there's almost like a Hitchcockian slash the palma s style to it and it's also just like a very funny movie it's my, until it's, it's, it's not yeah it's my number one i'll say that now so i'm not you're not going to have any pushback from me on this I, I i want you to continue talking because this is one you haven't talked about so they, what else resonated with it about you or about it with you well i think like you know that that, that build up when you're just trying to figure out in your head what where this movie is leading to right when like you know the family is slowly conning its way into the uh um the upper middle class family's house, uh, like you know, the jingle. Dude, I think I, I don't even think you have to say upper middle class. That's a fucking dope house. They're upper class. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the upper the upper class family's house. Like as they're trying to like you know uh, maneuver their way in, and you're trying to like figure out like it's almost like the movie is kind of like pulling a con on you, where you're slowly like you know it's revealing its layers, and then boom, it, you, you figure out that there's something to the story that you that you didn't even see coming at all. Um, I think that's all masterful. Now, the one thing I kind of have to say, like, the reason why it's not, like, higher on my list, right? Because yeah. I thought this would be, like, two or three in, like, the first hour and 30 minutes of the film or something like that, right? The last 15 minutes of the film, I kind like, with the flood... I kind of, I kind, and maybe I need to rewatch the movie again. I kind of didn't like that the movie was going in that direction. It, I thought that was such a huge swerve that I wasn't expecting, and that didn't feel like it quite gelled for me. And I can't really put my finger on it. And I could be convinced as to why, you know, from the flood on, and, and I and I like the movie's final shot. I, I do like the final shot about like you know this wistfulness about like you know one day that you know they're back at being squatters and hiding at the bottom um and like one day like reconnecting with each other like i like that but it's just something around the flooding part i kind of didn't like where the movie was going and th that didn't quite gel with me and i can't reconcile that but it's a it, I, you know the more i think about the movie i probably put it a little bit higher on my list um it's a movie that i you know it, it's actually probably its chances of winning best picture are probably a lot higher than any of us had expected, probably a lot higher than, say, Roma's. But um, if it did win, wow, what an achievement. That, that's the movie built to last. I really want to see it again, too, just because I, you know, I, 
I only got it once. It didn't come. I, I had to go a little further to one of the independent theaters near me, and I thought I was going to get to my AMC, but it didn't because my AMC is going down the toilet. It decreased from 20 to 12 screens. Can't rant about it now or we'd be here two hours. But I, I, I mean, I, I just can't remember being that freaking zoned in for in a movie all year where I was just like – I, I was I was there. I had no I had no idea what was going to happen, and yet I was kind of very invested in Bong's message, and it just felt very it felt leaner than any of his other movies I've seen so far. I mean, I've, at this point, I think I've seen four others, and I I, I enjoy. Are all you a Bong guy? What What does that mean? Uh, I mean, like, are you, are you part of the Bong hive? You like Bong? I I wouldn't call myself hive because I, I feel like I'm I'm still missing a couple. I mean, I've seen Memories of Murder, The Host, Snowpiercer, and Oakja. Uh, I, I, okay. I can't I can't call myself a completist, but like I've I've really enjoyed all of his movies. But like it just felt it, it felt like something he'd been building towards almost, and was like in complete command. And I felt like I was in great hands the whole time. Right. And, and he and, like I was like there's just not like a, a wasted. There's no wasted motion in here. Like Snowpiercer is like I think one of my top ten of 2014. But at the same time, I think that I rewatched that right before I saw Parasite, and I was like, oh, there's a couple of moments here where it's like this is kind of dragging a little, and it feels like every single moment of Parasite is completely essential. And yeah, that was and 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 I see what you're saying. Like yeah, the flood's a big departure, but like that's still shot in like a very interesting way, and I was just totally there for it. Yeah, and again, like Parasite, that set um, is incredible too. They got a production design nominee, and it's like that whole street that they flood is a fucking set. It's not even the real thing, which I guess makes sense. Oh, you can't flood a real street, but yeah, I, this is, I'm, I feel so dumb. I didn't know that. Like yeah. I assume like the water was like maybe CGI or something. I didn't know that the street was a fucking was it, set. Was it, yeah, there, there's some. You, you can if you Google a little bit, you'll find like some stills of it, and it's like wow, they straight up just made that thing. Oh shit, I did yeah. not know that, but. Uh, oh, and I actually didn't realize it got nominated for production design, which, yeah, that feels deserved. Mm-hmm. But um, I was really happy about its editing, too, because it's just, you know, uh, it's so well, the montages in this film are so tightly constructed. But the thing with Parasite, like, you know, Parasite, it's it's not my favorite Bong. I think Memories of Murders is still my number one, but it's my number two. Mm-hmm. And it's just, it's funny that Bong, like, out of the five directors nominees this year, arguably has just the... Uh, uh, least flashiest out of the five, but like his is probably the most assured when you really think about it. You know, just what he had to accomplish and how subtle he is, and yet how also how stylized he can get when he needs to. Yeah, that's fair. What's your number five? Queen and Slim. All right, so it's another one that Daniel and I did the double feature on that in waves. So uh, Queen and Slim also ended up being pretty divisive. So uh, yeah. it sounds like it really worked for you though. Yeah, Queen and Slim. It was another movie where I, I, I kind of thought it would, you know, I would write it off a little bit, but I was completely engaged with its, like, Bonnie and Clyde energy and also the Daniel Kaluuya of it all. Like, Kaluuya would be in my top five uh, male performances of the year. He'd be in my top uh, five working actors in the world today. Yeah. And, and, and then just, like, I love the look of the film and the feel, like, from – the 35 millimeter uh, cinematography to the music selection throughout the film. I, I, I was really engaged by it. It, it really works as, as a thriller. And, and it feels like it's speaking directly to black audience, like uh, almost in like a secret handshake or, or something. It, 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 like I saw it at, um, on a night, I think it was probably maybe Thanksgiving night or something like that, where it was just a completely black audience uh, in the theater and it's just it, it was a pretty lively experience in terms of their interaction with the film, like especially when uh, spoiler alert, when the characters get betrayed at the end, uh, like uh, the whole 
audience like, ah, no, fuck <laughs> you. Like, I knew it. I had know? a little bit of that in Just Mercy a couple of days ago, actually. Oh, really? It's really? Fun, it's fun when that happens. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, Queen is Slim. I think people slept on it. I, I think, like, this Polina Mazukis, who's uh, famous for directing music videos, especially uh, starring, uh, one starring Beyonce. And Rihanna, um, yeah. Um, I think she has a lot of talent and potential. Glad to see her get the DGA nom because uh, she would have been my choice for best first feature of the year. Yeah, I don't want to dwell too much on it because I already talked at length about this in the podcast with Daniel. I like that you mentioned the secret handshake part because my favorite part of the movie was just like the, the unspoken underground railroadness of it all. Yes, like, especially yes. My, my favorite moment is when the they're confronted by the uh, mechanic in Tal- it's in Tallahassee somewhere. And I, I, I'm not, I, can't, I, can't, I can't take the time right now to go on a rant. It, it really screws up its Florida-ness of it all. It's so obvious <laughs> it was shot in Louisiana or whatever. But they're somewhere with an 850 area code talking to that older mechanic and the son who is part of the more one of the worst scenes of the movie but they're talking yeah. to the mechanic and he and he it's very clear that he's like more conservative by nature and yeah. doesn't really approve of what they did but it is never even a question and they're not afraid and he doesn't intimate there's never a fear he's going to turn them in and I, I that was my, my favorite realization moment whatever of the movie to be like all right everyone kind of knows that like they're kind of in the right here and they're just going to help them along even if they don't really like their style and that's just it and I I, I, I like that common understanding it really does kind of just have with every all the black people in this movie and its audience and I really appreciated that even if like I, I did have my quibbles but uh, with, with with that protest scene or with its how it just, just did not shoot forward to that well wait, I didn't talk about that with the waves even though it was the same podcast so I talk about it a lot there waves gets Florida incredibly right Queen and Slim doesn't but I, I Daniel like talked me into liking Queen and Slim even more I ended up giving it a four star after I talked to him, so I, I I can't I can't argue with anyone that has it ranked highly on there. I just didn't make my top ten. Uh, what's your number four? My number four is probably one of the most underrated films of the year. The funniest comedy, Beach Bum. Ah, okay. This is going to show up on someone else's top ten. I'm pretty sure, at least a couple other people's, but d- didn't quite make mine. But I mean, I gave it four and a half stars. So, uh, what'd you dig about Beach Bum? I just like it. It's sort of it, it's a very episodic movie, and like. Each moment, like, there's a certain wavelength you that it's operating on that you have to be on. And when you're on that wavelength, it, you, you, you can only enjoy the film because it, it just goes from one outrageously hilarious segment of the uh, – uh, one outrageously hilarious uh, moment of the film to another moment and another moment and another moment. Uh, like the Martin Lawrence, like, Dolphins <laughs> sequence. Yeah, it's um, incredible, yes. It really does feel like a lucid dream from some, like, stoners, like – uh, 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 high, right? And you're just experiencing it. And there's such vivid characters in the movie. Uh, and it doesn't really uh, matter if they feel real or not, because they're just like, you know, these these actors are kind of like going for broke, like Jonah Hill and Snoop Dogg and Isla mm-hmm. Fisher. Like, they're all just kind of putting their quirky touches to it and just having a good time. It's just, it's just one of the best times I had in the theaters. I just loved how loose it felt and and almost uh, hypnotic in a weird way. Like it just feels like you're in a a nice haze. Yeah, it was my number twenty for the year, and I was like, I I I, I it was just a fun hang. You know, I, I love hangout movies, and though I mean maybe it's not my number one genre, so it's it's whatever. Maybe like an amazingly executed hangout movie would like still maybe not be my top three, depending on what the other movies are. But it's like I freaking loved hanging out in this world. I know a lot of these looks that it's giving us because i live in south florida and i was just i i, I kind of prepared i prepared to turn myself over to harmony corinne and i i was not let down and i i was like all right this is this 
is just a nice time. I'm, I'm not having to like think too hard about anything. I'm just able to like, give myself over to the hedonistic experience that Harmony <laughs> Corinne likes comp- creating for his audience. And I was in the right frame of mind for it. And I mean, it's, it's just an incredible experience. Right. Um, my number four of the year, Your number three. I mean, number three, my number three of the year. Okay. I, okay, so the Best Director nominees were released this year. Uh, were released uh, two days ago or yesterday. Um, and Noah Baumbach wasn't fucking on there, and I'm so pissed off. Because mm. uh, I, I think, like, no, arguably, no, like, at, if you had to take Marriage Story and compare it to the other five nominees, and, like, three of them, they're on my list of favorite movies of the year, right? Mm-hmm. But, like, I think Noah probably, his direction probably – is the one that most elevates his material because hmm. like you could see like, if you took, if Noah Baumbach just wrote the script for marriage story, right. And any other director, maybe like a Mike Nichols or some, someone in that vein had directed marriage story. You kind of know what that looks like. And it, and it is a movie that works, right. It'd be closer. It, 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 you know, you have Kramer versus Kramer as the like reference. Right. Um, and you have a little bit of Annie Hall as a reference as well. But like this movie, like, He's making choices from the score to the editing to the cinematography that is like elevating his material. Like, like he's just opposing these technical elements to give his movie greater meaning. Like the the cinematography of the movie, as we talked about in the podcast, it kind of evokes like family portraits shot on like Kodak film from like you know the late '90s and early 2000s, right? And this Randy Newman score is very you know similar sounding to like you know his toy story like very folksy family score and it's just to present like these elements present this more idyllic uh representation of what seems like a happy couple a happy marriage and only for when you're watching it like at face value you you, it's masking this darkness that's there uh that this is this is not and i uh, I, this is not an idyllic family, right? Like the score is at contrast with what's on screen and it makes it even that much more powerful. Yeah. Marriage Story is my number 10. So I'm obviously like right there with you. Uh, for the most part, we already talked about it. So I'm not going to add a lot to what you said because I'll refer people back to our podcast. But I'll just say that like I, I really want to know what to get, get in for director two. I mean, like I. It goes without saying. I, I you could throw Todd Phillips the fuck out of that category for, for all, <laughs> and uh, and then put him him or Greta. I mean, that would have been what I would have done. And uh, there there are ways in which this is. I think people just think of him as just a writer first, you know. And I yeah, and I think, it's I, I think it probably hurts because that, that movie is so precisely directed. Like mm-hmm. the like from the actors like having like the performance that he gets out of every actor, um, and then also just the rhythm of the film. Um, there's a certain pacing, and if like something is off by a little bit it would fuck it up like there is a rhythm to that film and there's a precision to it and also the thing i was thinking about the most out of all the five nominees uh nominated for best director um and it's no disrespect to, uh, to any of them this both feels like you know a culmination of everything that he's been building up to and also an evolution it's almost like he invented it's like not only did he get to the f- highest form of his style but he also feels like he he's finding a new one at the yeah. same time, like he's inventing a whole new approach to this, you know, subgenre of like domestic drama. Yeah, I didn't realize that. Uh, oh wait, no, no. I, okay, I was. Uh, I've been looking at the wrong. 
Oh uh, yeah, I was looking at the wrong uh, category. Well, I guess so. Randy Newman got a song nomination, but then he got uh, he got score for uh, Marriage Story. So double nominee in different categories in the same year. And here's um, the thing: I would vote for him for score. I'm kind of mad that the cinematography of Marriage Story isn't nominated. If I'm being uh, yeah, I, I, it just wasn't the kind of movie that they like to honor for the, that kind of award, you know. Unfortunately, um, yeah. What, what's your number two? My number two. Fuck the haters. Once upon a time in Hollywood. Ah, okay. So that, that once upon a time in Hollywood is my number eight. So we're we're overlapping again. But uh, I'm I'm kind of mad that it's so low on yours. <laughs> I don't know. And I I feel like maybe I was like oh, I don't know. Now now I'm like doubting myself. You know, it's like I, I, there don't might let be the a, haters persuade you. Don't know, let there might be persu- there might be some recency bias. I don't know. But uh, yeah. So uh, what, what do you have to add? We already did a long podcast on it. But do you have anything you want to say? Um, I think this is the movie that yielded the most bad takes of the year. Like, the more I think about it, the more, like, those takes don't, like, hold up, like, six months after the movie had came out. Um, like, I think, like, the Bruce Lee thing, like, straight up, you could just, it, it's a fucking daydream of this guy. You're seeing, it's Brad Pitt's daydream. He's obviously over-exaggerating it. And also... The stuff about, like, oh, Tarantino hates women because of the Brad Pitt character killing his wife thing. It's, like, it's pretty clear what he—this is kind of in the line of what Tarantino does and what he does well. Which is the beginning of his career of, like, Jules and Vincent, which is he'll take morally reprehensible characters and he takes pleasure in you fucking liking them, right? And that's what makes his characters genuinely interesting It's the fact that Clint is not— a like Cliff and Rick are not good guys, but you somehow like them and you somehow like root for them at the same time. The, the idea that you're rooting for them at the end of the movie, you know, like all the, like it's a, it's a fantasy. This is, this is a fantasy. They be this. People say that this movie is regressive, but the revisionist, the revisionist ending at the end of the film is basically the fact that, you know, is revisionist that it's, you know, something that didn't happen in real life, you know that, like, this is, like, like these characters are not going to succeed. You know, the idea that they would is just a fallacy. You know what I mean? And so I, I, I just think it's just a misunderstood film as a film that I kind of, you know, I think it's a movie about redemption and, and friendship, and I found those aspects of it quite moving and the more i think about it maybe julia butter should have been nominated for best supporting actress man god now i'm now now i feel bad that it's only eight on my list you're making me feel bad uh and fucking know. Pitt, man fucking Pitt. <laughs> yeah like, he's, he's gonna win we don't have to worry about the academy screwing that up it seems like yeah, that's no. more inclusion. And, and the thing is like he almost makes leo underrated because like leo is like the fact that there's pathos in this character and also the amount of humor he mines out of it it's just the, he's a great physical comedian and then also like you know, the stuff between him and Julia Butters gets me every fucking single time I see this movie. Like, it's a great hangout movie. I just want to just, like, you know, sit at Musos and Frank with uh, Cliff and Rick, you know, and, and kind of get drunk with them. You know, it's just it, it, this, this movie, man, it just I, I just like vibing with it. 
Yeah, no, I'm the same way. I'm not I, – I, the, the, the violent stuff, and I, I, I honestly, like, in the moment, I mean, I guess Tarantino's never going to really fully explain himself, but I, I never thought he, like, Brad Pitt murdered his – or Cliff murdered his wife. Like, I, in the whole entire moment, I just kind of – I took it as, like, you know, Marvin getting shot in Pulp Fiction. You hear the, you hear the wave coming over, and he's holding the spear, and it just happens. And I, he's never going to fully explain himself, but I just read it that way in the moment, and I choose to believe that, and you're not going to make me change my mind. Uh, and you can take and you can, and you could take it like I think Tarantino has say it has said this. You could read it two ways. You could read it the way you're reading it, which is like it was an accident, and this guy has to live with the fact that you know everybody thinks he's a murderer, that he murdered his wife, and and even though he might have not done it, even he questions it because he certainly thought about it in that moment, and it's all building up to this moment in which you know he redeems himself by killing the Manson family, right? And you could read it as like. Uh, a murderer who, you know, is living day by day, kind of lucky that he's not in prison. And then also it builds up to this moment in which he redeems himself by actually doing something. He actually, his murdering is actually in a heroic way for the first time, right? <laughs> Two different movies, but it works. Like, it's it just, at first I was like, why did Tarantino do that? Why did he give him, like, put himself... Uh, in the crossfire of like all this debate, like you, like I was like, yeah, you didn't really need it. It's fine. But the more I think about it, like I like that we're conflicted about Cliff, which is what I think Tarantino likes to do the most. He likes to make us conflicted about his characters. Yeah, much along the same lines as the Irishman. Like I get the arguments for why it's not a big deal that Margot Robbie didn't have enough lines. But I guess my biggest thing when I think back about the movie is like. And there's nothing. There's nothing in the movie I dislike watching. Like, I mean, every there's this level of floor with everything Tarantino does, and I'm perfectly happy watching any moment of this for longer than most of the stuff that came out this year. But like, I do feel like there's like a way you can arrange stuff and like just give her a little more to do. And I think I, because I, 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 it is a truly great performance. And I mean, and ironically enough, probably the best acting she does is when she's not talking. But like, I could have like watched her on the screen not talk more or talk a little more. And I, I think there's like just maybe a few moments here and there from the film where it's like devote those few moments to giving her more to do and then like i might have even felt like i got a little more out of it i didn't need her to be like palling around with uh with leo and brad the whole time but like i don't know i, I could have gotten a i, I did feel like i just could have gotten more out of her um and that's basically it what's your number one we're we're hitting the home stretch or the All final right. the final stretch so a lot has been made about like the academy not nominating women this year for best director right mm-hmm. um and I, I kind of, I, I, and I, I think about that sentiment, and it's crazy. Before they had, before we knew that was going to be the ultimate outcome, right? And I think a lot of us saw it coming. I, I, like I had said throughout the year, I think the best directed American film of the year was Hustlers, and I get so much fucking shit from people when they say like, "Wait, Hustlers, really? That's your number one?" And I think like, all right, by comparison, I think Hustlers and Uncut Gems are two very similar movies, right? They're set in a very similar world, right? And I, and it, frankly, I actually think Hustler is the much better film. I may be in the minority on that. Well, but. you're about to call it your number one, so I'm not surprised. <laughs> yeah, but 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 keep in mind, I like On Ten Gips. This is, I, I sound really harsh with Uncut Gips, and I'm not, like, you know, it's like number 20 or something like that. But what I'm getting at, though, is just, I think it, it, it's just the reaction to the film being place so high as number one it feels gendered to me like this is like a story that like like about a group of people even though it's a crime film like you know 
Martin Scorsese films, and it's it's the better Scorsese homage this year than fucking Joker, right? We we're not taking it as seriously, like you know, like the fucking J Lo snub is a fucking shame because that should be her Oscar, as far as I'm concerned. But Hustlers, it's one of the most exhilarating movies I saw all year. I just thought. Just to maintain that energy uh, of that style, like Lorena Scarfaria, uh, she really, you know, not only did she make a Scorsese homage, but she also made it her own and found deeper meaning and uh, and made a movie that, like, only a woman could have directed because she has the difficult balancing act of not trying to make, you know, it exploitative, but also honest and she does yeah i mean hustlers is in my top 20 it didn't make my top 10 but like i i really loved it and i i i guess i i i'd say more so than director i mean it's just i think j-lo not getting nominated is very gendered too i i i'm not i'm not the right person to like make the full out case for this i don't have uh, it feels well like see the thing is like strippers and prostitutes the academy actually does reward quite often it's also the stripper with a harder goal it's a it's a type of role that actually gets rewarded quite frequently like you know you have marissa tomei being nominated for the wrestler uh you have uh mira servino winning an oscar for mighty aphrodite sharon stone in casino starts out as like a yeah escort no that same year that sharon stone was nominated elizabeth shu for leaving las vegas leaving las vegas where she plays a prostitute like also was nominated like uh julia roberts pretty wooden you can keep going. This is fucking racial, right? Because I hear people like saying, like, "Oh, JLo's kind of just like, like act, like you know, she's not really doing anything special, right?" And I, if you had to pit JLo's performance in this movie up against Joaquin Phoenix, because uh, I remember someone like saying, "Well, Joaquin deserves the award, not JLo." Like, fuck, fuck that. <laughs> JLo is giving a much better performance. It's subtler, right? Like she's playing a like a and then also it's a person that you know is closer to real life that um, most people maybe outside of the academy have known a person like J Lo's character so it doesn't you know it, it 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 like it feels so authentic that it doesn't feel like acting when it fucking is right yeah no I, I agree I mean I, it, it's probably both racial and gendered and but it's like I guess you're probably right that it is more racial because like you know the one person of color that got nominated was like you know Cynthia Revo for playing a slave a former slave those are the kind of roles that it seems like the academy wants to honor people of color for more and as opposed to one that's like fully embracing her sexuality and you know taking control of a situation and maybe not always doing the quote-unquote right thing and that I mean, th- those shouldn't be considerations coming into account. But it seems like that is kind of what bothered them, and they were more happy to uh, nominate the former slave. Yeah, and I feel like with the older white uh, members of the academy, and they probably look at the J Lo character and think of her as like, and I hate to use the word, but like they probably think of her as like ghetto. Like that's, that's the ghetto character. They just can't relate or find imp- empathy or kind of uh, uh, admire. The skill in which, J- like, it's a great physical performance by JLo. Like, you know, and, and like, and the thing is, like, you know, sometimes we over reward actors for doing something very physically demanding, like Leo and the Revenant. But, like, you know, like, she is having to use her body in a, in a significant way that tells this story, right? Yeah. Like, that opening pole dance scene, it, it, it's insane. It, it, it's a work of art, that scene. But also, like how she like 
you know, how she contorts, like, her body when it's just, like, her and the other strippers, like, the famous, iconic her uh, using the coat wrapped around Constance Wu and, and, and her posture throughout the entire room. It's just, it's insane. I'm fucking mad, man. Like, Hustlers did not get the respect it deserved. Like, am I insane for thinking Hustlers is the number one movie? Because they're, like... Uh, no, I, don't, I, I don't I don't I mean I, I really enjoyed it you know I, I, I if, if, if I had more bad things to say about it like I would uh, I, I would give you a hard time but I, I don't I, I only have good I pretty much only have good things to say my, my, my quibbles were relatively minor back when I did the podcast on it so I can't blame you yeah no and it was like I saw it a month late like I saw it a month after all the hype of around the movie um, it was like the first movie I'd seen in a month and so like um, uh, I was like you know kind of worried that like okay i haven't seen a movie in a long time so i'm just gonna sort of overrate something just on the basis that you know i'm amped but then i saw joker the next day <laughs> um but no hustlers is fa- it, 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 like I, I i like you know in my previous years you know i had spy- into the spider verse as my number one last year uh i i hope people at least see like it you know, in the same way way as like Spider-Verse, which is a work of art, one of the best of the decade. All right. Well, very well said, Josh. Thank you for joining me for this. We will see you in 2020. All right. See ya. And now we're joined by recurring guest Elijah Howard to talk about his top 10 for the year. Elijah, before we get into your top 10, do you have any uh, brief thoughts about the year in movies that you kind of had overcome you as you were just compiling your list or anything that you kind of thought like, yeah, well, this compares like so-and-so to the last couple of years? Yeah, um, this year was a, a technical year for me. I mean, there was just so many movies this year that I was blown away by the craft. And that's, you know, that usually the films that rank highly in my list are films that have uh, have, have high quality craft because that's, that's for me, that's what I am as a craftsperson. I admire that. Um, but this year, more than several in recent memory, there are just, there are a number of films where we've, you know, seen amazing craft go into the films. And uh, I think that that kind of speaks, uh, you know, you'll see that speak for itself in my top 10. Yeah, it's it's, it's interesting you say that because I think we're going to talk about a couple that uh, we've already talked about this year where the, that was just like just such a defining theme of just a, or a defining uh, trait of some of these movies where you might like everything else that has to go into them, but like so much of everything going on around what just like the basic script or something really just enhanced the viewing experience for a lot of the stuff that we're about to talk about. So uh, what's your number 10 movie of 2019? I'm going to pause for the pickup here. Um, there's actually four movies and my 10th is climax. So that's, that's the four there, there are four that we've talked about on the oh, podcast. Wow. Look at that. So, we, we had, we had you on for the ones you really liked. Been a little longer yeah. since we talked about that one though. Uh, yeah. That was so. back in like, June or something. This yeah. was like forever ago. Yeah, so it 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 did make the cut. Uh and I and, and it's kind of funny. I mean, like we're not we're not going to talk to you at length cuz we can refer people back to the podcast that we did with Ben and I, but I was thinking of like specifically two of the other movies that are about to pop up on your list a little later, I think that we've had talked about too or that was a thing, but I'd say the craft is certainly ever present in Climax. Yeah, I mean, it's a uh, there there is there was layers to the movie and we talked about this on your on on the pod. Yeah. Um you know, I, I really liked the, you know, the layer of commentary, the layer of, you know, the id and the psychology um, behind it. But yeah, I mean, just it's a it's a 
really brilliantly shot film. I think it's Gaspar Noy's most um, his most comprehensive vision in that regard that he's uh, he's come the closest to achieving. I think what he always sets out to achieve um, to make something that is really disorienting and really uh, scary in some ways, and also at the end of the day, something that you can't look away from. And so for me, climax, uh, you know, that'll round out my top ten just on on those aspects alone that it is it's impossible to look away from it and no matter how crazy the movie really gets yeah definitely i could have that 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 opening dance number that could have been the whole movie for me and i would i I, I would have been down and i'm i I definitely want to check out a couple more of his movies i think i got to be in a certain kind of mood to do it though oh yeah (laughs) what's what's your number nine my number nine is alma harrell's film honey boy ah or should i say i talked about shia labeouf's honey boy (laughs) but yeah, so I mean, we we already talked at length about that, so won't dwell too much. But I will just say, you know, I don't know. Sometimes I like judging movies by how much space I now have from them, how fondly I look back on them, how much the any criticism I might have had fades away, and am I more remembering the positives? And I certainly say that's the case with Honey Boy. I mean, it's just uh, extremely inventive, and all my qualms were more like on me for expecting something that was other than I got, and what I got was like pretty visionary. Yeah, and. For me, a movie like that, you know, that, that's going to be a biopic, it's going to come down at the end of the day, no matter, you, you have all of this extra stuff, all this really uh, well done craft and really, uh, you know, brilliant vision from Alma Harrell. But at the end of the day, it's going to come down to the three A's, acting, acting, acting. Mm. Um, and I think in a year where we had several biopics or several, you know, character features that were really about, you know, very clearly about a specific person. There's been a lot of great acting, but to me, uh, you know, to have three central performances in Honey Boy, all of which were absolutely stellar, uh, it's that's lightning in a bottle. I don't think you you really see that often. Yeah, I don't know. I think some. I mean, Lucas Hedges already has an Academy Award nomination, but I think those other two guys will have one at some point. We'll see what kind of choices Shia makes because you know he's very unconventional, which is good. What's your number eight? My number eight is High Life ah. by Claire Denis. Yeah, so we had a pretty long talk on this podcast with our friend Ben about that one who, like I said, joined us for the Climax podcast. So uh, what did you really like about High Life? Um, I'm going to be honest, the the sense of hopelessness. Wow, Um, you're really just trying to bring us down, aren't you? (laughs) Yeah, definitely. I I find that, you know, when I go to a movie and I leave the theater, I'm going to be feeling usually one of like a few ways. Usually you're just, you know, invigorated, you know, excited, you know, pumped up. Or you're, you know, melancholy and full of, you know, like there's, do you have an emotional swell in you? Or, you know, it's, you're, you've, you're on cloud nine because it's funny and you're happy afterwards. I very rarely leave a theater feeling just absolutely crushed. Okay, so let me just ask you, because we could go in so many ways and talk about highlight for so long. If you're making this point specifically, do you think the final shot is one of hopelessness? Because I kind of, I, I almost read it the opposite way. Like they're going out for something new, you know. And uh, it, I think, I think both Ben and I kind of took it as like, a, all right, well, let's see what this leads us to, and maybe it could lead to something good, or it could be lead to death. But like, I don't know. I, I, I didn't leave it feeling like that. Right. I mean, I think um, for me, I would say that first of all, the ending doesn't necessarily change the overall power um, of yeah, the movie. You know, sure. like my my response to it. But I will also say that I kind of interpreted the ending as. A, a little bit defeating. Like, I think it's, it is presented in a way that is somewhat, uh, you know, uplifting. But I think at the end of the day, the audience knows what's going to happen to them. And I think 
the characters really know what's going to happen to them, too. I think, you know, uh, uh, Robert Pattinson's character already saw what happens to somebody who tries to go through uh, the wormhole. Right. And I think his daughter uh, has not seen that, but she can tell that that's, you know, by his response, that that's kind of what's going to happen. But they're both so trapped that to them, that's the only form of escape. And, and yeah, I think there is some victory in escape, um, no matter what the cost is. But it didn't, certainly didn't, I, I didn't feel any kind of heroic victory for them. I just, I felt, I, I felt sympathy, but. But you still, you just kind of appreciated that Claire Denis could still create that kind of tone for that long. Yeah, totally. And and to sustain it for the entire movie, because even if it is a film that just absolutely crushes you in every way possible, it's never, a. I didn't find it to be a boring film at any point. Definitely. No, yeah, it, yeah, for sure. What's your seven? Uh, long Day's Journey Into Night. What is this? Because I don't know if most of our listeners are going to even know what that is. So this is a film by... Um, a director named Begon, or Began. I think it's, it's. I think it is actually pronounced Begon, though. Um, and it's a. Uh, it's not an interpretation of the, uh, of the play Long Day's Journey Into Night. It's a Chinese drama film, I would say. It's got elements of surrealism and and musical, and it is probably. You know, after climax, the next example on my on my list of a film that just immediately broke in and stayed exactly where it was um, due to a technical achievement, and that's the 59-minute unbroken long take done in 3D hmm. that wow. ends the movie. Huh. And uh, it's a uh, you know it's it's a it's a there there is a film around that you know it's a it's kind of a, a romance. It's uh, Begone is from a place called Kylie. I think it's like central China or south, southeastern China. And uh, all of his films kind of deal with Kylie as, as, a, as a place, as a setting, as a character. And so this film is kind of just a, uh, you know, two-hour look at the, this, ro- this romantic building kind of relationship between two people in the nightlife of Kylie. Is there a, is, is there somewhere people can watch it? Because I mean, I don't think it's one that people are going to really know where to look for. I mean, where any available to anyone online somewhere? Yeah, I believe it's available to rent on like, um, on prime. Okay. Yeah. It's it's available to rent on Amazon. And I think like YouTube and a couple other places too. And it's just, uh, you know, and I, I, I say that and I certainly want people to watch it. I, I also say that, you know, if you are in a place like uh, in L.A., in New York, or Chicago, in Atlanta, anywhere that has like a repertory theater, try and wait and see if it's going to come back into the theater because you're not going to, unless you have, you know, a 3D setup at home. True, true. You won't see it uh, the way that I did, which was, you know, just the that ending, that entire last sequence, watching that in 3D um, is pretty stunning. Yeah, and, and it's interesting, too, that I guess that... Um Fortunately, I think it's gotten to the point where people kind of roll their eyes when some movies are in 3D when they don't need it. So it's always interesting to hear someone whose taste I trust be like, no, this is a different kind of movie that's actually enhanced by 3D. Because I don't know if there's that many movies out there these days where that's a, that's a plus as opposed to a, a pro as opposed to a con. What's your number six? My number six is Her Smell ah, by Alex okay. Ross Perry. Yeah. So uh, 
man, we've had a lot of music movies the last couple of years. And I, I, I think one thing I really respected about this movie is that it really did actually feel distinct from like so many different things. I mean, I, we've had true stories and fictional stories about musicians the last couple of years, and we've had a lot of them. And I don't know, this felt very, very distinct amongst all of those. And I really respected that. What did you like about her smell? Yeah. I mean, the, 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 the acting again, this is an example of a movie that's just going to be carried by a central performance uh, or central performances for that matter. And Elizabeth Moss is just, you know, spellbinding. She's, she's in this role in particular, you know, I've always liked Elizabeth Moss. I liked her a lot in Mad Men. Um, and since then, you know, she's she's been in other things. She's been in other Alex Ross Perry films. She was in yes. Queen of Earth, which is another one of his his more weirder, <laughs> his more out there films. And, you know, that was a fantastic role. So I, I feel like this, though, is just, you know, the next level. This is this is something I've never seen from her before. This level of <laughs> just being damaged goods and totally nailing it. Yeah. She's kind of having a moment too. Like, you know, she was in us and she's going to be in the new Taika Waititi movie, the, the British soccer thing next year, the Dutch soccer movie next year. And then doing the, the, the invisible man. Um, like she's in the new Wes Anderson film, I yeah, believe yeah. as well. Yeah. Cool. Good for her. Uh, but yeah, I mean like the, the I, I don't know. It's like, if, if you're like, Hey, let's do, I mean, it's kind of like, we're going to do Steve Jobs, but like over the, but like with a musician that's really gone through it. And that's like a really cool conceit. And I, 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 I really like that character. She like really gets into it. And I like all the supporting performances, the younger band that she takes under her wing. That's just oh, like a really, yeah. it's a really cool dynamic to see just how, how much of a mess she is, but just through seeing how someone else reacts to her, you get such a good sense of like what what she means in this world without having to have like a massive exposition dump it's just i just like the way it like brings these characters in and out of the movie and you see you learn so much about her just through the snippets of conversation you hear with her and the way people react to her it's really cool yeah totally totally agree what is your number five 1917 all right so this is one that uh we talked about too and i'm not going to spend too much time on it because we really like did this like right before this one came out and people are just going to have heard that but did it surprise you? I'll ask you this for the sake of the top 10 podcast. Did giving everything you knew about this movie going in the potential for, Hey, is this, this whole thing with the use of Warner is going to feel, uh, just like too perfunctory or unnecessary. And we have a lot of war movies. Were you surprised that you ended up liking this movie as much as you did? Um, yes, as much as I did. Yeah. I knew I was gonna, I, I felt like I had a pretty strong feeling. You respect the craft. Yeah, I, I, I had a pretty strong feeling I was going to like it. I did not think I was going to like it as much as I did. And, uh, you know, I think when people listen to the podcast, they'll hear, uh, you know, a more fleshed out take on, on my opinions about some of the other things besides the craft. I knew I was going to like the craft. I wasn't sure if the rest of the movie was going to be there to support it. Mm-hmm. And I was pleasantly surprised that I, I found that it did. And um, that, to me, you know, when you can have a completely cohesive uh, marriage between uh, technical achievement and a narrative that really works well. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a that's a rare treat for a film. And uh, definitely. So, what's your number four? My number four is the lighthouse. Ah, okay, another one we talked about. Uh, what I'll say this because people can go listen to our podcast on it to get your in depth thoughts on it. But were you uh, were you pretty uh, shocked that it uh, got that Oscar for cinematography? <laughs> yeah. Um... Yeah, I definitely was. I was definitely surprised. Um, I uh, I know we we certainly talked a lot about the cinematography yeah. in the in the podcast and uh, A24's yeah. lone Oscar nomination of the year. 
Right, which I think, you know, first of all, was a little bit Which is fucking bullshit. I mean, like, you have uncut yeah. gems in the farewell sitting right there. It's terrible, but it's kind of funny that this is the thing that it ended up being its sole representation at the Oscars. Right. Such a weird-ass uh, film. Yeah, I... I, um, <laughs> I I really admired that aspect of it, and I was glad that it got recognized for that. I mean, Jaron Blatchkey is a, a great young cinematographer who I think uh, has a lot, a lot, a lot of potential. And uh, you know, between The Witch and Lighthouse, and uh, I think he also worked on Shimmer Lake, which is a uh, which was a really pretty cool uh, thriller film from a couple of years ago. Uh, I think he's going to be, you know, one of those talents to watch. Yeah, and. Uh people definitely we, we, I mean Elijah and I both recommend that people go see it and it's your it's your last chance to see Robert Pattinson before he goes back into blockbuster mode and hopefully he makes a shit ton of money doing Batman and this Christopher Nolan movie and then goes back to giving us other weird Robert Pattinson things that we've grown accustomed to over the last five years exactly <laughs> um what's your number three uncut gems all right so I figured this was going to be on there uh on there somewhere so uh this is one that we had both talked about something that we were both excited about uh, you're kind of, you probably have your experience. I mean, Un- uncut gems is, uh, my number, uh, eight, I think, uh, where, where'd it go? Yeah, no, my, my number seven. So this is actually the, might be the only place where we overlap. Uh, but I, I, one thing I said when I did the podcast on this with my friend Billy was that, uh, I, I, well, part of the reason I was so interested in the subject matter was because I was very close to the basketball series that serves as a framing device for this, uh, uh, for this movie as a, as a Sixers fan who had to watch Rajon Rondo inexplicably learn how to shoot threes for the series and cost us a trip to the conference championship. You are a Celtics fan and I'm sure that's just a small part of this movie that you got a kick out of because, you know, they actually kept having to rewrite this movie every time they saw a new was going to be in it, uh, as, as the basketball player, because they wanted to use a real series that had the right flow. Uh, but yeah. yeah, so what did you really dig about Uncut Gems? Yeah, I mean, I, uh, I thought just the, the way that it captures a play and well, I'm not, I'm not going to lie. There is a, a degree of, of definite personal bias here. Uh, the way that it captured the diamond district in New York, you know, mm-hmm. a place that I'm decently familiar with. Really? So you um, have been there? Yeah, oh, I was yeah, just yeah. in New York two weeks ago. I was like, and I had just seen the movie. I was like, shit, why didn't I go there? I could have at least said I was there. I would have been a fun thing to do, and I just yeah. forgot to do it. I was like, I, I, was, I was at like 60th Street at one point. I was not that far. I wouldn't recommend it, honestly. Oh. Going to the Diamond <laughs> District is not a very fun experience. Really? Um, yeah, and People I try to sell just, you shit. Or? Oh yeah, oh yeah, yeah. yeah. You're gonna get hounded every inch of the way down 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 the road. Yeah. And uh, you know, the movie did a fantastic job portraying the actual shops. And I know this is a weird thing to kind of get hung up on, but like. I think when a lot of people think of, uh, you know, jewelry stores or diamond stores or whatever, you're thinking of, you know, a place like Zales or whatever. It's a store. Uh, that's not really true in the Diamond District. You go to the Diamond District and it literally is just like apartment block buildings where each room is a different shop. Mm. And it's really claustrophobic and really scary. And uh, the film did a great job of capturing visually that claustrophobia and uh relating that i think to a really great uh you know overall theme of of kind of capitalistic glaciation as i called it in my review that uh interesting this is this is really the ultimate vaporwave movie it's the yeah. ultimate uh the ultimate uh hauntology movie uh to uh, no, go, go ahead. ahead. Okay, well, I was going to say two specific things I want to ask you about on this. Uh, number one, uh, how how do you think this movie was enhanced by its Jewishness? I, 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 complained, <laughs> I, I complained a little bit on the podcast about how, like— 
Passover is never going on in May, and I knew this basketball series was going on in May, and I thought it could have like conveyed its seriousness without that, but I didn't knock it really seriously for that. That was just like one. That was just like a nitpick. But like, do you think? Uh, what did you think about it? Like showing a different kind of American Jew that we don't normally see depicted in movies, and how did that? How did that work for you? I, I liked it. I know I talked to people who were disappointed because they felt that even though this was a different depiction, it was still the same, quote unquote, uh, you know, in, in its way that it kind of makes Howard out to be not a great guy. How often um, do we actually see like Jewish people like this in 2020 on this big or small screen, you know? We, we don't. We yeah. really don't. And uh, while it is there are stereotypes, I would say that the film employs the fact that it's made by two Jewish guys from the York? Diamond District. Yeah. Yeah, um, and that it stars a lead actor who is Jewish. Notoriously uh, Jewish, yes. Right, exactly. Uh, I, I feel comfortable saying that its portrayals, even if they strike a, a negative chord, uh, I think the truth in them is still important to recognize. And I found that to be, you know, overall watching the movie, that's really how I felt about it was just the— uh, you know, it, you you really don't want to like any of these characters, and they certainly don't give you any ammunition to like them. Um, but there is definitely a, a deeper ethos in, in my connection with it because of that, because of the fact that they're Jewish, and because it really is. You know, it's it, these are these are guys I know. You know, at the end of the day. Speaking of that, uh, that notorious Jewish actor was Sandler Oscar worthy for you? Would you have been happy if that had happened? Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I think you and I personally have talked about what my, my feelings on Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, but I would have been absolutely fine seeing that, uh, seeing Leo's best, uh, best actor spot go to, <laughs> go, to, go, to, go to the Sandman instead. Yeah, I mean, that was a loaded category. It just kind of, it, it kind of, it, it just would have been cool for them to get in more places. And, you know, we just talked about The Lighthouse and we talked a lot on that podcast about the sound. I mean, this could have very easily had a very well uh, deserved sound mixing nomination. Am I right? Oh yes, I mean I, this Uncut Gems could have been nominated, frankly, for just about any category for, for, for all for all of the technical ones. Uh, I think, yeah. you know, the editing, especially the editing in that last sequence, the last you know twenty minutes of that movie, mm -hmm. uh, the editing was just yeah, you cut, know, cut, cut, cut between the game, the actual store itself, and then the Mohegan Sun and all that, and right, um, yeah, just, uh, you know that was. You know, there, there's there's not a moment of rest in that, and that's an accomplishment in and yeah. of itself. And much like we just said, we hope Robert Pattinson makes all of his money and gets to keep making weird stuff. Hopefully the fact that this is one of A24's most profitable films, short of Lady Bird, and it hasn't gotten an international release yet, when Adam Sandler is pretty famous internationally, hopefully this gets the Safdies all the clout to do whatever they want next. Totally. Uh, what's your number two? Parasite. Ah, okay. So we've, we've, this is going to pop up on a lot of people's lists. So I'm not going to add much because I've already talked about it once and I did a long pod. But what, if there's one big thing you want to impart about your feelings about Parasite, what would it be based on your relationship with Bong and just your uh, reaction to the film? So I really like Bong Joon-ho and have, have for quite a while. I have to be honest, his last couple of films have been probably my least favorite of his. I was not a big fan of uh, Okja and... I'm contractually obligated not to speak poorly on Snowpiercer. No, it's a joke. Um, I, uh, I Is that a Turner property or something? No, but oh. it's coming up on TNT. Oh, right, right. I forgot. I forgot. Uh, I forgot. I forgot. I forgot. I forgot. I forgot. Yeah, yeah. Uh, no, I mean, I, I, I thought Snowpiercer was fine. I really, there were some parts of it that were really good. Overall, I did not. It did, I didn't think it was his strongest film. Mm -hmm. um, I'm more of a fan of Memories of a Murder, which is a way earlier yeah. Bong Joon Ho film from 2003, um, and I felt like this movie 
uh, shared a lot in common with memories of a murder. Um, and to me, the word that I just, that I bring down to, you know, with Parasite is precision. There is nothing wasted about that movie. There's, there's not a, a wasted frame. There's not a wasted line of dialogue. There's not a wasted sound effect. There's, there's nothing in that, in, in Parasite that, that doesn't have a very specific meaning and purpose. And so I, think I actually said that's the very same thing when I just talked about it with Josh, like, there's like there's no fat to trim off this movie for sure exactly it's it's all layers and it's all context and subtext and it's all it's all perfectly stacked and i think that you know that that plays into it it's like it's like assembling uh you know an intricate puzzle and i think that's exactly what bong joon ho was going for he was trying to make a hitchcockian uh, sort of thriller, this, you know, mystery film. And, uh, I, I think it just, yeah. it fits together like that perfectly. Yeah. That's why. And, and that's why I'm like excited to see it again. I just haven't gotten a chance for a rewatch and I, I and because of that puzzle box nature of it, like it's going to be so fun to rewatch over and over again. Uh, what's your number one of the year? My number one for 2019 is a hidden life oh, I directed by of Terrence Malick. Yeah. You're, you're, you're <laughs> Malick's your guy. So, and this is one that didn't get to me. So I haven't seen a hidden life yet. So for someone that hasn't seen it, what can you say about it? That won't spoil it for me. That'll just get me really excited to see it. Uh, it'll make you rethink your life. Oh, geez. <laughs> <I'm trying> to, <laughs> it's, um, it's an extremely, uh, it's a deeply religious film, obviously. Um, uh, you're dealing with a, a film about a, about a Catholic conscientious objector in Austria during World War II. Um, so you know that there's going to be that element of it, especially with Malik. But, you know, you also know that with Malik, you're going to get this just absolute existential, complete galaxy brain kind of philosophy in the movie. Um, and so seeing in life, you know, it's like it's, like, it's like getting flogged for like three hours <laughs> Jeez. It's, just, it's just it's such a i'm so excited about it <laughs> yeah it's a, it's a very it's a very hard film to watch and i thought frankly that it was a, a very important film nowadays and you know my film my, my number one film from last year i think i had a very similar stance on when i when i picked the favorite i think i said you know this movie may be about you know queen anne and it may be set in the 1600s or whatever but at the end of the day it is very much a film about Trump's America hmm. <laughs> and a hidden life. You know, I think when you when you really think about the plot and you think about a conscientious objector in uh, you know Nazi era Austria, I think you can you, even without seeing the movie, you can already start to kind of see where this might be. Uh, you know, where this might might have some parallels to the modern to, the, to modern times and to the things we're facing in the world today. And um, when you combine those, you know, that aspect of it, the, you know, the, uh, the, the, the philosophy of it and what I thought were two of the best central performances of the year, August Deal and Valerie Pochner. Um, it's hard, it's hard for me, it's hard for me to seriously say that there was a film yeah. that I felt more affected by walking awesome. out of the theater. Now I'm pretty excited to see it. It's, it's almost a three hour movie. So my last question would be how long into that three hour movie was it uh, no longer distracting that this main lead guy is played by one of the main Nazis in Inglorious Bastards? <laughs> uh, 10 minutes in. Okay, I mean, good. He's, it, that, he's that good that you forget about it. <laughs> yeah, he's just, okay. uh, yeah, it's perfect. All right, great. Elijah, we'll see you in 2020 or we're already in 2020. We'll see you in the movie year of 2020. And we're almost there. Yes, sir. All right. Thank you thank for having you. me. 
and we're back. And now I'm joined by recurring guest Fred Cobb to talk about his 10 favorite movies of 2019. Fred, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. Always excited to be on your podcast journey. Yes. So I am uh, excited to hear what your top 10 for the year entails. I want to know quickly, as I do from all my guests, uh, as you were putting together this list, did you have any uh, thoughts that stood out, any uh, through lines, any themes? Any? Did you come away from this exercise with any big picture thoughts about the year of 2019 in movies? If not, don't worry about it. But I was wondering if anything <laughs> kind of any uh, revelations uh, came to you during this process. So I think I tried to semi-consciously at least uh, steer away from what the Oscars did this year, which is reward a lot of very established filmmakers for their mm. last tourists. Uh, I'm going to reveal right away, neither The Irishman nor Once Upon a Time in Hollywood are on my list, mm. um, which is surprising because I do like Scorsese and Tarantino a lot as filmmakers. But um, when I look back at 2019, there was just a lot of really interesting stuff from uh New filmmakers, filmmakers who are having big breakthrough years, who have done stuff before but are getting more recognition now critically and from audiences. Um, and I think as we head into 2020, another recognition that's kind of important is that a lot of franchise fatigue seems to be kicking in. I mean, sure, Avengers Endgame did very well this year, but at the same time, you know, the X-Men franchise kind of ended in a bit of a sizzle, it Men did. in Black... And in Black was Men in Black uh, was last year. To, oh, man. To, poor, to very poor results. Uh, and then, of course, the year culminated with uh, a very, at least I thought, disappointing combination of the Star Wars trilogy. Yeah. So that's kind of uh, unfortunate that it ended on that note. But I will say, based on the top 10 list that I have, very exciting stuff coming our way in the next decade from some very young, very promising and very diverse filmmakers. And yeah. That's something to be talked about for sure. I like that you made those points, though. I do have the fourth movie in a series on mine and the third movie in a series on mine. So I, I might I might not have exactly uh, went along with that. And I had I had two prior Best Directors uh, movies in this one, one of them being Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, one of them being Little Woman with Greta Gerwig. So, but the, the other eight movies I have in mind, none of them were directed by someone that had ever been nominated for Best Director before this year. So I could certainly see some of uh, the same threads that you were kind of seeing as as you kind of went back and looked at your year in movies. So, Fred, what is your 10th favorite movie of 2019? All right, so this one I only just added uh, last week, actually. Wow. Um, yeah, um, and this was, uh, I think, my favorite Netflix release of uh, last year. And in a year of uh, a lot of fun comebacks, I was just very happy to see Eddie Murphy finally ah. get his big break again. Yes. So my number 10 movie of the year is Dolomite Is My Name. Gotcha, uh, yeah. And that is... Even though I've never actually seen the original Dolomite movie, I still thought it was an incredibly fun movie that really sort of captured the 1970s uh, funk and disco atmosphere very well. It was written by the same two guys who wrote Ed Wood for Tim Burton in the mm -hmm. 1990s. Yep. So these are guys who have experience with uh, filmmakers who are a little out of their depth, but who really do enjoy uh, standing behind the camera and things that they want to do on the big screen and I really just enjoyed the bigger points it also made about uh, an African-American filmmaker struggling to get his work out for an audience to see. So very enjoyable all around. Yeah, I, I, I really enjoyed Dolomite also. I would have been perfectly happy if Eddie Murphy had gotten an Oscar nomination. Uh, just same, same with Adam Sandler. It's like you could have, you could have found, given one of the comedy guys a little love. Uh, that would have been nice. But, I mean, I also really loved it. I uh, really liked Wesley Snipes a lot. Gave a lot of great just disgusted looks and uh, gave that character oh, yeah. Gave Derville Martin a lot of depth without 
necessarily having a ton of lines. You could just look at him and tell exactly how he's feeling about any given situation. Uh, shout out to Divine Joy Randolph, who a newcomer who definitely made an impression as well in the movie. And yeah, it's just cool to see Eddie trying. That's all. That was the biggest thing he came down for for me. It's like it's good to know he can still do this if he wants to. And hopefully he. I mean, I'm guessing he did. I'm guessing would not have made a Coming to America sequel if he didn't like have a really good idea for it and wasn't really motivated to actually revisit that material. So I have high hopes for that too in 2020 because that's coming to us sooner rather than later. I think. Um, what's yeah. your What's your number nine? Uh, number nine, that is a movie we actually discussed a few months ago with our good friend Adam. Mm. It's been a very good year for Taika Waititi. Um, he also ended up with uh, his movie getting nominated for Best Picture. Uh, so that would be Jojo Rabbit. Yeah, he had Best Screenplay um, nomination too, and Charles Johansson got nominated. Absolutely. So uh, ultimately, um, even though it was a bit of a, uh, I guess, risky uh, kind of story to tell with some, I guess, questionable choices, um, I didn't think they were questionable, but some people uh, did. Mm-hmm. But still, it seems like uh, the Academy really enjoyed the movie. Um, and I just thought it was a very great uh, way of balancing a very serious subject with um, humor that was uh, in very good taste. And um, I mean, again, if uh, people are interested in our take on this, they can listen to the podcast we did. Um, but very enjoyable stuff yeah. from Taika Waititi. Really excited to see what he does in the next decade. Yeah, you know, and I, I won't dwell too much on it because, again, people can listen to our podcast, but it has been a couple of months, and I feel like I've heard more criticism in podcasts. I feel like I've read some, and I still honestly cannot articulate what people's big issue with this movie was because it was divisive in some corners of the critic world, and I, I don't know. I, some people might I, – I guess we talked about it on the podcast. Some people might have just wanted, like, way more biting satire, something that's more, I don't know, searing and – hard on the Nazis, and it's like, you know, I, 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 again, we talked about it a lot, but I know the Nazis are bad. Like, I, I don't know if I needed the movie to really, like, hammer that home to me in any other way. I was happy to make me laugh, and it did have some pretty pointed jokes, and, you know, that's what I wanted out of it. And, yeah, it, it would have been cool if Taika had gotten Best Director nomination, too. I mean, that, that was such a loaded category that... Oh, absolutely. I mean, that, like, I, I, there's, like, three others that didn't get nominated that I would have been very happy with. And But, like, I mean, if, if this is the one that gets Best Picture and Best uh, Screenplay... And then I'm perfectly happy because, like, as far as I'm concerned, he probably deserved awards like that for uh, Hunt for the Wilder People and what we do in the shadows and arguably even Thor Ragnarok was, like, pretty impressive in what it did within the MCU. So very happy for him that he, like, kind of was able to even make this movie in the first place. Uh, Fred, what's your number eight? Uh, so my number eight movie of the year really struck a chord with me. And um, on a bit of a personal note, my uh, grandfather was diagnosed with stomach cancer earlier um, last year. Um, he's doing much better now. Um, but at the same time, of course, getting news like that really, uh, makes you ask yourself, did I get to spend a lot of time with my grandparents? I hear enough of their stories. Um, what was the relationship that, and this particular movie really addressed a lot of those questions. So I'm obviously talking about Lulu Wang's The Farewell, which really just kind of, I do think it's Wong, Fred. I'm going to call you out on it. Wong? Yeah. Oh, man. All right. So. (laughs) Way to interrupt my uh, sort of poignant uh, yeah, relationship yeah, yeah, yeah. with this movie. No, but no, but obviously uh, very unfortunate that it was entirely shut out yeah, by the Academy. It's fucking because, bullshit. Yeah, like Aquafina really just kind of, um, like really, I think, showed everybody like the stuff that she's made of. And it was such a sweet, tender relationship that she has with her grandmother. And you didn't feel bad laughing uh, because they really uh, had some very... Uh, like fun interactions in there. But at the same time, of course, it did address those bigger questions I was alluding to earlier about uh, just sort of a cultural and uh, generational interaction that 
uh, we might uh, think about very differently if we were confronted with the same situation with our grandparents. So just really amazing stuff. The the farewell is my number two. I talked a lot about it a, a lot about it on my podcast with Hannah and how you know it was personal to me too as someone that like had all four of my grandparents saw I was twenty six years old and then lost two of them in like four months and okay. uh, so and that that happened in like 2017 early 2018 so i wasn't too far removed from it when i saw this movie so very close to my grandparents and to see them kind of have to go through this with the uh with the grandparent i enjoyed seeing the cultural differences and how the family dealt with that in the way in which they did uh lu long was great uh, or not lu long well yes lu long was great i would have been happy with the best director or best screenplay nomination for her but uh aquafina was great and so was Zhao Zin and People thought both of them had shots of getting Oscar nominations, and I'm kind of angry about it still. Like they were just, they were just all great, and it's just they were sitting right there. For the Academy is going to deservedly get a lot of shit for only nominating one person of color and having that person be a former slave, because that's just the kind of thing Academy wants to nominate people of color for, and not for regular family dramas that are really interesting, like this movie. And it was just like really cool with how explored those cultural differences. But like Fred said, not afraid to be funny too, despite dealing with serious subject matter, and it did that in a very effective way. So. That's why I really love that movie. Fred, what is your number seven of 2019? All right, my number seven. So as you might remember, I was very high on eighth grade last year, and this was kind of the spiritual sequel to that, uh, moving on to the awkward high school phase. Uh, my number seven movie of the year is Olivia Wilde's uh, terrific directorial debut, Booksmart. Ah, it's my number nine. Ah, look at that. So uh, glad to see we have some overlap here. But, you know, I mean, it's been a while, obviously, since it came out. Uh, wasn't as successful as some might have hoped, unfortunately. Um, as somebody who was just incredibly awkward in high school, as somebody who had just come to this country, wasn't really comfortable interacting with people, it was just very heartening to see a filmmaker tackle the subject so openly about uh, people who worked very hard throughout high school, but uh, now are worrying towards the end whether they had enough of a social life and whether they're going to have good memories when they think back on this time of their life uh, at a later point. And really just some great laugh out loud moments, uh, really just an underrated movie. And, uh, it's available on Hulu actually. Ah, good so to know. definitely something I encourage people to check out. Didn't get any Oscar nominations, but this really is one of the best of 2019. Yeah. There, yeah. There are just like a few sequences in there that are like, you know, really crazy how well they're shot for a first time director with, you know, the, the really that entire party scene. I mean, the scene mm-hmm. where they have the fake dance, the scene in the pool, the scene where, uh, Amy's walking through the house after she sees her crush making out with the other guy that Molly had a crush on and the way it follows her around that house. Like there's so many like really cool moments. And I am, uh, I don't know. I just like very, very happy that that movie exists and wish it had found a bigger audience and than it did, but hopefully it's going to springboard Beanie Feldstein and Caitlin Deaver to great things. And I'm longtime fans of theirs. So, uh, very happy for them. And, uh, hopefully Olivia Wilde does something really exciting with her next movie. Cause I think she already signed on for her next directorial project though. I'm not remembering that right now. Fred, what is your number six? Yeah, I won't spend too much time on my number six movie because I know almost everybody you'll talk to will have that on their list. And there are people this year, um, who are going to be a, a lot higher on this movie than I was, um, which is weird to say about my number six movie of the year, Bong Joon-ho's Parasite. Actually, that's, um, that's exactly where Josh Brown had it too. Oh, really? I was yeah. really expecting everybody to be way higher on this. Um, I mean, I, like I said, I hate to say that I thought it was overrated because it is my number six movie of the year. I guess I just didn't connect uh, with it quite as well as other people did. I thought it had very interesting points to make about 
class uh, disparities, um, not just in South Korean culture, but also obviously with us um, on the home front. But ultimately, when I think about it, I think Snowpiercer was the more entertaining experience for me from this particular director, which I know uh, is going to rub people the wrong way, but I still think it's going to win the Best Foreign Language uh, Film Oscar, which it isn't called like that anymore. It's going to be hard to get used to. But um, It's international film now, right? Best international yeah. film, that is right, yes. Um, but obviously, just a terrific movie, great experience. You never knew where it was going, and uh, if for some godforsaken reason you haven't seen it yet do so as soon as possible yeah i don't think it's crazy to call it more snowpiercer more entertaining just because it has um maybe just like a lot more like pure action and wacky characters and i can see like why something that's that uh that go that that's that ambitious in its scope would be more entertaining depending on the kind of story you might connect with but you know as i said in one of the other times because i'm going to end up talking about parasites eight times on this podcast basically because i'm sure it'll be on everyone's list because my guests have good taste, but but just that, like, I mean, I, there are a couple parts of uh, Snowpiercer that might have dragged for me just a little bit. It's I still one of my ten favorite movies that year, but like for me, yeah, Parasite was just a little stronger overall. But like, I mean, I can't begrudge someone as long for having it in their top ten. Like, there's nothing wrong with that. You had it at six, so I'm not going to give you a hard time. Where did you have it? <laughs> I, I, it's my number one. Uh, oh. So, uh, but but I mean, like, uh, I'm, I'm going to give anyone a hard time that comes on here and doesn't have it in their top ten. But I don't expect that to be a problem. Like I said, everyone here in the on, at the rewind has good taste. Uh, Fred, what's your number five? All right, my number five movie. You might be surprised uh, to hear that I have it that high. Uh, we just discussed it. That's Ford versus Ferrari. Oh, okay, cool. Um, so I, I just did enjoy the racing scenes a lot, and you know, in terms of just sheer entertainment, I kind of thought that I would put John Wick. Uh, in this particular spot but the more i thought about it the more i just really enjoyed the interplay uh, of matt damon and christian bale um i have been to a formula one race a couple of years ago and this really just brought back some of those memories for me i really like how authentic uh the action set pieces here were so yeah again we discussed this uh on your part earlier uh, highly recommend seeing it if you have the chance with amplified sound and imax or dolby yeah, you can check out our pod, which was probably posted about three episodes ago at this point, if you want my thoughts on Ford versus Ferrari, a movie I also really liked but didn't quite crack my top ten. Fred, what is your number four? Yeah, you're going to hate me for this one. I know we fundamentally disagree about <laughs> this, and I know some people— uh, It's okay. I was, I'm ready for it. Go for it. Go yeah, for it. and I know some people are obviously uh, now making uh, the point that this glorifies violence, and I had to talk to somebody a couple of days ago that uh, not everybody who enjoyed it— uh, gets off on seeing movies you're not like going to, you're not going to shoot up your workplace now fred uh, very, very <laughs> high, highly unlikely that that's going to happen or really most people who see it so yeah my number four movie of the year if this wasn't obvious already is joker with a terrific performance by joaquin phoenix and a very fantastic score that seems to be a shoo-in for best original score at this point i'm not even going to try to pronounce her name uh Hilda she's iceland She's Icelandic. She also did Chernobyl. And it really was just, for me, a very riveting experience for two hours. Uh, I was on the edge of my seat the entire time. Uh, it's the rare Best Picture nominee that made over a billion dollars at the international box office. So even if this was a very divisive movie, it definitely attracted a lot of interest. And I think the very least you have to say is the Oscars didn't sleep on this particular cultural phenomenon of 2019. It certainly didn't. Uh, I, I appreciate that you've been very efficient and brief so far, but I mean, this is one that I don't know if I'm going to have anyone else with this in a top 10, so I don't mind uh, asking you at least a couple questions about it. But uh, 
I don't even disagree that like Joaquin's performance is great. I'm not even upset that he got nominated. I'm pretty upset about most of the rest of the nominations, but I'm <laughs> fine with Joaquin. So, if setting aside the fact that he had like such a captivating performance, and maybe that permeates every other thought you have about this movie, but what was it aside from the fact that he gave a, gave a great performance that you connected with most in Joker? So I know that a lot of people, or at least some critics, have pointed out the comparisons to Martin Scorsese and uh, that it's inferior to some of the works it's trying to yeah, replicate. It's, it's King of Comedy Karaoke. Go on. Yeah, I mean, I, I didn't really see it as a replication of that. What I saw it as was uh, them trying to take a look at a character who obviously has been played several times by very well-known actors in very acclaimed performances, uh, and they kind of stripped him down to the bare essentials. Um, obviously, comic book villains, a lot of times, if these really just ultra-fantastic motivations of world domination and Black Panther was a curious exception to that last year and it got rewarded accordingly by critics and audience members for having a compelling villain. Uh, this really just kind of sort of flipped that whole idea on its head that we get to stay with the villain the entire time. And even though some people really didn't need a Joker origin story because some of the more compelling aspects of the Heath Ledger incarnation of this character was that there really wasn't a good explanation for why he did uh, what he did in The Dark Knight. I really just thought it was intriguing to see a villain sort of grow from the ground up. And by the time the movie ends, he hadn't really gotten to that point of being a supervillain yet. Mm. You just kind of saw what would drive somebody to sort of turn against the world and really just confront the ugliness that he sees uh, in that way. And I also didn't think it glorified violence whatsoever. Yeah. It made it very it made it very clear that Arthur Flegg is a very damaged, very disturbed person. And I really don't see how you can take the message away that anything he did here was justified. Yeah, yeah, no. And I, I want to say I actually agree on that count. Like I didn't think I, I didn't really think that was a concern for me. I don't think the movie has its priorities there. I think it's pretty clear it's pretty bad. And that that was never really a concern I had. And I thought that was maybe an unfair criticism. I just thought like, I just felt bad after I saw this movie. That was my thing. Mm. And I was like, I don't feel the need to go shoot up a school, but I also really just don't feel good about things. And if a movie is going to leave me just feeling like that bad, I wanted to like accomplish some other stuff better. And I just didn't think it was a movie like about mental illness and the way I wanted it to be or about male entitlement in the way that in, in the way that uh, King of Comedy was. And I, I, I guess I, my thing was like I would have liked to have seen him interact with the world a little bit more. You spend a lot of time with him in that apartment alone. And it's like this is a really interesting take on this character. And he feels shut out from the rest of the world. But I want to actually see him getting to that point and see him see more people having to come into contact with this guy. And I, I think that would have helped me like at least have more to hold on to in this movie. Um, but that was that was my ultimate thing. But I, I am in agreement with you. Like, no, I, I did not think it was inciting us to go riot. I, I, that, I think that's it's a little unfair. I got caught up in that discourse. And I think it's I don't think it's a good movie, but like I don't think it's a problematic movie in that way. And it's not totally fair that it got that tag. Uh, yeah, I was very surprised. The local theater in Jacksonville actually pulled it the day after it was supposed to be released. And it, yeah, because um, it, it is surprising because now this is a Best Picture Oscar nominee. So you have to take it I'm, back or put it back, maybe. Yeah, I mean, you can argue whether it's a prestige picture or not, but you can't deny that it's gotten a lot of awards attention. So clearly, this is something that, as a local movie theater, you would want to show to your audience. So kind of surprising that they made that choice. Yeah. All right, Fred, what's your number three? My number three. Okay, so this is a movie I know you liked a lot as well, and I'm very happy that uh, it's doing well at the box office and critics liked it. 
especially because Star Wars Episode Nine is so controversial because it's a great year for Ryan Johnson to be validated as a filmmaker. Number three movie of the year is uh, hopefully the first of many appearances uh, by Daniel Craig as Detective Benoit Blanc in Knives Out. Yeah, my, also my number three. Yep, very just very fun stuff. And, you know, obviously this genre has been adapted to death. Agatha Christie and Sir Arthur Conan Doyle have had their works turned into several movies and TV shows. Uh, so there's obviously a template for this. And it's just really fun to see a whole bunch of actors who are clearly enjoying themselves and a writer who is just incredibly comfortable in this genre, apparently, even though I don't think he's ever done anything remotely like this before. Hmm. Uh, deliver, deliver a story like this that really just uh, keeps you on your toes, uh, is already five steps ahead of you before you've even caught up with what he's doing. Um, and I really just love the validation, not just for Johnson as a filmmaker, but Daniel Craig as somebody who's really good at doing comedy. He was really funny in Logan Lucky a couple of years ago. And I really wish that, uh, I mean, I hope this new Bond movie is a huge success and that it's a great way for him to uh, leave the role behind. Yeah. But I do hope he leaves the role behind finally. It sounds, I mean, it, sounds, other things. it sounds like he's going to. It sounds like it was hard to get him to even to do uh, No Time to Die, but though it seems like he didn't mail it in. It looks like it should be good. Uh, but yeah, no, I agree on Knives Out. I think that you mentioned how the genre's been done a lot, and he keeps us on his toes. And I think that's the coolest thing about this movie is that it it feels like a different, a somewhat different take, like a whodunit, where you kind of figure out how it was done, but not really how it was done. It, like halfway through, is like just a, it's just a cool twist. You made the comment about Star Wars, so are you, I forgot? Are you, are you a Last Jedi fan? Like, and that's why you you felt like you're he's vindicated. So I liked the Last Jedi yeah. quite a bit. It's a movie that actually keeps growing on me. I rewatched it again a couple of weeks ago in the lead up to yeah. Rise of Skywalker, um, and it's not a perfect movie by any means. But I think history will treat that one very kindly as somebody trying something different in this particular trilogy right. that, it, at the end of the day, was made primarily to make Disney money. As no. cynical as that sounds. No, that's that's a fair point, but I'm glad that we're in agreement on Knives Out. And, it, and you're right. It's made a lot of money, which is great, like way more than anyone would have ever thought. And it should hopefully hopefully he – I'm glad he's going to make another one, and it seems like Benoit Blanc is coming back. But I I do hope that he like – it seems like he actually made this movie really fast from what I understand. But I hope he I, – I, I know Ryan's not going to make a sequel unless he has an idea, but I just hope it's like – I just hope it's as good as this one. And then and I'll be like, all right, just keep making him as much as he can. Uh, it's just, it was such a great movie that it's like I want to make sure that he keeps the quality up. What's your number two? So my number two movie uh, was my number one movie up until a few days ago. Um, and I genuinely debated about uh, which one I wanted to be my number one. Uh, but ultimately, I think this is the right call. Uh, so my number two movie of the year, uh, I mentioned Eddie Murphy earlier. And you mentioned this guy in the same breath. So um, I'm very glad that Adam Sandler finally showed the world what he can do. Uncut Gems is my number two movie of the year. And a very, very close number two. Almost uh, certainly... Uh, five times out of ten, that would have been my number one movie was, of the year. It was my number seven, and it was Elijah's number three. So uh, it's, mm -hmm. it's, get, it's, get, it's getting a lot of love. Oh, yeah, very, very exciting stuff. Uh, for the reasons that a lot of people have described, really just a roller coaster ride of intensity. Mm -hmm. um, th I mean, the guy obviously can catch a break, and it really works particularly well as a great depiction of what uh, addiction can do to somebody, somebody yeah. who just can't let go. And, I mean, this is obviously not the most likable guy, to put it mildly, uh, but you still uh, just hate to see uh, him keep digging a deeper and deeper hole for himself throughout the movie. Uh, very beautifully shot, uh, nicely scored. Uh, Adam Sandler and 
Indina Menzel might be the strangest screen couple of the year, but it works <laughs> incredibly well, surprisingly enough. Very disappointing that it got shot out by the Academy entirely. But yeah. um, just great for Adam Sandler uh, that he is actually capable with good material. He gave a great performance a few years ago in Noah Baumbach's uh, The Meyerowitz Stories as well, yes, uh, which is on Netflix, and I do highly recommend people check out as well. So, yeah, just... Something that shows that uh, with good material, even the most uh, derided actors can make great stuff happen. Yeah, no, I I, I really liked uh, Uncut Gems uh, quite a bit as well. And it was, uh, you made the point about, uh, you kind of root for him. And it's like, he's not really a good guy, but you're kind of still like never like totally off the bandwagon. And you're kind of still always like hoping he figures it out. And there's just this big groan every time he does something stupid when it seems like he's kind of dug himself out of a hole. It's like, oh, I got to go place another bed. It's like, no, you you, yeah. you, you, you yeah. got everything in, Howie. Don't do that. Don't do that. Go, <laughs> go sell your rope and be done. And you really do care about him, even if he's actually not a great guy, which is one of the more impressive things that the movie does. Uh, Fred, what is your number one movie of 2019? Right. So for my number one movie, I usually try to look for something that kept me emotionally connected. The biggest reason I ultimately go to the movies is because I want to walk out and just be kind of shell-shocked in a way. Uh, last year, that movie was A Star is Born. Uh, the year before that, it was Blade Runner 2049. It took me a long time this year to find a movie like that, to be honest. And as much as I liked Uncut Gems, it didn't do that for me either. Uh, but at the end of the day, I was able to find a movie that really sort of fulfilled those qualities for me. And we discussed it very extensively with Elijah just now. That movie is 1917. Oh wow! Okay, that's I yeah. didn't realize it was your it was going to top it was going to top your list. That's interesting. Yes, I, yes, I specifically didn't mention that um, because I'm I surprised didn't you. want. Yeah, no, I absolutely uh, do want to say that, especially as somebody who doesn't like war movies and somebody who went into this movie thinking. Uh, this is going to be a very interesting technical gimmick, but I'm probably not going to get a story-wise. I really do appreciate that with how much efficiency Sam Mendes was able to tell the story and really keep me connected to it the entire time, especially as far as the long tracking shot is concerned. You know, last year Alfonso Cuaron uh, won the Oscar for Cinematography for Roma, which I thought was a fantastic movie, but that is a movie that in every single shot screamed that it's artistic with a capital A. Mm. This movie, on the other hand, really felt more subdued. Like, I didn't feel like it sort of screamed in our faces that it's art. It really was far more interested in telling us the story about two kids really trying to survive uh, in just a very gruesome environment that uh, a lot of people were subjected to just 100 years ago. And I obviously can't put myself in their shoes because hopefully I will never have to experience anything remotely close to that, but it really just gets to you. And that is something that I give Sam Mendes, uh, his cast and crew all the credit for. And I hope this movie does incredibly well, the Oscars in a couple of weeks. Yeah. I won't add too much to that because I, we just talked about it, but I'll, I'll just say again, it is pretty impressive how it doesn't really, it's not really glorifying the war or, or having any kind of pro-war message, but it does it in subtle ways. You know, it's it's not super flashy, but I think the most important thing we talked about in the podcast was really Elijah's point about the use of corpses. It's like, they're not too in your face about it aside from when someone's arm goes into one, but it's like a constant reminder of just how messed up this all is and how how kind of pointless and unnecessary it all is. And that's just kind of hanging over the whole film, which I think is just really important to like making its uh, overall message not feel too uh, filthy or too pro-war or too, um, I I don't know, just uh, on the side of something that would be uh, what you might 
think of when you think of a lot of war films that are uh, trying to put these kind of actions and decisions that are being made to send people's lives into danger, like on a pedestal and uh, something that's necessary in any way. And this is the film is constantly reminding you that is not the case, which is very important. Uh, Fred, thank you for being such a loyal guest of the program in 2019. I am glad your voice will be incorporated into this composite top 10 we are putting together. Uh, and we'll see you in 2020. Absolutely. And now I'm happy to be joined by the Rewinds animation slash Disney slash Pixar correspondent, Joe Morgan. Joe, thanks for being here. Of course, Josh. I, um, as I, uh, told you going into this, this was going to be a very painful process for me because it was such a good year for movies. This yeah. Year, more so. so than just about anyone else I've been talking to as we prepare to record all these segments, it seems like you really slaved away and this was a laborious process for you. So <laughs> a- as you were going through this and putting so much thought into it, did you have any big picture takeaways about the year in movies or was it just like, wow, this was actually a really good year in movies? Cause that was kind of my takeaway when I actually stepped back and actually like looked at my entire list of the things I'd seen this year. Yeah, no, this year was really great because it just felt like there was a lot of good, like Disney's slate was obviously like filled with sequels and IP, like many of which that we discussed on the pod this year. But like there were just so many like awesome original movies. And uh, yeah, I just I remember last year, especially, I don't know, I just felt like I was kind of grasping more at some of the things I saw last year. Whereas this year, I'm just like, oh, my gosh, like, I'm so sad that I'm going to have to cut this. But uh, yeah, no, I just really enjoy doing this every year. So um yeah, I was looking forward to it, and then uh, had to make some hard cuts. So. Yeah, as I think <laughs> I, I told you before you did it, like I feel pretty strongly about what I have in my top ten, but there's like another ten after that, and if any of them had been like, a, if any of them were in someone else's top ten, I'd be like, that's a great pick, good for you, because uh, mm-hmm. I, 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 the year in movies for me was that deep as far as there being like twenty movies I felt like really strongly about. So uh, I'm. Uh, it seems like we kind of came to a similar conclusion. So, uh, Joe, what was your number 10 movie of 2019? Uh, my number 10 movie of 2019 was Jordan Peele's Us. Ah, okay. So it was a movie that I really liked, but I don't know if I quite liked it on the level of Get Out. I thought maybe, you know, I, for me, I really liked the performances, and I, I just have mad respect for someone like Jordan Peele that, like, does stuff in, like, an original manner. But I was, like... You know, maybe if I think a little too hard about this, like, actual background and all the – everything that went into this conceit at the end, it kind of, like, uh, made me scratch my head a little bit. Like, I still really like the movie, but what about it worked the most for you? Yeah, so the reason that this made it onto my list over some other things that are nominated for Oscars or whatever else, um, I truly think that Lupita Nyong'o gave the performance of the year. And yeah, uh, one of so yeah. what the hell Academy? Why no Oscar? <laughs> Explain right. yourself. Like, I was really disappointed when she didn't get a Best Actress nomination because I just really thought her playing uh, Addie and then Addie's Shadow, which I, I tether. can't tether. Yeah, Addie's tether. When I think about the year and the things that really affected me or the things that really assaulted my senses this year was just her in that movie and just she's so powerful and so captivating to look at and just the performances like really disarming and yet really kind of gets at, uh, you know, the core of what Jordan Peele was trying to say with that movie, like the movie uh, as a whole, I really enjoyed the atmosphere of it. The concept was really interesting, but it is one of those things where if you pull the thread, then parts of it start to unravel quite a bit. But, uh, yeah, just as far as inclusion in this list, I just thought Lupita Nyong'o performance of the year, 
I have to represent her somehow on this list. That's totally so. fair. I don't know if there's a moment that's going to like stick with me more than like the first time uh, her tethered speaks. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and that, 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 that's just like such a, uh, it's like a seared into my mind, like what that sounded like, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And just, gosh, like give her more lead roles. That's all. I just want more lead roles for Lupita because she's amazing. And like that just shows that she, I mean, she honestly could do anything. So, yeah. Did they even nominate her for a Golden Globe? I don't even think they did, you know? Uh, no, yeah, no Golden Globe either. I know she got some critics groups love yeah, and I'm stuff sure like that. Did. Yeah. I mean, dang, like, I feel like looking back, we're going to regret not awarding that, you know, especially if we're going to, like, nominate Glenn Close for, like, The Wife and we're, we're going to put Renee Zellweger in for Judy, which are good performances just in movies that aren't so great that, the you know, we couldn't honor Lupita Nyong'o for uh, Lupita Nyong'o. Sorry, say that twice fast um, <laughs> for an Oscar this year. I just think it's a real shame, but. I agree. Like I said, like maybe some of those threads you can pull bothered me more than it did other people. Though again, I still think I gave the movie like four out of five stars in Letterbox. But I, I, I'm totally here for like making call like that performance is good enough to vault the movie there. What is your number yeah. nine? Uh, my number nine is an animated film called I Lost My Body. Yeah, which... I've been looking forward to learning a little more about this because it's just one I just didn't quite get the time to do yet. I will do it before the Oscars. So I want to hear from you. What about this movie? Uh, really spoke to you because i think it's a i think it's a little different it's a to, to be a foreign animated movie to make this much noise during award season there must be something pretty special about it yeah there's just a beauty and honestly it's simplicity you know it's a movie without giving too much away basically at the beginning of the movie there's a severed hand in a medical lab that escapes and is trying to find its body and um it's a movie that really talks about destiny and like the path that we're on and like are we you know like a lot of a lot of the sense uh a lot of movies this year a recurring thing i saw was like your station in life like where you are in life and this movie really profoundly deals with like are we destined for something or do we get to choose our own path carbonal path and it doesn't in a very uh touching unusual way you know it's just um it really just uh I really want to applaud Netflix this year for investing in hand-drawn animation as well, because this and then uh, Klaus also, which was a great little Christmas movie that deservedly got an Oscar nomination as well. You know, it's an art form that really needs to make a comeback in the featured form. And um, the things that they do creatively, visually, and I Lost My Body are just really fascinating and uh, really surprising and things that you don't usually see. And then to see it in that hand-drawn format uh, – was just really, you know, touching. And, yeah. I don't think yeah. it'd be given too much away for you to answer this, but uh, some people wrongly are very afraid of subtitles. It's a foreign movie, but you just said it's about a hand. Is it like a movie that is in, is it a silent movie or no dialogue or uh, what are we looking so, at? Or are you going to be listening to a lot of French? Uh, basically the movie's dubbed and dubbing and animation is a little easier to handle because you can alter lip sync and animation and stuff. Right, so it's right. not as... And uh, Dev Patel is actually uh, the English dub for the lead character, uh, which I oh. just learned when I was looking at the cast today. But uh, the movie kind of follows tear parallel threads. There's one of the hand trying to find his body. And then the other parallel thread is about the person when he still has his hand. So, um, yeah, there's like a good mix of dialogue and stuff in there. And it's only an 81-minute movie. And 
uh, definitely just one of the better, more surprising uh, movies I saw this there year. There you go. So if anyone's like afraid because they hear foreign or they hear animated or you just only have so many t- so many hours in the day, it's not that long. It's actually dubbed in English, and it's it seems like a really interesting conceit and probably unlike what you normally think of when you go to animated movies. So I'm very much looking forward to checking it out. Uh, Joe, what's your number eight of the year? Uh, my number eight movie of the year is A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood. All right, I think this is this maybe I don't know. You might be the first one to mention this one. I'm not really sure. Yeah, so I I don't really know if I even ever talked to you that much about what was the documentary the year before. Uh, oh, uh, won't you be my neighbor? Won't you be Won't you be my neighbor? Yeah, so I I don't know. Are you a big Mr. Rogers guy, or did something else just connect with you because uh, you're a big Tom Hanks fan? Uh, yeah, so big Tom Tom Hanks fan, and I was a huge fan of the performance. I'm so glad he got his first Oscar nomination in like 20 years. It it seems, mm-hmm. uh, but. Uh, yeah, I watched Mr. Rogers a little bit as a kid. I was definitely more Sesame Street around that time. But uh, the main thing that struck me about the movie, other than Tom's performance, is I feel like we live in a very oh, – like we're in a very angry time right now. So what, do you mean? Nice. what do you mean? Everything's great. There's nothing wrong. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, we're, we're in a very angry time, and it's very hard to deal with that anger. And I know personally I struggle with – uh, especially as this movie touches on uh, resentment of people who wrong me. And uh, to see a movie that just so delicately and uh, really lays bare, like getting over resentment and forgiving and stuff, it just, it really touched me, you know, it was like one of the two or three movies, two, three, four movies this year that made me actually cry in the theater, you know? So yeah, I just, I don't know. Like I really liked the angle they took with it. You know, it wasn't a straight up, as you and Graham mentioned on the uh, on your past episode uh, covering this movie, like it really uh, it wasn't a straight up Fred Rogers story. It was more of like Fred Rogers coming into somebody else's life. Uh, you know, of course, it's based off of the real life journalist Tom Juno, who's a different named character in the movie. Um, but uh, yeah, and then I guess the one other thing I say about it too is that um, as someone who works in children's entertainment, I think. There's, it's easy to sort of be dismissal of things aimed at kids or things that are designed for children when really you can take things that are designed that seem designed for children and take the optimism and idealism of them and really apply them to any situation in life. So taking that Mr. Rogers philosophy and applying it to a man who hates his estranged father and his middle-aged uh, journalists, you know, I just found that really touching and uh, really profound. Yeah, so. Joe already echoed a lot of uh, what I really liked about that movie, but I think it's interesting that you made the comment out being dismissive of children's entertainment because one of the most interesting things I thought about the documentary "Won't You Be My Neighbor" from 2018 was just uh, Mr. Rogers himself was like dismissive of a lot of the entertainment because he thought it, you know, it, it really talked down to kids and wasn't and, mm-hmm. and could and could address more interesting themes and uh, and teach more important lessons than what a lot of the children's entertainment of that time was when he was just kind of starting to show out. So. Uh, even though I never watched Mr. Rogers as a kid, it's kind of funny just by investing all this time in these movies the last couple of years that, like, I have a great respect for what the guy did. Uh, and I think both both the movie and the documentary captured that well, but do their own thing, which I really respect. Yeah, one other point. Yeah. Uh, Tom Hanks, I love you. Mario Heller, I love you. Um, yeah, just she's great. I think that I can't wait to see what she does next. So Yeah. So, Joe, what is your number seven movie of the year? My number seven movie of the year is The Farewell. Ah, it's my number two. So what really uh, struck a chord with you about The Farewell, which is strikes many chords because it's a very moving movie? Yes. Um, first of all, just the whole 
uh, you know, the moral question about, uh, you know, do you tell a family member that they're dying if it's just going to do more harm than good? Yeah, and the so cultural it's difference. really, it's really interesting. It's something <laughs> I never thought about too. It's like, wow, like, what, would you, what would I want in that situation if I'm the grandma? You know? Yeah, exactly. And like, I love, I love a movie where I can learn something. And uh, I can be moved by it and I can, you know, legitimately cry, <laughs> you know. And um, for those of you who don't know my personal story, I guess, you know, just dealing with the distance of family. Like I live in California and the rest of my family is like on the East Coast in Georgia and stuff. And so and, you know, that's that does not compare at all to China, the United States uh, in a grander scheme. But, you know, just being very uh, physically distant from your family and then. Uh, going back home is always like a very emotionally fueled time because it's people you haven't seen in a while and you really want to maximize all your time. And then just seeing it in a situation like uh, Aquafina's character deals with in this movie, really just the, the emotionally charged nature of it and trying to, you know, do everything you can and juice everything you can out of that time together uh, just really uh, struck me in a very personal way, struck a nerve. And, um, yeah, I just no. Yeah. I, I I really love this movie. Yeah, someone has talked a lot on the podcast. If people want to go back and listen to it, that I did with Hannah about how I had all my grandparents till I was twenty six years old and lost two pretty quick. And one was almost a similar situation where like it looked like she, she my grandma could have lived for a bit longer and uh, not been done for the wiser. But they did end up telling her uh, kind of what her and she passed well before the prognosis and she didn't suffer too much so after that point so it was good but like it was i was constantly kind of just looking inward the whole movie too so it was a very moving experience also pretty cool well first of all again screw you academy shut it out at the oscars uh but thank you, you know, yes. but but uh it's funny like you know it sh- shit almost like more than a year and a half ago uh we did the second or third episode of this podcast on oceans eight and i'd never even heard of aquafina and now she was yeah. giving like one of my favorite performances in a drama of the year after that yeah. summer she was in oceans eight and crazy resagent so uh, it's really cool, but ironically enough, we're now recording this on a night where her new show is about to premiere on Comedy Central in two minutes, as of the moment I'm saying these words. So uh, pretty cool she can vacillate between doing something like a drama like that, a Comedy Central show, and then she's going to be in Sang-Chi, and she was in Jumanji The Next Level. So uh, oh. she did blow it up, and I mean, everything she's done since Ocean's 8, I've liked more than what she did in Ocean's 8. So I'm just really impressed with everything she's done and I really wish she'd ended up getting a best actress nomination or Sal Jusen should have gotten a best supporting actress nomination or yes. Lu, Lu Long an original screenplay nomination or a director nomination or anything. Cause that movie deserved better. Uh, Joe, what is your number six? Uh, my number six movie of the year is once upon a time in Hollywood. Ah, that is my number eight. <laughs> nice. Uh, yeah. So I guess that this one is, uh, like, it's, it's a movie that I just really wanted to live in, I guess. Like, I don't know. Like, well, you do live in Los Angeles. So what did, did yes. you, I, 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 when I did the podcast I did with my friend Josh, who lives in Orlando, you actually live in Los Angeles and they filmed it there. But they as someone who's now at least become familiar, I'm assuming, with some of uh, the spots that they filmed this movie in. And just was it even more impressive to you than it probably is to someone like me that they like convincingly turned it in in 1969? Yeah, no, it really did seem because like, you know, I. Like I, I drive past that Cinerama theater all the time, you know, in Hollywood there and stuff. And yeah, it's pretty wild. And, um, I guess like one of the things I really enjoyed and like, you know, as I said, maybe I want to live in, it's just very, 
like the world of it. You can tell that like Quentin Tarantino just has like this huge affinity for what Hollywood used to be or what the LA area used to be. And I guess being out here and being around and living and working all over the place, it seems like I really love like the older Hollywood, uh, Los Angeles stuff, you know, like I try to find like older restaurants and things. Cause like so much of LA culture now, it feels like is there's like all these pop-up restaurants and like, things are getting smoothed out to more like modern designs and everything. And you still have like these pockets of old LA here and there, which is really great too. But, um, yeah, aside from that, like it might be like my favorite Leonardo DiCaprio performance. I'd say a lot. Yeah. And I, I know that's, um, I know I'm probably forgetting something. I know that may be blasphemous to some people, but just, I don't know. He like really gets at something here that I just find absolutely delightful. Like he's playing a sad, trailer. he's kind of playing a sad sack in a way, which is new for him. Yeah, right. Exactly. Like the whole trailer scene's wonderful. Uh, I love, I love when he's filming the TV show with, uh, Timothy, uh, Timothy Oliphant, mm-hmm. uh, and just how he messes up and everything. And that's how this, this is really long take. Like, I just think he's wonderful in it, and Brad Pitt's great too. And if this is a movie that finally gets Brad Pitt his Oscar, then good. Like, it seems like that's uh, where it's exactly. headed. He's giving a lot of charming speeches when he keeps accepting all these awards, which is probably only going to help him as the, <laughs> they they vote for the Oscar winners. You know? Yeah, but uh, yeah, <laughs> exactly. So hopefully Brad finally gets his Oscar. But uh, for this total, I mean, I think it's it's up there with my favorite Tarantino movies. It's just um, it's a really good movie to just hang out in and. I know it's going to reward repeat viewings and uh, yeah, you know, I just enjoyed it overall. And I really enjoyed like the optimistic ending to it. Cause I remember first hearing about this movie and he's making a movie about, you know, the Sharon Tate murder and stuff. And I was just like, yeah, the first oh. press releases were very perplexing. You know, I couldn't, I don't even yeah. know if I could have envisioned this movie when you just hear, Oh yeah. It's Manson murders. I was like, what? Huh? And yeah, make a fun hangout movie. Okay, cool. <laughs> right. And as a fan of Inglorious Bastards, which might be my favorite Tarantino, like I was kind of like secretly hoping, like, can we please get an alt history where we don't have to see this happen? Yeah. And then like that's that's what we got. So, um, your wish. yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah, it was it was a good time. I liked it. And if it were to end up as Best Picture winner, I would I would be pretty happy about it, even though things don't seem to be trending that way right now. So, no, but I would also be happy with that as well. What's your number five? Uh, my number five movie of the year is Little Women. Ah, okay. That is also my number five. Great. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah, so you just uh, saw this the uh, other day. So, uh, yes. There's those dumb narratives out there that, like, oh, men aren't seeing this movie, but we are men. We saw this movie and we liked yes. it. So, <laughs> you as a man, how did you connect to this movie about a bunch of teenage girls? What, 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 really, uh, what really resonated about it with you? Uh, this movie was incredibly moving. You know, I think that my. I've seen the 1994 version of Little Women several times because um, it was a favorite of my little sisters growing up. And That's right. You, I actually, think have, you actually have sisters. I don't have sisters. <laughs> oh, yes. Uh, yeah, so I'm the middle child of okay. two I, I have a younger sister and an older sister. Yeah. And, um, yeah, like just, you know, the the inner – the interplay of the of the siblings kind of made me think about some experiences with my sisters, but uh, specifically my little sister's love of the '94 Little Women. I I don't know. I just really enjoyed the performances in this one a lot more. Uh, easy so, to say when you have this cast and Greta Gerwig. Have but. you read the, Have you read the book? Uh, no, I haven't. I okay. haven't read. I was going to be curious if you had. I was just wanting to ask as a writer, like how 
impressed were you with being able to actually do a fresh adaptation of a book that's so old that's already been adapted so many times but luckily like it's probably worked out for the better i think i maybe nitpicked a little more than i probably should have as some as it sometimes happens when you read a book right before you see the movie which i did Uh but like then i saw it again and it probably clicked into place even more for me which is why it ended up so high in my top 10 so Mm -hmm. i um i've actually i've actually had the uh good fortune of reading the script for this movie as well. Huh. And on the first page, uh, Greta Gerwig just writes this letter about her connection to the material and how much, uh, it spoke to her and got her through like parts of her childhood and stuff. And, uh, just going into it with, uh, that knowing fully like her love of the material and stuff and to see her honor the story in that way, I found really, touching and um i think saoirse ronan's great in this i think Florence Pugh is great in this uh easy things to say about two really good actresses who are both younger than me i think which is weird yeah yeah saoirse ronan is, is 25 and has been nominated for four oscars what are you doing with your life joe <laughs> <laughs> uh, not, not nearly as much <laughs> yeah but, uh no i this movie was very moving and uh i will say too like uh, I want to take this opportunity briefly just to applaud Laura Dern for having one of the better 2019s of any actress or actor between Big Little Lies and Marriage Story and uh, Little Women. She just, I don't know, two, three very good, very different performances. And just, uh, yeah, she's absolutely wonderful in this. Yeah. So. Yeah. Uh, yeah, no, I agreed. She sounds like she's going to win the Oscar for Marriage Story, but it would be equally deserving if it had got she'd gotten nominated for Little Woman. What's your number four? My number four movie of the year is Toy Story 4. And that's my number six. So uh, yes. <laughs> people can go listen to our podcast we did with Adam about that. But uh, I guess I, I guess I'll just quickly uh, confirm with you then before we move on. It's, so it sounds like it would be your pick for best animated feature? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. It has to be All Due Respect, I Lost My Body, which is a wonderful piece of art and a great story in and of itself. Toy Story 4 is the best animated movie of the year. Um, it is phenomenal. It's a movie that earned its existence, and which was uh, somewhat rightfully, maybe not so rightfully, questioned from the moment we learned it was going to be a thing. Because we yes. all thought we all thought Toy Story three is great. Why would you do that? But at the same time, like you know, we thought maybe we should give these people the benefit of the doubt, and they proved us they they proved us right for those of us who said, "All right, give them a shot." You know. Yes, exactly. This movie, it's. I, I mentioned this back on the podcast with Adam yeah. we did this summer, but. Like Andrew Stanton, you know, one of the founding Pixar fathers who, uh, who co-wrote the script said, uh, like Toy Story 3 really completed Andy's story and Toy Story 4 really completed Woody's story. And um, I'll probably spend the most time on this entry on the list because I'm very passionate about this movie and I feel the need to fight for it because I feel like people are kind of underrating it or overlooking it this year. But, you know, throughout the uh, basically, yeah, I think I already said this, but. Toy Story 3 completed Andy's story. Toy Story 4 completes Woody's story. The big thing with the first three Toy Story movies is Woody is always focused on the importance of being a toy and the importance of being there for your kid. And that is something that they really hammer home beautifully in the first three movies. And then this one's the first time where Woody has really outlived his usefulness to this. You know, he's supposed to have this second happy existence of Bonnie. And then Bonnie just suddenly doesn't want him anymore. doesn't like him anymore. And, and it really is a comment on like, you know, empty nest parenting. If you think about it, you know, like there's this one part where what he's walking down the street with Porky and he says, you know, your kid goes on to do things that you'll never see. And, 
you know, I just thought that that was a really touching spin on what it means to be there for your kid as a toy. And then, you know, in the metaphorical sense, what it means to be there for the parent as a child, you know, and, uh, I don't know. That just really resonated with me. Um, overall, it's a very funny movie. It's hilarious. Yeah, it's, 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 cra- it's, cra- it's crazy that Forky like is, uh, way more than just the meme that maybe we thought he was going to be when we first yeah. saw the trailer. And, um, gosh, I, this might be a hot take, but this is actually Tom Hanks's best performance in 2019 I, is, uh, voicing Woody in this movie. So no, I don't know if it's a hot take or not, but I mean, uh, I, 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 you can't totally disagree with that. He was great. And he's great in this, but you know, I mean, it's the end of Woody's story and he, and he certainly didn't yeah. uh, just mail it in and collect a paycheck. I think he certainly, uh, <laughs> get, get, makes us emotional. I think Maggie agrees. Uh, yes. <laughs> Joe, what is your number three movie of 2019? Uh, my number three movie of 2019 is Marriage Story. Ah, okay. So uh, you're just going uh, one, a uh, Randy Newman one-two punch right there. Yes, exactly. <laughs> this is a Randy Newman, uh, Randy Newman list here. Well, he got well, so I, I guess he's he got nominated twice this year, but he got nominated for song for Toy Story four and four. for score yeah. for Marriage Story, which is a um, one of the more most memorable scores of the year. Which I mean, is just one of the many great things about this movie. Yeah. Uh, like, by the way, the thing- it, by the way, it's my number ten. Okay. The thing with marriage story this year as uh, watching it as a married person uh, is just a very interesting. Uh, yeah, like I'm very, I've, I've been very attentive to like people who watch this who are married. Did you watch it with your wife? Too. No, I, I did watch it by <laughs> myself. Uh, no, it's it's definitely you know I talked about having some introspection with the farewell, but this is the movie this year where I watched it and I really like looked hard at myself, you know, like you see, you know, cause clearly Adam driver, Scarlett Johansson, they're both fantastic in this movie. They're both so good. You see like the love they have for each other, but then you have to look at like the other parts of a marriage as well. And like what works and what doesn't. And just some of these things, like you just really take a look at them and you're like, am I doing this well enough? Or am I, uh, Am I listening to the, am I listening to her needs the way I should be? Things like that. And just, it was a movie that really, uh, I don't know. It just stayed with me. It stays with me now. You know, I, I think I watched it when it first dropped on Netflix and I still haven't worked up the courage to rewatch it, I guess, because it was <laughs> such a raw experience for me. Yeah. I've had, but, I've, had, I've had that kind of experience with movies before too, for sure. Yeah. And, um, oh my gosh, just Adam driver who also had a wonderful year. Yeah. I just, no, I get it. He was incredible. He gave an incredible performance. I'm, I, I'm really not even sure how to describe it to people too when I try to do so. It's I, so I, I don't blame you for being at a loss for words. It's a very powerful actor movie for sure. Yeah, this this is one I'll go back to. And the thing is, is I'm not even I'm not even a huge Noah Baumbach fan. Like I I really do like Francis Ha a lot, uh, but other as the rest of his filmography, like it's uh, it's a little hit and miss for me because. Something something sharper like Greenberg or The Squid and the Whale or things I just didn't really care for. But then, like, it seemed he, you know, I, I like the Meyerowitz stories okay. But uh, this one. Have you, have you seen Mistress America? No, I haven't. Oh, it's delightful. You should watch it. But, okay. uh, but I mean, <laughs> I, I, but, I mean it, it gets a little wacky at, at a couple parts, but, like, it's 
I don't know. I, I, I have a hard time feeling you would. It's not. It's like a. It's more of a feel good thing, like uh, as opposed to what what Squid and the Whale and Greenberg are. Uh, but I'd highly recommend it. And he, that, that's one. That, that's the one he co-wrote with Greta Gerwig. The other one he co-wrote with Greta Gerwig. But yeah, right there with you on Marriage Story. I, I, I wonder. It might have even been in my top three. Also, if the kid hadn't been so stupid. And and not known how, not known how to go to the bathroom despite like being like ten and acting like he was five. I'm still mad about it. Uh, what, what 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 and what, what is your number two? Uh, my number two is Knives Out. That's my number three. <laughs> this movie is brilliant. I love this movie so much. I feel like this is the movie this year that I have I I have borderline harassed people in my life to go see. Like it is so much fun. It is so smart. There's just so many. Every it feels like every setup has a payoff. Like the ensemble is fantastic. I I am in love with this movie. I I've seen it in the theater multiple times. I am going to purchase it for home video, which is an insane thing to say in 2020. <laughs> uh, I love this movie. I am a member of the Ryan Johnson cult. I I just I I'm so excited that we're getting a sequel to this in the Benoit Blanc stories i i am obsessed with this movie i will talk about this movie for days and weeks and months at a time i love it yeah the, um, the, the biggest thing that i <laughs> I, I, well, shoot, I think this is this has already been on a this has already been on a on a few list too because uh fred also had it th- at three like i did and mm-hmm. uh actually he's the only one whose list has popped up on so far but like i mean i think what i said what, what i said on the podcast originally and what i said with him is that like it's just very cool that like i mean we don't not that we get a whole lot of whodunits anymore but it feels like it's still like a familiar, a, f- a familiar setup, and he still makes it feel like very fresh. And by like actually kind of telling you how it happened like halfway through, but then yeah, <laughs> actually, but actually like still the fact that he does that, and yet there's still so much other mystery. It shows like how great of a storyteller he is. You know, mm-hmm. this is the most fun I had at the movies all year. Yeah, he just like. <laughs> to reveal it halfway through and then yeah like just like you said i'm just gonna repeat what you said and then flip that out on its head again like i just i i adore this movie you know, so I, much. and i would have spent like so much more time with any one of these characters if he had just chosen to do so or cho- I, I not that maybe not a whole movie's worth of time but like i could have spent mm-hmm. like so much more time like uh with the with the with the alt-right teenager or with uh yeah. or, or with tony or tony collette's influencer or you know uh chris or, or just a whole entire i could have had three more scenes of like chris evans and uh Catherine langford just sniping at each other just mm-hmm. like there's so many different fun character combinations and such an a great group of characters that he conceived of and this it's and it's also just great that like such a wholly original idea is being rewarded at the box office like the way this movie has like what what is 250 million something like that you know yeah it's still not enough it should be making more money i don't (laughs) know why people aren't seeing this the production design is beautiful just that house the house oh my gosh it's wonderful down to the coffee mug like the last reveal of the coffee mug Mm. oh man it's it's wonderful like i i'm like I'm like bored. I'm like giddy talking about it. Like, it's, yeah, I mean, it's just great. I mean, it has all these fun characters yeah. that are just fun to watch. Like, uh, their personalities intersect, but at the same time, like, you know, he finds a way to like give the movie a little bit of a message too. And that's mm-hmm. it's just very impressive that he cramps all that into a movie that is uh, not that more, not that much more than two hours. It's actually made two hundred eighty million dollars, so I shortchanged it some there. So uh, <laughs> it's great. And also, uh, one thing the Academy got right, given Ryan Johnson an Oscar nomination. And I mean, some oh, people were predicting he might have gotten into Best Picture, which would have been great but like i'm just happy like at least that happened that was a great thing so i wish it had gotten into the best picture but yes i i'm glad i got that recognition uh for ryan johnson because it is wonderful yeah. joe um, what's your number one i think i know what it's gonna be 
Yes, so my number one movie of the year is Parasite. That's also my number one. Yes. Uh, Very much a movie of the moment. And I've heard the interviews of Bong Joon-ho, and he talks about how he had really just made a movie about South Korea, but I just really think it gets at a lot of what people all around the world are feeling about the the 1% of it all, you know, just people who are getting quashed. Uh, Society, you know, is getting just pushed down and quashed by the richest among us, you know, and um, gosh, it just, it feels like such a perfect movie from the moment. And as you remember seeing it and just being absolutely blown away by it. So, and I really hope that the, the momentum of the SAG win can take it to the best picture at the Oscars, because especially after the disappointment of Green Book winning last year, I was just like, if they were to name Parasite best picture winner this year, then like all, all would be forgiven, at least for me. So, yeah, you know, it's, uh-huh. it's weird that the SAG like gave it best ensemble, but didn't nominate any of the actors individually and then yes, didn't and, and, and then didn't nominate any of them for acting at the oscars it's very confusing but you know maybe that just shows that people are hopefully it shows that now people are going to like give it even more credit in the next few days before whenever it is the actual uh voting for oscar nominations closes and or oscar winners closes and maybe it'll push it over the top because it seems like there is a lot of love for it whether or not maybe best picture or if not maybe best director or something it, it, it deserves something at the oscars so hopefully Hopefully they come through in that way. Joe, thank you for being such a consistent presence on the podcast and a great guest in 2019. I look forward to having you on the podcast in 2020. And I know we got some unique uh, original ideas coming from Pixar. And as people yes. now see, like from Joe's top 10, he had two animated movies, but a bunch of live action ones too. So maybe he'll join us for a live action movie or two as well. Joe, thank you very much. And uh, we'll see you back here with our next guest. <laughs> All right, and now we are joined by my regular guest and friend, Daniel Lima, to talk about his top 10 for the year, which I have a feeling might have like less overlap than anyone else's top 10 is going to have. Uh, and cause I feel like more more this year than most. Maybe, or maybe less overlap with mine. I don't know. We'll see. But <laughs> in doing this exercise, Daniel, I'm going to ask you the quick question I'm asking everyone. As you finalize your top 10, I know you've been on a little bit of a 2019 binge over the last week to be able to take part in this exercise. Did you have any other uh, final thoughts on the year of 2019 and movies that kind of came across your mind as you were just putting the finishing touches on your list uh not really it's been a good year it's been a surprisingly good year like Mm -hmm. my entire top 10 i gave like five stars to which is that's never happened before i have a lot of movies that i think are some of the best of the decade coming in you know just beating the clock I also have some movies that I deplore in a in a very passionate way. So, like you know, it's been it's a, it's been a year of extremes for me. But you know, the way I say it, any person who says that oh, the year in movies hasn't been that good, they just haven't seen enough. That's that's what I say. Yeah, no, I, I that's what I, I I've been telling everyone that this ended up being like a really good year in movies, uh, in my opinion. Like there, there is like my ten through twenty, and a lot of years could have easily any of them could have easily been in my top ten in other years. So I'm, I, I was very happy with how the year turned out. So uh, without any further ado, what was your number ten movie of last year? I gotta have, I have one request. I'm yes. gonna ask that I do an honorable mention just because there's one movie that is on the borderline, and we'll get into that in a bit. But sure. uh, real quick, real quick, my honorable mention would be the standoff at Sparrow Creek. This was okay. the movie about a uh, militia group, a white wing militia group, who after they find out that somebody, a person, had shot up a police funeral, they figure out that one of their members must have done it, and so they put one of the the, the second in charge has to go interview everyone and try to figure out who could have 
committed that crime. Uh, I think that – I believe it was the I think you first... might have talked about this on one of our recommendation corner segments on one of your other podcasts we did, but I didn't realize that you had it that high in your list for the year. Oh, yeah. It was pretty high. Um, I believe this was the man's – the director, uh, Henry Dern- Dunham's first feature. And, you know, it's just a really well-done procedural. Uh, it looks really great, really naturalistic performances. Uh, it really pulls you into this mystery and this mindset. I can understand why some people might be turned off by the right wing of it all like it is a bit of a right-wing fantasy but um i thought that it was actually done very realistically handled very well it didn't like try to push a you know toxic message and it's just you know you got to respect somebody who's able to sit down and knock something like this out all right cool well what's what's your number 10 then my number 10 is going to be the vietnamese movie fury okay fury is the story of a mother who retires from her life of crime in the big city to become a bouncer in rural Thailand, in a rural part of Thailand. But then her daughter is kidnapped, and she has to go back into that old way of life in order to go find her. So as you can – if you're thinking while you hear that, wait a second, this sounds like John Wick. Yeah, it is basically John Wick or Taken, you know. Uh, It's that kind of movie. But – it boasts two really great performances. Uh, the lead is, I believe her name was uh, Yo. It was, uh, oh, I forgot her name. I apologize. But she is one of my, I think she gives one of the top five performances by an actress this year. Uh, Kat V plays her daughter, and she gives one of the best performances from a supporting actress this year. It's got really fantastic action cinematography i mean action choreography the cinematography is actually very it's very influenced by john wick you know a lot of the purple and blue neon hues uh very giallo-esque uh reminiscent of the italian thrillers of the 70s you know it's a simple story it doesn't reinvent the wheel but it just manages to do everything so perfectly and add that emotional resonance that a lot of action movies lack even the great ones that I, I really respect it a lot. That's good. I don't want you to say much more because I doubt too many people have seen it. But quickly, before we move on, uh, where did you watch it online? If someone, because I doubt many people listening have watched it, and if they decide they want to check it out, do you remember where you can watch yep, it? It's on Netflix. It's okay. on Netflix, y'all. Go ahead and see it. Oh, and I should point out that you have seen the lead before because she plays Rose's sister at the beginning of The Last Jedi. Ah, okay. Interesting. Yeah. All she's right. really great. What's your number nine? My number nine is going to be John Wick 3, Parabellum. Ah, that is my number uh, three, uh, four. Excuse me. It's a good choice. It's a yeah. good choice. I know a lot of people have like you know been a little bit down on it, saying that oh, I think that it's just weaker than number two. And I agree to an extent. I believe that the narrative is a little bit more jumbled. It doesn't have the focus of certainly one, which was the most focused out of all of them. But it makes up for that by being one of the most brilliant action movies in terms of choreography uh, that I've seen. Ever. It is so ambitious. I literally teared up watching some of the action in this movie <laughs> because it was so gorgeous. Wow. That knife, the knife fight where he's like, you know, they're all the hitmen are like, you know, trying to get at him. Yeah. And he starts throwing knives around uh, that the dogs he and Halle Berry take down like dozens of people with the aid of dogs. They're jumping over walls and it's insane the amount of work that is being put in they're pulling influences from they're devising new things they're pulling influences from other cinema I, we all know about the motorcycle chase scene in john wick 3 which is inspired by um uh, the villainess the south korean movie from i think a year or two ago uh it, it's just it's a series that seems hell-bent on topping itself in terms of action from film to film yeah. and i 
I just, it's brilliant. I, I it actually, it hasn't shown up on anyone else's list besides yours and mine, which I'm, I'm a little surprised about. But, you know, it's, it's not the typical kind of movie that around this time of year is people have forgotten about it as we're kind of in the heart of award season. But, I mean, I just, with the, each of the first two movies, I had certain things I could really nitpick a little bit, even though I really love both of those movies as well. And I don't know, th- to me, this was the best. And I don't know if I'm, I'm probably not, I, at this point, it's not looking like I'm going to have time to do like a, a year-end awards podcast. But if I do a, like an abbreviated version, I'm going to do a, a best scene section because that's like my one of my favorite things to talk about at the end of a movie year and i wouldn't know how to narrow it down with just so much of what is in this in john wick chapter three it's Mm. i mean it's great and there's just so many different inventive action sequences and it's just impressive that they found that many fresh uh new original sequences to just fill this movie with when they already had so many in the first two so even that first even that first action scene the one with the nba star i believe it was an nba player with uh, boban yep and you know that's a reference. That itself, in and of itself, is a little bit of a reference to uh, Game of Death, the uh, Bruce Lee movie that went uncompleted. You know when he died, uh, where you know he has a fight scene with Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Mm. Uh, you know they were clearly inspired by that when they did it, and it, it's just brilliant to watch. They're really trying to top themselves every single yeah. time they think up an action set piece, and I love it. Yeah. What's your number eight? My number eight's going to be Ad Astra. Ah, which okay. I didn't know you the, liked this one this much. Oh, yeah, I did. I did. I'm genuinely shocked by it, too, because the last James Gray movie I saw was, I believe it's Lost City of Zed. Z. And uh, I believe, well, it's pronounced Zed because it's like, you know, British. The uh. British pronounce it as Zed. They don't say Z. But it's Lost City of Zed. And like, it's, it's, that was really boring. I found it really boring. I found that it didn't really, it was an adventure movie or a, at least about an adventurer, but it failed to communicate the. Yeah. Because I think that he's just he has a very restrained filmmaking style, so it's hard for him to impart, uh, you know, excitement in an adventure. Here, though, it makes sense. His restrained style does make sense. It's a story of a man who has to journey to the end of the solar system in order to find somebody who might have uh, compromised the safety of the galaxy or whatever, you know. But I, I, I the, apparently James Gray really wanted to make a hard sci-fi movie, something that really, you know, uh, could have, you know, happened in real life, could happen in real life in the future, something grounded. Yeah, and all that commercial space travel stuff is, like, my favorite part. I'm like, this could actually happen at some point. This is wild. I love the world building. I love the attention to detail. But I also really love that there is a like he does manage to fully capture the emotional journey that the protagonist goes on. The protagonist is withdrawn, devoted to work to the detriment of his personal relationships. And throughout this journey, he has to confront, you know, the fact that, you know, how much he's lost out on, how much he's missed out on. Uh, it's very heart of darkness esque, I know, but like, I think that it's just brilliant. I thought it was brilliant. I, it really moved me when I saw it. And also I saw it in IMAX and they gave me a little patch that said Ad Astra Agency or whatever, the agency from the movie. Also, uh, also I should have known like a movie with space pirates. I feel like that's kind of something that you would be into. I, 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 now that oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That was actually, <laughs> that was actually quite a – I was surprised to see a, a pretty – good action set piece in a james gray movie who yeah. would have thought I, I i read an article somewhere about that whole entire sequence and just how they even had to film it like in a abandoned parking lot somewhere and they did a lot of effects like i don't know it's it, it, very impressive leveling up of this as far as the scope and size of a movie for him because he's really just an independent filmmaker for the most part you know lost city z was not cheap but like i mean this was just like a whole other level and i thought he was up to the challenge what's your number seven my number seven is going to be parasite Ah, okay, yeah. So, uh, I mean, what can I say that everyone else hasn't said before? I remember you in your review saying you wanted to have a contrarian take and you just couldn't. 
yeah, it's it's tough. You know, I have nothing to add that nobody else is going to say, but better. It's a great ensemble. I went in not knowing anything about what same, was going to happen. I didn't watch any of the trailers, uh, and I went in and I thought that I knew what was going to happen, uh, and I would be proven wrong again and again and again. The story takes so many wild turns. Uh, it's very unpredictable. But once you see the message coalesce, it becomes just riveting how he managed to pull it off. Yep, I agree. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not adding anything because every it's been on, I think it's shown up on everyone's list so far. So yeah, I have nothing, I'm really, I'm I have nothing to say. I have $50 riding on it winning Best Picture. So I'm really uh, praying for an upset. I mean, I, I, th- really I, I think there's still, there's still a chance. I mean, I'm, I'm kind of like just I'm, – I'm bracing myself and assuming it will be 1917 and then just hopefully maybe they'll pleasantly surprise me. Uh, what's your number six? My number six is going to be Avengers Endgame. Really? Okay. Yeah, I, 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 I knew you did like it, but I didn't know it, it, you liked it on that level. Oh, yes. Here's the thing. Look, I, I'm going to be brief on this, but I really, 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 really hate the conversation around Marvel amongst cinephiles. I really just hate it. I think that it's uh, I think it's duplicitous the way that people attack Marvel. Uh, so I you're, think that you're, you're not Team Marty like our friend Josh Brown. I am absolutely not <laughs> Team Marty. Team Martin Scorsese can suck a dick. I swear <laughs> to God. Like, he, like, I don't agree with the idea that just because it is mass massively commercial and it follows a certain formula that it can't be considered art or it's not worthy of consideration or indeed that it can't be better than films that are you know possess like a singular vision or whatever the fuck you value in art it's bullshit it's all art uh, i'd rather say that vines are art than avengers isn't but uh anyways um i think that this fully like accomplished you know what the marvel universe the mcu has been building towards i think that the thing that they do that people don't give enough credit for is that they've managed to build a cohesive narrative out of i think a dozen different films and series all running at the same time towards this point like it's it's a yeah. it's a tall order to manage and yet they managed to do it you know with this expansive ensemble they managed to uh fully reflect on the nature of these branching storylines and these characters who we've seen change over the course of a decade. Uh, there's, you know, it, a series of impressive action sequences. I'm not going to lie. I was tearing up throughout that final, <laughs> that final battle just because of the magnitude, the scale of, uh, bringing all these characters together. And I, didn't, them- I, I, I didn't tear up at the final sequence, but I, I almost got, I, I, as I said it on the podcast at the time, at the part where like all the superheroes end up, all of them end up coming out at the end to like back up Captain America. I almost like jumped out of my chair once I saw them all and just was felt compelled to say, let's fucking go. And I'm not never the guy that like yells out loud at Marvel movies. But the fact is that like they can create that kind of compulsion in someone like me that considers himself like a very proper moviegoer. I was like, all right, they did yeah. something right with all these movies, you know? Yeah, it's a very well-structured movie. You know, that first part where it's basically a drama that second part where it's a love letter to the movies that got us here to this mm-hmm. point and then that final third act with you know this big battle and i mean the, the the fallout of that battle i swear to god the 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 funeral scene i think is like the biggest dick swinging <laughs> like i managed we managed to pull this off uh and i i i felt I mean, I walked out that movie theater in a bit of a daze, man. I'm not going to lie. Walked out in the early morning light thinking, damn, they really managed to fucking do that. (laughs) Yeah, I I really genuinely love the movie. Uh, We're a little, you know, we're running short on time, so I can't get too much into it. But yeah, brilliant. All right. What's your number five? 
My number five is going to be Queen and Slim. All right. Well, we already talked about that one. Anything? Do you have anything new you want to add since we did the podcast, though, or pretty much? Yeah, the I same? just want to reiterate that there is an aspect of the movie that I do feel very conflicted about, but so much of it is done right that I'm willing to overlook it. Uh, it's it's brilliant. It's fantastic. It's the kind of black movie that I've always wanted to be to see. Uh, and yeah, everyone check it out. Don't listen to what other people tell you. Uh, yeah, Daniel and I did a podcast on that one, so we're not going to spend too much time on that. But I definitely recommend listening to it because it, it's a movie with that has like a has a lot to say, and I feel like there's like a lot of ways to talk about it. And uh, I think a lot of the discourse about it did get pretty heated and. But I, I, I think Daniel actually helped me see it in a better light after I, after I, because I was like very conflicted about it after I saw it, and I liked it better after we did the podcast. So I recommend listening to that. What's your number four? My number four is going to be the farewell. Ah, that's my number two. Ah, well, good taste, man. Yeah. The, so what, 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 what do you really like about the farewell? I, I don't think I realized that you had it that high. Oh yeah, like I'm going to admit that I saw this, you know, months ago, and I've seen hundreds and hundreds right. of movies since. So bear in mind that. But I thought that it was just a really moving portrayal of you know how we interact with family how we deal with loss how we deal with the inevitability of death and it's also despite all these like you know really heavy themes it's it's really charming it's really sweet it's really funny uh, aquafina turns in one of the finest performances of the year i believe she's on my you know best actress list mm-hmm. and uh the woman who plays her grandmother i forget her name Xiao Xuxin, yes, I thought something like that. Yeah, she, she, I think I have her down for best supporting actress of the year. Like, she's brilliant. Uh, it's a great cast all around, but those two are like standouts in a cast of standouts. Um, really sweet, really funny, really moving really honest yeah i think uh well so fred and joe had that at seven and eight respectively or, or eight and seven respectively on their list so you're mm. the, you, you have it the highest besides me so far and i think we have one other uh one other top 10 coming that might even have it higher so i'm sure that'll place very well and i, I mean i just really like it too as i've talked about i just have i kind of had a personal connection to the subject matter and i th- and that doesn't necessarily mean the movie's good just because you can relate to something so closely personally but i just think it was executed so well for like what lulu long wanted to do uh it wasn't like it might not have the biggest scope of a lot of these movies on our list but it set out to do what it wanted to do and it did it extremely well what's your number three my number three is going to be bad black oh what is so what's that that's that's you're probably the only one that's going to have that on a list so yeah uh, and there's a to their listeners what this is so this is a nigerian movie uh i'm sorry (laughs) i apologize this is a ugandan movie Hmm. they they don't fuck around with no this is uganda this is wakaliwood these are the same cats who made uh uh who killed captain alex this is actually i i think it's been called a sequel but it has nothing to do with any of the characters from captain alex Hmm. um and it's you know you know it's made on like a super super cheap budget i i the Captain Alex was made on a $400 budget. I can't imagine this was made for much more. Uh, tech, I guess it's the story of, you know, this gangster, this woman who becomes like a gangster in Uganda. And she, you know, has a vendetta against one of the uh, politicians in her village. In the meantime, there's this doctor who is, oh, I'm going to be real with you. I'm going to be real. I'm going to level with y'all. The story doesn't really matter here. Uh, this is a very... Very cheaply made, uh, not really well-made, well-crafted action movie, throwback love letter to American action cinema. But the thing is that they know it. They know that it's somewhat, you know, shoddily made. And so what they have 
is a VJ, a video DJ, who is basically riffing on the movie the entire time you watch it. You know, he's getting really hyped up in the action scenes. He's like making jokes about, oh, this guy, he's the Ugandan, he's the Ugandan Schwarzenegger. Yeah, you know, and he's throwing these ad libs and running jokes. It's just made to be a really, really good time. Uh, I prefer, uh, I do prefer Who Killed Captain Alex, which I consider to be one of the greatest movies ever made. I think I have that out like five of my all-time list. This, you know, a little bit of the novelty wears off, but the fact of the matter is it's so energetic. There's such a love for filmmaking in spite of their abilities that I, I can't help but just super, super love it. I will say that this technically might not be a 2019 release. It premiered back in 2016-17, and since then it's been hopping around festivals, doing showings at uh, the Museum of Modern Art in New York. It's been hopping around, but it only got a home video release last year. So I consider it 2019. Is this another Netflix thing? This one you can find on YouTube. They oh, put okay. it up for free, all on YouTube, uh on Christmas has like a little Christmas present and it, I highly recommend it. It's only like an hour long. Go ahead. Check it out. Y'all. What's your number two? My number two. It's gotta be a Benjamin, which was, which is on Netflix. Cause I actually watched it today. So what can you tell the people that can, to make them excited to go watch on Netflix? Cause it is very accessible. Now, Netf- this is a movie about a gangster who gets, uh, thrown into jail and his, you know, crime Lord brother tries to have him killed. And so, he manages to escape, and he's out for blood. He's out for revenge. Uh, this is another uh, VOD movie directed by Jesse V. Johnson, starring Scott Atkins. These two are two of the biggest names in action cinema today. They, Even though most people don't know their names, they are putting out the best work, highly consistent, furious, with brilliant choreography. They, they're masters at their craft. Avengement is probably the best collaboration that they've done thus far. Uh, Scott Adkins is allowed to be this, you know, really gritty, angry, uh, 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 what's, what's that? What's the rugged, rugged. (laughs) Yeah. Rugged, um, you know, angry Brit who's, you know, brutal and vicious and the action choreography, you know, uh, correlates to that. It's brutal. It's vicious. There are, I think like half the movie must be just fight scenes and they're all just very bone crunchingly satisfying. That's, that's literal, not just figurative when Daniel says that. Yeah. (laughs) There's a lot, there's a lot of, there is a lot of crunching of bones. Yeah. It's (laughs) great. And, uh, you know, he actually gives a little bit more of a dramatic performance than, you know, most, movies of this sort allow for. Uh, I think that the story is told in a very, you know, inventive way. It's told mostly through flashback, which at first I was like, what, what, what does this add to the story? But I find that it actually allows for a bit more of a payoff in the action, because if it was told chronologically, the story would have been, you know, really back-ended with a bunch of action, but instead this allows it to be dispersed in a very uh, uh, even way, so you're not getting too much exposition before you get to another fight scene. Uh, I think that it's just it's their best work. It's brilliant. If you love action cinema, you will probably love this. It's also, I think, less than 90 minutes, so it's you just want to have like a quick, uh, just fun, action-packed movie to get you through an hour and a half where you need something to do. Like It's a pretty easy watch, and it's very accessible, so definitely worth checking out if you're into that kind of stuff. All right, uh, Daniel, I'm, I already know what your number one is, but just go ahead and do it and put me out of my misery and try and justify this egregious choice you're about to make. 
the best movie, hands down, no competition, 2019. It's going to be Cats, man. It's got to be Cats. Look, Jesus man, Christ. I'm going to be real with you, man. I get so annoyed at the criticism for Cats. It's probably the most aggravated I've been with the movie going public as a whole that in a while. Because I think so much of the criticism is just, LOL, what even is this? They're cats, but they're people. They sing songs. Nothing really happens. LOL isn't that funny. I, you, 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 you haven't said anything that's untrue yet. <laughs> it's a criticism of not what it does, but what it is. And if you're going to do that, then I mean – don't see it. Any premise can be made into a great movie. And I think Cats is a great movie. And I have yet to see substantial criticism about what it actually does. I've never seen somebody say, oh, well, what did it do? He- what did it do? OK, I, 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 you can you, we could be all here all day with you taking on the critics. But what did it do that worked for you? I think that it's a it's a musical, first and foremost. That's a, that is a with, fact <laughs> with brilliant, absolutely sh- jaw-dropping, show-stopping musical numbers. I love the music, yes. You, lo- but you, you, also- you love introductions because this movie is like two hours of introductions. Yes, that is true. The concept <laughs> of the movie is that the – and the musical that it's based off, which has been around for 40 years, you know, but uh, is that these are cats. They're a tribe of cats living in London who are entering this kind of musical pageant in order for one of them to score a second life and get into heaven. It's mostly just an excuse – to have a bunch of musical numbers, which is also the premise for most goddamn musicals. Most musicals are this. If you look at any MGM musical, it's going to be mostly this. If you look at any Bugsy Berkeley musical from the 30s, it's going to be this. It's an excuse for you to have musical numbers. And if you don't like that, then I don't know. Like That's just that's just how the genre works. Now, it's I'm like, not, I'm, it's like I'm complaining not, about... I'm not predisposed to liking sung through musicals to begin with. They just really aren't my thing. But like... I just I, I don't know. I just wanted more of a plot. You know, I'm sorry. Well, here's the, uh, I guess that's fine. But also, that's not that that's not a that's not a criticism movie. It, that 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 in fact, in I, and of itself, doesn't make saying. the worst movie of the year. Like, that's uh, silly. Yeah. Now, the musical numbers themselves, they are brilliant. They are full of vision. They're well directed. They, uh, they you know, there's these they they, they, they take a, a lovely form. There's this musical number. I think the best in the movie is actually the one with uh, Rebel Wilson, where she's it's a this show stopping number where she's getting mice to do her bidding and do their own little musical number. She gets <laughs> the cockroaches to like, you know, go and start dancing all around on the kitchen table. All the while, the cats that are watching are taking these little dancing cockroaches and eating them as snacks. I think that it's a movie that has a very singular, unique vision that is put on display in such a such a jaw-dropping uh 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 uh, fantastic way the choreography is excellent it's very sensual in a way that i think a reflects how cats actually move it's a very physical performance and b you know it, it made me want to go see ballet it's beautiful to look at it's beautiful to actually watch what these people are doing well cats are doing i i love the music like i said uh i've never actually heard any of the music from the musical before this and i was like yeah this is all good stuff even the original song the uh the taylor swift song beautiful ghosts i've been listening to that nonstop, man it's some good stuff you do you you do you (laughs) (laughs) yeah i just i just i i have a beef with all the people who kind of just want to rip on the movie just because lol is fun i that that's the kind of criticism criticisms that i really really hate look i like i get enjoying a movie that you think is bad I don't really get I, 
I just don't really get why this movie is because nobody's ever been able to really justify that to me. Yeah, I'm probably not, really, gonna, I'm not. I'm not going to be able to do that too. I saw it while I was drunk. So yeah, it's well. It's a well crafted movie. You know, like if any other like there's a there's a there's a transition during one of the musical numbers, Railway Cat's number, where you know he's you see him tap dancing on these this set of fake uh, uh, railway, and then it just transitions like as you're looking at it into a railway actually in Britain on the streets, and it's the kind of thing that I bet you if Stanley Donnan did that. People would be saying, yo, that's Stanley Donner movie from the 50s. That was a brilliant cut. Can you imagine that he did that? But no, it happens to be in a movie where there's like CGI cats. So people don't want to give it that credit. You know, it's goofy as shit. It's brilliant, people. I highly recommend it. Tom Hooper is one of the finest directors of the decade. He also did, he also did Les Miserables, which is also one of the greatest musicals of all time. Uh, yeah, I it's lovely. There's not much to say about it beyond it really accomplishes all the things that it sets out to do. And it does it in a very unique way and with a vision that is, I, I think is unparalleled for the rest of the decade. It's absolutely um, ridiculous. If this ends up you putting it number one, gives it enough points to make it into the composite top 10. I'm never posting this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> if you want to see a good Tom Hooper movie, go watch the damn United. Uh, but I haven't seen that, but you can see Cats or Les Mis, y'all. Oh, my God. Okay. Daniel, thank you for joining me. This is absolutely ridiculous. I would have expected nothing less of you. Uh, look forward to having you join us in the year of 2020 for movies. Thanks again for all your time last year. You're welcome, man. Always a fun time being here and getting people to see Cats. I'm sure I'm, I'm sure that'll just get them running out to the theaters if it's if it's somehow still in the theaters near them. But uh, yeah, fingers all right. crossed. All right. Thanks, Daniel. Stay tuned for the next guest. <laughs> All right, and now we're back with recurring guest Lissa Koshbaki, who is here to give her top 10 for the year of 2019. Lissa, thank you for joining us. Thanks again for having me, Josh. I'm a little nervous, but excited to discuss my top 10. Yeah, so I'm, I'm excited to talk about this with you because you were one of our more frequent guests last year. But if I had to guess, I'm, I'm, I'm making a prediction here. I don't know what's in your top 10, but I'm guessing you, there might only be one on your list that you're actually a podcast guest for. So I'm going to find out a lot, of, a lot of your thoughts about the movie. Maybe I'm underestimating that by one or two, but you know, I'm, I'm just guessing based on what I've seen, your reactions to things and what you put on Twitter and Letterboxd and all <laughs> yeah. that. So I'm, I'm, I'm very curious. Did you, did you have any big picture thoughts on the year of 2019 in movies before we get started? Um, I know we kind of discussed this before we started the, start the podcast, yeah. but um, I think collectively a lot of us had pretty much, I mean, a lot of us friend group wise on the podcast yeah. and a lot of my other friends too, I feel like collectively we agreed on like two or three as our top 10 for 20, 2019. I feel like it was pretty consistent. And overall, I think it was a really good year for movies. A lot of standouts for cinematography and score this year. Mm -hmm. um, script wise, not so much. We still had fun with a lot of movies, so... It was a good year overall. Yeah, I agree. And I, yeah, that is something that's a good point you made about just uh, our least circle of movie-watching friends having a few that are bunched together at the top. There, A few of the similar Definitely. ones have been popping up on a, on, a, on a lot of these top tens. And, you know, I think last year is a little more varied. But, I mean, I think that just kind of shows that, like, a very strong crop of movies has really uh -huh. st stood apart from the pack. So uh, what is your number 10 movie of 2019? Okay, my number 10 movie is... Uh, the Last Black Man in San Francisco. Wow, did you just make, pick that one? Were you like on the fence between two? No, I was <laughs> counting. I was like, wait, just let me make sure that there was ten. Okay. I, it's been a long day. Okay, yeah. So, uh, what did, what did you like about that movie? You're, I think you're actually the first to mention it so far. Really? Yeah. I, so I actually, when I first watched it, I didn't really like it as much because I felt like the script was a little bit messy. 
And um, I was trying to figure out the overall theme of it. But when I kind of looked back about a month ago, trying to figure out my top 10, I kind of looked back at it fondly because I really liked, I, I re-looked at the message of the film and I actually really liked what they did. And, um, you know, I didn't love the script, obviously, but I liked the ride that the movie took you on. It was like a journey. Mm-hmm. And the ending wasn't conclusive, but I think that was on purpose. Am I allowed to spoil it, Josh? Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So for me, the the climax in the movie is really important because the main character, also the actors were great. This is going to be a little tough for me because I'm really bad at remembering names and specific details, but I'm going to do my best. But I really love the actors of the film. They were really strong. They were, they were dynamic and, uh, Danny Glover was in this film as well too. He, he played, he played the grandpa, I believe. And he was a really strong character, a really loving and sturdy character. And yeah. so the climax of the film, go ahead, sorry. No, I was just going to say, if you want to, if you did want to give a shout out to the actors, you know, yes. the, 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 the main character is played by Jimmy Falls. And, Jimmy Falls, or yes. It fails or Falls? I think it's Fails, actually. And the and his friend is played by Jonathan Majors, who I think got, yes. got even got even uh, more more critical acclaim for his performance. Yes. And so the two of them together, their dynamic was, was really intense. And then the climax of the film, when you realize the main character is discovering that the house that he's fighting so hard for wasn't actually built by one of his past relatives is just that it's a defining moment because identity is so important in this day and age. And to be crushed like that is just kind of just, it's a, it's just an emotional point of view. And in a time where like gentrification is happening everywhere, the film really does a good job about explaining what a lot of the feelings are revolving around that. Yeah. And so anyways, kind of going off that, the score is really beautiful. The score is by Emily Moser. And then the cast, obviously, again, is dynamic, and they did a really good job of casting. Yeah. The, the, have you ever seen uh, Medicine for Melancholy? I haven't, but someone actually recommended that I watch that. Yeah. Well, it's, it's as you might know, then, it's you know Barry Jenkins' first movie. And yes. it's, it's largely a two-hander about this man and this woman that uh, end up walking around San Francisco after a one-night stand. And mm-hmm. that movie talks a lot about the gentrification of San Francisco, a city I have never been to and I really would yeah. like to go to. And I and so I I just find this subject matter very interesting. And I, I, I agree with everything you said about the filmmaking in this movie. The, yeah. en- the end, it kind of uh, comes to a bit of a screeching halt for my taste yeah. after like how much I had enjoyed it. And it just really slows down. And there's that like one man play. And again, I really like that guy's acting, <laughs> but like I just it, it kind of like. It felt like it kind of stopped in its tracks when the movie had so much momentum going in a different direction and mm-hmm. slowed down a bit for me. But I, I really liked a lot of else about what this movie had going for it. And uh, again, like you said about it, it its message, and it, it was very resonant for me. Definitely. Uh, so. And then the director, Joe, I wanted to mention, I know I know a lot of troubling around it was that the Joe Talbot, the director, he's white, but he's also from San Francisco, so... In a good sense, I think it was like loosely based off of his uh, like childhood best friend. So hmm. that was kind of a re- redemption for for me. <laughs> Interesting, yeah. And I think it's almost like kind of similar. I don't know if you saw Blind Spotting a couple years ago with uh, David Diggs. Uh, yes, but he he made that movie with a with with the. Uh, with the guy that played the other main character and who's a white guy. And I mean, that, that movie takes place in Oakland. So it was having right. a white guy and black guy like, coming together to make that movie, which is large, which is largely about race in its own way. So a uh, kind yeah. of funny parallel between those two movies. What is your number nine? Okay. My number nine is Jojo rabbit. 
Okay, so th- by Taiko Watiti. <laughs> yeah, so th- this is like right out. This just got fell right outside my top ten. Like it was like I think my number like thir- thirteen or fourteen. And it's been actually very divisive. Like there are a lot of people that dislike it, and I was talking to Fred about it because uh, mm-hmm. Fred did the podcast on it and we, with 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 our other friend Adam. We all really liked it, and when Fred had yeah. it in his top ten too, and we're just like, I still don't fully comprehend everyone's big beef with this movie, and a lot of people do have big beef with it. So yes, what what did you really like about it though? So for me personally, I'm a big fan of Taika. I love Mm -hmm. everything he does, what we do in the shadows, um, Ragnarok. So I was kind of like obviously going into this film biased. But for me, the film just had so much passion and heart. And like it shouldn't work, but the film really did in such a phenomenal way. I think, again, all of the actors and actresses really bring it together. And even though I'm not, like, a big fan of Scarlett Johansson, which I feel bad saying, like, I think she did a really well job in showing emotion in this film. And then I know that there's a lot of big beef around this film. And if Josh, you're Jewish, right? I am. No, you're at York. So I know there's a lot of talk about the subject matter, but and which is totally rightfully so. And I'm not going to sit here and tell someone that if they're Jewish, they, they're not allowed to be upset with the film. But I just think it's so badass that Taika himself is Jewish and he was able to play Hitler. And he just did it in such a way that was so obviously demeaning of of him and it and it should be and it was just so playful and i really like the main character oh what's his name roman yeah roman griffin davis yes he brought such light to the character and just such confusion and young young right it's because it's about a kid you know it's like i get like people are like oh i think that's one thing that critique people are making it's like oh it's the cuddly nazi movie did we need a cuddly nazi movie it's like right it'd be one thing if they're trying to humanize like hitler but they're they're satirizing hitler and they're really cutting off the knees by this big goofy performance and they're making him look like an idiot right and the hitler youth was a thing so it's like if you're gonna reform any kind of nazi it should probably be the kid and if you can do that in a funny way that still doesn't this still makes it clear nazis are bad then like go for it Exactly. And I think the message at the end uh, was a little bit misconstrued for a lot of people, too. But for me, what I got from the end was that, you know, obviously cheesy, but we should be kind to one another. And, you know, just all that cheesy good stuff that makes you feel good at the end. And I really like the ending. It was uh, very simple, but, you know, it left an emotional, like, a little tear in my eye. So I thought it was a really fun, playful film. And that was probably my my most playful film of my top ten. Yeah, and you know Thomas and Mackenzie. I'm hoping that she, she is has big things in store yes. for her because you know, I was she so did, glad to see her after Leave No Trace, right? Yeah, so it's Leave No Trace, then this in consecutive years, and I think she's gonna be in the new Edgar Wright movie this year, Last Night in Soho, along with Anya Taylor Joy. I didn't know so, about that. Yes, <gasps> so I am uh, looking forward to that very much. So, and I two up and coming women. Yeah, so I'm just like, I it's cool that she got into a movie like this, and I just hope that she ends up. Just kind of killing it uh, in the in the Edgar Wright movie. What is your number eight? So my number eight is Little Woman. Okay, that's my number five. (laughs) That's your five. Ooh. Okay, I want to hear what you have to think about it too. Well, you should have just you should have listened to the podcast then. (laughs) I know, but I was trying to wait for the last few ones until I pick my top ten to not be biased. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Because I have a bad habit, as a lot of my friends know, and I've told you about that when I like read a bunch of things or. When I listen to the podcast. No, I'm I got you. I got you. By everyone else's opinion. No, I, I want to hear what you think. I'm, I, I'm not. I don't want to say too much because I've already said a lot in this podcast, and then you can go back and listen to the one I did to get my deep right. thoughts. But we we only have so <laughs> so so long here. So, uh, what what did you exactly. really like about it? Did you have big expectations? Did you read the book? Had you seen the earlier movie? Like, what what were your yes. thoughts going in, and did it meet your expectations? 
So I knew of the story of Little Woman. I've never read the book. Um, my mom really liked it, so she's always told me about the story. I knew the plot. Um, and my, I haven't seen the, I haven't seen the other Little Woman with, uh, is it Christian Bale, right? And Christian Bale's Warrior and Winona Ryder's Joe. Yes. Claire so Danes I haven't seen Beth. that one, yeah. but I've. Who? Claire Danes is Beth. Kirsten Dunst is <sighs> Young See, I Amy. A, I need to watch that. Yeah. But everyone kept saying we don't need a Little Woman remake, and I kind of agree with that. But then I watched this film, and it's just like the actresses. They bring it to life. Like, the, such a dynamic cast. Um, mm. Again, I'm going to keep using that phrase. <laughs> but for me, I really resonated with it because my mom is one of three sisters, and, oh. you know, she always tells me her story. So she, that's why she really likes Little Woman. And, oh, my God, Florence, Florence Pugh in this movie is insane. It was so good to see her again in another 2019 film after Midsummer, even if it didn't make my top ten. You know, like, watching Little Women feels like like receiving, like, the warmest hug. And mm-hmm. it's not, like, sad, but it's just, like, a good a, a good cry you had I had at the end, at least. Yeah, I read the book so right before, so I, I, I don't know if, like— did, I don't know if you knew that Beth's death was coming or well, I guess, it, it, well, the way it jumps around in time, it's like, you don't, you kind of already know it's happening as opposed to like in the book where it happens way later. But I just, yeah, that was what I knew was going to be the saddest part. So, and like, mm-hmm. I, and I knew that Joe was going to break Lori's heart. So it was like, I was already bracing myself for that stuff. So I feel like I was able to oh. just kind of like more like, or I already knew to brace myself for that. So I don't think like it made me as sad as I could have been. So I think I was able to more just wrap myself in the warmness of these characters and the positive, right. the positive message, you know? Exactly. And it's interesting to hear from you that you, I mean, knew it was coming and you still like, I, I read the book right before I, I went. feel like, I feel like you hear vice versa. People like read the book or they know about it and they, they get to it and they're like, Oh, it wasn't as good as I expected, but it's nice to hear that you had, well, there, there was a little vice versa. There was a little bit of that for me. Cause I, I was nitpicking certain things about it, about, you know, right. whether or not like they set up, like they, they set up even Lori loving Joe in that way as much, or, you know, mm-hmm. or, or, or Joe picking, uh, or Joe picking professor bear at the end. Like, and which, yes. there, there's a whole way in which I ended up thinking it was brilliant. If I, cause I chose to believe that they didn't actually end up together. And that was just for the purposes of the book. And I'm like, all right, Greta, that's an awesome ending. I'm going to choose to believe that's the way it happened. And, uh, so I, I like that, but there's, <laughs> There are just like certain ways it changed with that entire storyline where the the, yeah. the 94 movie tracks way more with like Professor Bear uh, in the way he is in the book. But like, oh. I don't know. Yeah. But in like this, like is a big departure from that. But I actually really like how she ultimately pulled it off. And it's very smart. Mm-hmm. And it's very unique from the other adaptations that I've seen in the book. So I, I just really respect Good. the way Greta made the changes especially after reading the book. I was like, I was happy to read the book because I'm like, she's not going to do this unless she has like a really unique idea, you know? Right. Exactly. And like you can tell that the film has her touch on it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What's so your, I like I liked it. Yeah. What's your number seven? Number seven is the Irishman. <laughs> ah, okay. That was my number eleven. I know. I Ooh, you put it a little farther down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. I, I, I mean, again, I, I still like really. Or no, wait, it was my number twelve. Yeah, but I mean, I really loved 12. it. So the, the, no shame. Yeah, it's no shame. Like no shame it. in twelve <laughs> when it's twelve out of a hundred. But like, true. So it, it it wasn't too long for you then. I was expecting to not like it, and I was texting through it in the first ten minutes. But like yeah. after that, it Such like I was like, oh, I know. I was like, I was like, I have a short attention span. But it after the first ten minutes, I was super into it. I was like, holy shit, this is, oops, holy crap. This we is have the explicit good. tag, Lissa. So I know, I'm sorry. I, I know you don't work for a family company in ABC, but we have the explicit tag, so you no, don't have to censor yourself. No, don't tell them. <laughs> no, just kidding. I don't care. No, no. But I was like, holy crap, this is a really good movie, and all the guys together, the Scorsese touch. Um, you know, the film, I think I liked it a lot more because I watched it at home with my mom when I was home for after Thanksgiving, that when it came out. Yeah. Yeah. Christmas time around that time. 
Yeah. And she's really fond of older films and obviously Scorsese. So this really was one of her top films, probably higher on her list. But watching it with her, I feel like I had more of appreciation. And like every five minutes, she kept saying like, when they're gone, like film is dead. And so like, <laughs> I'm sitting there like, you're so right. But um, did, you know, did, the you, fi- did you have a favorite performance in it? I felt like Pacino was so much fun and we got to see him be funny. And this was, this is his first time with Scorsese. Yeah. Which is crazy, which is crazy to me. And so I think for me, Pacino did a really good job. I mean, Pesci was so funny too. I like his little quiet, like contemplative actions. Yeah. And it's just very different from other stuff he's done. So that was very cool. Yeah. But I mean, they were, they were all great. I think it, it, when you think about like the history of all of it and then the theme of the film, it's such a good blend of uh, like family and what you fight for and how things come back to you in the end. And like for me, I know everyone was talking about the de-aging and obviously I knew they had de-aged them, but like it wasn't a big issue for me like as it was when we talked about it because the kids being de-aged bothered me more somehow. I don't know why, but I don't know. I mean, I noticed the de-aging tech, like the CGI obviously, but it didn't really bother me like a lot of people have mentioned. I don't know. Did it bother you? No, I mean... Uh, not really. Uh, I mean, it was a little hard to tell how old Robert De Niro was supposed to be at certain points. Like, cause I always knew that like right. Pesci was supposed to be older than him. And I think they did a little better job of getting Pacino to look younger with De Niro. They, yeah. they, they, it was De Niro. They were like calling him kid in the first part of it. And I'm like, he still looks 40, but whatever. Yeah, like, I, like, I, I, I quickly like forgot about that. It didn't bother me. Even if I was like, they haven't totally yeah. perfected this technology probably to the point they want to, but like right. you had to make this movie sooner rather than later. Cause like these guys are yeah. up there in age and you know, there's only so long that they can count on having them all together. So they, it's better to do it sooner rather than later. So I was happy with it. Even if it's like, I, I acknowledge the technology is not a hundred percent there yet. Right. And the, the length didn't bother me, bother me at all. I know like it felt really long, but also needed at the same time. I don't know if you felt that way about it. Well, I mean, I saw it in a theater and I didn't go to the bathroom. So that's I I just probably the no. third, oh yeah we talked about that's probably the third yeah. time I've said it on the podcast but I'm gonna keep bragging about it because I feel like that's a big accomplishment but the length did was, you get a drink yeah well I I, st- I also stopped drinking at two o'clock that afternoon and so then I could get a large drink when I went into the theater because I can't really I'm a degenerate that like has to have like some kind of coke product with me at the theater now um, most of the oh, time oh yeah uh, so, no I'm but, the same way so it wasn't too long for me and I I I really I mean the my my big thing was like I thought maybe the last half hour maybe would have worked a little better with a few more scenes with Frank and his family earlier and okay uh, yeah I could see that and I, I I don't have time to get into a whole discussion about the whole Anna Pack one in the lines thing and I can kind of see what people are saying where it's like no her role was fine but it's like I think I would have like just been more emotionally moved if we had just had a few more scenes of like the family being neglected and them giving him shit earlier in the movie and then yeah. to see him living with those consequences at the end but it's like I still like that last act anyway in spite of that like that last half hour it should be when you're like ready to get out of your seat and it was like i was still enjoying it anyway so exactly like being able to nitpick it too and oh speaking of nitpicking that Mm -hmm. i hate the poster i don't know if anyone's comments i didn't listen to the podcast but i we did not talk about the poster on the podcast you didn't okay did you do you like the poster have you seen it i mean i'm I'm looking at whatever the poster is now on letterbox like i don't have any strong reaction the blended yeah i don't have a strong reaction to it yeah i don't know (laughs) <laughs> I don't like it. I don't know why. I could have had a stronger poster, but I mean, that's my only nitpick. That's fine. All right. What's your number six? Number six is Uncut Gems. Oh yeah. That's my number seven. Woo. That's your number seven. Yeah. I know. I, that's, pretty, I, we're pretty, that's pretty close for us. Yeah. I know. Apparently I, one thing I learned about you last year is you're like a big Adam Sandler person, aren't you? 
I am. Yeah, I forgot. <laughs> yeah, I'm a big Sandler person. I mean, obviously, probably started because of my love of SNL from such a young age. Mm -hmm. But you know, you know, Dad showed me his movies at a young age, like Tommy Boy, uh, Billy Madison. You know, like all all the good stuff. And then just growing older, I feel like we got to grow old with him too, as cheesy as that is. And I loved his stand up special last year. And my friend Sam actually sent me this YouTube link. I don't want to get too de detailed into it, <laughs> but about uh, Sandman's career and how, you know, a lot of people like to crap on him about his career, but he he works hard and I think he's a great actor. Even at the, even at the lesser stuff like murder mystery and, mm -hmm. you know, I, you, anyway, so I'm getting sidetracked, but I'm a big Sandler fan and I think this is one of his top performances. Like for me, it's Punch Drunk Love, Meyerowitz Story, and then probably, probably, mm, Maybe Uncut Gems before Meyerowitz story, but wow. But I, anyways, he was really good in this film. He he fit the, just the costume design like <laughs> unreal. The I think score. It's cool. like, oh yeah. Go ahead. No, go ahead. Go ahead. I was gonna say I think it's cool. Apparently the Safties like really wanted him. Like they wanted him since like the early 2010s when they first thought about doing the movie before like they had the clout to get it made. And then it was gonna be Jonah Hill for a while, and then it went back to Adam Sandler. It was like they they had that vision of him in their head for so long, and it's kind of cool that it clearly ended up being the right call. I heard about that. Yeah, and yeah. Then they tried to get the script to him, and he was like, "Who are they?" And yeah, and, and then he saw a good <laughs> he did time. It again. <laughs> he saw a good time. He's like, "Oh, these guys are actually good." Yeah, he's like, "Let me do this," and yeah. you know, everything happens for a reason because even though this film was snubbed, like it, like Good Time was, mm -hmm. but it's okay. Yeah. Um. Everyone knows. Everyone that has a brain <laughs> knows it should have been nominated, but no, mm -hmm. it was a great film. The score for me was something that really stands out too because. Like, oh, my God, the sound design and the mixing, like, the tension from the way the, like, dialogue overlaps so well. Like, the way the music hits feels like firecrackers and, like, you can't even breathe because, like, the score and the dialogue just mix so well that, like, your body has to be, like, clenched the whole time during that film. And mine was. I don't think I breathed till the end. <laughs> yeah, and it's kind of I don't want to spoil like, it, but. Yeah, there's, there's, there's not that many scenes this year, year in the movies that made me more tense than the first one in the store when Kevin Garnett walks in. And there's, like, five conversations going on at once. And it's, it's like, so stressful. It's stressful because you don't even know what you're supposed to be listening to. Even though yeah. it's like you know they mixed it well because you could hear all the words. You just don't know what you're supposed mm -hmm. to be listening to, which is probably a realistic way to, like, exist in a, 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 a crowded store. But, like, I was just very yeah. Yeah, especially in New York. Yeah, they did it very effectively, for sure. Yeah, they did a really good job, and they, they uh, it was the best directing I've seen in a while, like really strong directing. And also really great casting. I mean, aside, oh, from, aside from just getting Adam Sandler, like getting Lakeith Stanfield to sign on to like a supporting role like that at a time when he's blowing up, having the balls yeah. to like cast Julia Fox, who had never acted before. And, yeah, and, like, and um, the Sandler's daughter in the movie who had never acted before either. I, I believe. Didn't, I, oh, I didn't know that. So yeah, and like yeah. They, 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 a lot of the smaller parts in the movies are always non-actors, but like yeah, for like a part as big as Julia to be like they probably could have gotten like a well-known actress, and they had the they had the wherewithal to like be like nope, we want her, and it worked. Yeah, out. and it worked really well. I mean, mm -hmm. I'm I know I've heard a lot of, of comments on how it's such a Jewish film, and I I love that because I love seeing all of that. I don't know if you had to comment on that, but well, I mean, I talked about it a little bit on the podcast I did. Like, it, you can, it didn't even need to have the Seder because Seders don't happen in May, and they wanted to be accurate with that basketball series, which did take place in May. But like, Seders oh. don't ever happen that late. It was like you could tell it was a Jewish movie without that. That was like a little quibble I had, but it was a very mm. small one. Uh, but other than that, because like, Seders are in the fall, right? No, Seders no. are like earlier spring. They're like usually in April or March. So oh, okay. like, it just passed over that year was like the beginning of April. 
Um, so mm. th- th- it was just like a small nitpick I had. And so it was like, I, th- I was very happy that they, it was a Jewish movie, but it was like, th- they almost like wanted to like hold the audience's hand, like let them know this is a Jewish movie here. Right. There's already enough Jewish flourishes aside from that. And I, I saw another, actually, I saw another continuity, not continuity error, but like a, a research error on their part before I got on the podcast. It was the like ESPN TNT thing. No, oh. what's that? And when, well, the the game where you remember the scene where he's like laying down in his son's room and he starts watching the TV on his phone. Oh, but, yes, yes. But like, like when he ends up going down to like the the living room after that, he yells at his wife to turn it on ESPN. But the game was on TNT; it wasn't on ESPN. <gasps> and like, oh, that's I, I, and another then, and one. There was then. there was an ESPN anchor that's also a big movie guy that like met the Safties at like some kind of screening and was like, oh, like I was wondering why you guys did that because like I work for ESPN, so I was kind of noticing that when you said the game was on ESPN because that wasn't an ESPN game, and then. And uh, one of the Safdie brothers was like, like started freaking out because this is when the movie had already been like final cut had already happened. And they realized See, this that, is why you need good researchers. On yeah. And TV I think, I think they eventually movies. shrugged it off because like that is a thing people might say. They might just say or put the, put the ESPN on the games on when even when a game's not on ESPN because ESPN is yeah. that ubiquitous. But that was just a mistake. What was the one? What was the goof that you found? I saw that like the like blade helicopter service or whatever oh, hadn't been hadn't started yeah, until start 20, 13 or 14. Yeah, so that was in third. Well, yeah, there was another one was issue. that you know sports gambling is only legal in Las Vegas at the time, and uh, you can't so you can't place a sports bet at the Mohegan Sun. So that was another yeah. So there are a few things, but I mean it's still a great movie. It's just it is, so it is small. Yeah. Yeah, 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 no, really good film. Yeah. Let's stop critiquing Sam- them to death. <laughs> I know, right? That's what's all your, we're gonna. Yeah. What's I'm your number five? Okay, so number five might be a little bit of a shocker, but I really love this movie ever since it came out. So my number five is going to be Us. Which we talked about on this podcast. Which we talked about. So actually, I have two on this list. Yeah, yeah, well, I I didn't predict that, like, Us was going to be that high on your list based on our podcast. Because it's been, shoot, it's been almost a year since that movie came out. So I guess I just forgot how much you liked it. So uh, we're we're, going to try and be brief since we can refer people back to the podcast. But uh, were you surprised that it held up this well for you? Like, you saw it really early last year. And were you surprised that, like, it persisted into your top ten? Yes and no, because I feel like everyone, or at least for me, after that film ended, it stuck with you for so long. Because not only were you thinking about that ending, but you were doing research, trying Mm -hmm. to figure out the puzzle pieces. And that's for me, is a good film, because you're thinking about it way long after it ends. And I'm still thinking about it almost a year later. And I feel like a lot of the films that come out earlier in the year get a lot of slack. No one really remembers them, unless there's some big name that everyone hypes up. And Us was pretty hyped up, but... I think everyone kind of slowly forgot about it. But for me, I haven't stopped thinking about it. Maybe the resurgence of, of it during Halloween time between the, you know, the horror nights kind of brought it back to me. But mm. for me, that film really stuck with me. A lot of horror isn't in, in people's top tens, I feel like. Right. So for me, that was important to me to get a little bit of horror in here. And Us, which is a really well done film. Some people didn't like it because they compared it to Get Out a lot, like we discussed. But for me... Jordan Peele has such a theme and he's only done two films. You know, Michael Abel's score is like still sticking with you. You're still singing five, like I got five on it. Mm-hmm. I mean, Lup- Lupita. Incredible trailer. <laughs> incredible trailer that hyped everyone up for like almost a month. Lupita deserved a nomination. They literally snubbed her. Just a wonderful film. I really liked it. I'm still thinking about the ending. Still thinking about Hands Across America. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, the, the Easter eggs are a lot of fun. My thoughts haven't changed all that much since we did the podcast, and I already yeah. talked about it a little bit because it was Joe's number 10. You're only the second person to have it in your top 10. Uh, but, yeah, ju- justice for Lupita also. I, as I've already said, I agree. Yes. Like, it's kind of crazy. Like, I would have rather her gotten an Oscar nomination than even a couple of the other people that got nominated in that category. So uh, Yes, a little bit of shade. <laughs> yeah. What's your number four? 
My number four is actually The Farewell, which I recently watched. Thank you for waiting for me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so uh, well, worth the wait, huh? It was worth the wait. I actually got unlucky because, as you know, uh, the week that The Farewell came out was a little bit crazy because I was moving out to California. So um, I couldn't. I kind of come that night that the ABC or AM, ABC, <laughs> AMC was doing the screening. Long story short, I finally got around to watching it uh, this week and it was worth the wait. Like I'm a big sucker for family movies. Cause for me, family is so important, but this took it to a whole nother level. Like for me, the thing that stands out about the, the farewell is how, how clean the script was like mm. Lulu Wang does conversation so well for me in this film. Like every word was needed. It wasn't too long. When I saw that hour 40 minute runtime, I was like, oh, I could kiss you. Like, <laughs> you know, so well, uh, I, I like that you mentioned conversation specifically because one thing, well, it's come up on a lot of people's list already. I think one point yeah. that I haven't made since I did the podcast with, mm-hmm. with Hannah back when it came out was that, like, it's cool how like, she uses the conversation and she uses language also where there's, like, so many moments where, like, they go in and out between English, Chinese, or even Japanese because part of the family yeah. is living in Japan. And right. just how different family members will use different languages in front of – in different people's presence so other people can't hear what is being said. And, oh, yeah. like, one scene might have three different languages just based on the ha- characters that happen to be speaking at any given moment. It's, like, a very unique way to do a film. Yes. And, it, again, I know I keep using this, but that was also snubbed, too. And, like, speaking of the language, like, I know everyone likes to, like, see themselves in certain movies, but, you know – for me, I really love the farewell because I feel like I saw myself and my family in the film, just cultural wise, and you know how important grandparents are. Well, they're, grandparents are important for everyone, but you know, just the culture of it really resonated with me as well too because I feel like I related to it. And I mean, how do you how do you not love Nai uh, Nai? Yeah, Nai Nai is the name, right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, that the ending shot where Aquafina is looking out of the car. Oh my god. I, mm. I don't think there was a dry eye in my apartment, so. Yeah, don't make me cry. We're almost done. I, I, I know. I'm, I'm, getting, I'm getting through this fine. Um, no, yeah. Right. It was very personal to me, too, but a, po- a point that's been made uh, multiple times, just because it's person, just because you can relate to it doesn't mean it's good, mm-hmm. but exactly. it, it's, it was still very good. And more <laughs> importantly, we don't have enough movies with poorly sung covers of Killing Me Softly, so that that got me, that part. Oh, there, there you go. So yeah, a lot of memorable like little moments like that in the movie. Yes. That, uh, fun moments that are fit in in a movie that also has very devastating moments. Uh, mm-hmm. What is your number three? So my number three, you're not going to be shocked because we've also done a podcast on it, but my number three is The Beach Bum. Yeah, so I guess you're, you're just a little homesick for Florida. and I, guess, I know. <laughs> <laughs> but in my opinion, this was Harmony's best version of showing Florida, I yeah. think. Yeah, yeah. We, we talked about it a lot. It's a... Uh, Mm-hmm. I mean, it's 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 a corner of Florida that like special to us. Yeah, yeah, and <laughs> like, it, it, but like you're but like populated with characters who maybe I can't relate to on a daily basis, but I certainly like hanging out within the context of that movie. You know, exactly. That's the best way to put it, Josh. Like, I mean, like this is like McConaughey's like final form. Like this was <laughs> the role he was destined to play. Like your favorite stoner comedy. Like like you said, like it's not people that I would have encountered, but people that I would have liked to encounter. Um, you know, it's just like a love letter to Florida man. I think we, I think, <laughs> That's a great way to put it. I think we discussed that on the podcast, mm-hmm. being a love letter. But you know, I love Moondog. He encapsulates what like what we want to be. I know a lot of discussion. We talked about this on the podcast, so everyone needs to listen to our Beach Bum podcast because I feel like a lot of people haven't seen this film. Definitely was robbed yeah. in terms of runtime in the in the theaters. But um, I know people were like, just like, oh, it's just a story about a rich guy. There's no really narrative, but. 
I think the whole point of the film is that there's like beauty and simplicity and you just kind of watch a film that you want to, you want to be in. And I think there was a, there was a message there. Um, so for me, I really like the movie being Florida McConaughey, a great cast. Isla Fisher. Uh, oh my Zach, God. Zach Efron, Martin Zach Lawrence. Efron. Martin Lawrence's The Dolphin thing. Yeah. Oh, my God. That was hilarious. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I feel like people probably need to go watch the movie High, but it was... A fun Jonah Hill cameo. Just just a, just a, lot, of, a, lot, of, a lot of little fun people to hang out. Jimmy Buffett shows up. Uh, Jimmy Buffett. He wrote a song for the movie. Yeah, oh, so. my gosh. It's a, it's a very Florida film. That's probably unbiased, but mm-hmm. oh well. Yeah. No. Just a, <laughs> if you're just looking for, like, a fun hour and 40 minutes of, where you can just turn your brain yeah. off and just, like, it, it be, become a wash in a bunch of, like, <laughs> hedonistic adventures, this is the movie for you. If you're just... If you've just seen something that's, like, super devastating, then just go see this to kind of cleanse your palate. Uh, 100%. What's, what's your number two? Okay, number two is actually Portrait of a Lady on Fire, which I just watched less than 24 hours ago, so I'm still processing yeah. it. <laughs> and, and as I told you before we started recording, you're a coastal elite, and you're better than all of us, and you got to see it <laughs> beforehand. And uh, so, no. yep, so uh, you, you're not allowed to spoil it. So, can you give us like 30 seconds? Oh, yeah. Can you give us 30 seconds to get all the listeners who are the plebeians like me who do not live in the big cities <laughs> really excited for when it does get to us in a few weeks? What can you tell? What can you oh, tease? I know I'm still processing it. Well, well I, um, I don't think it's a spoiler to say. I know it's, I, all I know. I know is that it's like a love story that involves a couple of women, and that is yeah. all I know. What is there anything else you would add to that 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 really made the movie like so special to you that you can say without spoiling? For me, the specialness of it was the detail in it. The cinematography, like the landscape was really important. Um, so it's set and, and shot in France, if, as far as you understand? Shot in France, but I think it's supposed to take place in... No, it's supposed to take place in France, I okay. believe. Uh, the movie's in French, completely. Okay. Um, so as Bong Joon-ho said, you know, if you if you can watch a film with subtitles, you're going to be open to a whole new world. I also would say that the two main actresses did such a good job. Oh, oh also, well, I don't want to spoil it. Can I? No, you can't spoil because mm, I haven't seen it. <laughs> can I? Can I? Mm, okay, can you cut this out if it's if it's not if it's spoiling? Sure, but don't spoil. Okay, be careful. Okay, so for me personally, I love Greek mythology, and it brought that into the film. Okay, that's, that's a okay good, that's to a say. Good, that's a good tease. Yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. So it talks about Greek mythology, and I like the way they portrayed that within the film, and that's all I'll say. All right. Well, I'm, yeah. su- I'm, I'm sufficiently pumped for this movie. You and several other people whose tastes I trust have seen it or written about it. Like our friend Ben, uh, he, he got to see it because he's he, he's also what a, was it a up? fancy it's LA up? person. Uh, <laughs> uh, just mm-hmm. all the all the critics I follow and stuff really love it too. So I'm very yeah. excited. Uh, I think I know what your number one's going to be, but won't you won't you go ahead and say it? <laughs> yes. Dun, da, da, da. Obviously, my number one was Parasite. All right. By so Bong Hive. Yeah, that's also it's also my number one. It was Joe's number yeah. one, and it's it's shown up on every list so far on the podcast. So yeah. I think it's going to do pretty well when we put together the composite top 10 at the end. So yes. I, I've now seen Parasite twice. It still plays very well on a second viewing. Yes. It's, there's it really, it's again, as I keep saying, it's just uh, basically a perfect movie as far as I'm yeah. concerned. I don't know. I, I don't think there's a single thing I would change. What, what did you like about it? Oh my gosh. I don't think I would change a single thing. I was really upset too, because this past Sunday in LA, as we are very lucky, they had a live orchestra to film a screening of Parasite oh. and Bong. What does that even mean? Uh, uh, like, instead of instead of the score playing, they play it live, I believe. Oh, I never even heard so, of that kind of showing. Yeah, they do that a lot here. I've not- I'm not a lot, but I've noticed it a few times here and a few times in New York. I really need to get to one. But, like, um, have you heard about, like, Night Before Christmas? They do it in, uh, they do the live music for it in, like, the Hollywood Bowl a lot. 
No, I, I just, no. I've never heard of viewing a movie that way. That's really interesting. Yeah. But I digress. I wish I could have gone to the Parasite viewing of that. But um, for me, Parasite, it's just, like you said, I mean, it's so simple, but it's such a perfect film. Uh, the writing, the twists, I guess, in a way, this could be considered horror, question mark? Thriller. Mm, thriller. But for me, like, as you can tell, I love, I love thriller. I love horror. And for, and also, you know, as an English major, and I fought people on this before, but the script for me is really important most of the time. Mm-hmm. And the script again for this one was just so clean. The ending just sits with you. Like it's like heavy on your chest. Mm. Um, and then for me also, when I sat down and kind of not researched, but looked like thought more about it and researched about it, just realizing the message he was going for, how important that was. And he didn't do it in a judgmental way. He was just explaining what reality was, which for me, that's more important, the explanation rather than the judgment. Yeah. All of his films deal with, you know, capitalism in some way, but it Mm -hmm. was really cool how Parasite was such a specific story to a family and this specific set of circumstances that it, it, his anti-capitalist leanings are obviously very clear if you pay attention to the movie, but it's not like, it's not like laying it all out too explicitly in like a way that's just like very heavy handed at all. And that's what I really respect about how he kind of pulls off that message Mm -hmm. within a movie that is very compelling story already with, when, without even having to think about that stuff. Exactly. And like, I was kind of reading a little bit more about his movies and I've only seen Okja, but for me, she's no piercer. I know everyone keeps telling me I'll watch that soon now that I've done my top 10. Yeah. Um, but for me, like a lot of his films, there's so much change that goes on within the story of the film. But at the end of the film, it's as, as if nothing has changed, but like everything has changed. I don't know if that makes sense. Like with Okja, oh, yeah. not to, to spoil it, but you know, she goes back to the farm and she saved, but like everything has changed, you know, but in, in the, in this film, it's the same way. Like they are back in the, well, not back in the house, but you know, everything is everything's changed but it feels like it's like the same yeah it's kind of like the wire or something at the end of the wire yeah exactly all all the all the institutions and larger systems are kind of in play to kind of kind of keep the status quo unfortunately um i know that's a a really cool way to put it in a Mm -hmm. way that movie came full circle and just that decision in of itself to end the movie in such a way kind of makes his larger point for him so exactly so and obviously all the actors and actresses you know Without a doubt, every single person stands out. There's not one person that stands out more than the other, I guess, for me. So it was just a really well, well casted movie. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, Lissa, thank you so much for doing <laughs> this. Thank you for being such a consistent presence on The Rewind in 2019. And we hope we'll see you back uh, to talk about plenty of more really great movies next year. And I think you'll probably be here in a couple of weeks, though, to talk about To All the Boys, P.S. I Still Love You. Cause, I know. I mean, that's how long I've been doing this podcast now is that we're already getting sequels to movies <gasps> that I've done before. Yeah, I know. Has it been two years? Well, they, they had a really quick turnaround. I mean, they came out in like August 2018, right? So usually like a lot of movies do like two years between sequels and stuff. So yeah. um, they, they just had a very quick turnaround on this one. And uh, yeah, so I'm looking forward Hopefully to Hopefully Denise and I can do it for the second one. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. It'd be, it'd be, it'd be kind of cool because I, I don't think I've had a, a sequel. This, I think it's, it's going to be the first movie that I've had like a sequel – the original and the sequel since I started the rewind. So uh, that'll be really cool and uh, a cool, <laughs> a cool milestone for the podcast. So I'm looking forward to that and we'll see you in, tw- well, I was about to say, we'll see you in 2020. I keep, do- <laughs> I keep doing that. We'll see, we'll see you in the movie year of 2020. Lisa, thank you for joining us. Thank you again, Josh. And now we're going to finish the rewinds list of top tens with recurring guest Hannah Couture. Hannah, thanks for being here. 
Thanks for having me back. Yeah. So Hannah, I want, what I'm, one thing I'm just asking everyone before we get started is if they have any like kind of thoughts on the year and movies big picture after actually going through the effort to like make a list and see everything you wanted to see. Did, was there anything that was like kind of popping out to you as like a trend in when you were making your list or reading other people's lists or anything like that, that you just kind of observed about 2019 in movies? Um, I don't know if there's like a, a trend specifically yeah. in terms of like the kinds of movies or anything, but I, I think, I mean, we we're talking about this a little bit earlier. I think it was just kind of a, it was a pretty strong year. And mm-hmm. so I feel like a lot of people's best of lists are, are pretty similar, which is like on one hand, maybe a little boring, but on the other hand, just means that like there were lots of movies this year that were really good and everybody agreed that they were really good. Yeah, I mean, it's not a bad problem to have, and as we as we did discuss before we started recording, like, that might result in a not-so-exciting Oscars, but it's still fun, it's, it'll still be fun to look back and be like, oh, wow, there's, like, a lot of rewatchable fun movies that I found mm-hmm. in 2019, which is which is nice. I mean, like, I, I always find plenty to like, but, like, I mean, I, I just, I think I have, I, I think even my 10 through 20, like, I would have been fine with, like, putting them any of them in a top 10. I wouldn't have been offended if anyone did the same, you know? Uh, so that's kind of where I came down on it. But, uh, yeah, without, without further ado, what's your, uh, 10th favorite movie of last year? Uh, my number 10 is Wild Rose, I, which I don't know if you saw it. I did. You're the, I you're, we you're, talked about it. yeah, I know. I'm actually excited you brought it up cause you're the first one to bring it up. I was just saying, I don't know if you're going to have a single thing on your list that no one else talked about. And then yeah. you had that one. Well, when I was making my list, I was kind of thinking like, I think most of these other people are going to talk about, and you know, I'm, when I make lists, I'm always kind of like, I mean, really any of my top 20 could have found their way into this configuration. So I thought I would throw one in there that maybe not everybody would have. Right. And I just think it's a really nice little movie. The music is fantastic. Um, it's one of, you know, I saw it, it didn't get a huge release, but I saw it in theaters this summer and it has kind of like stuck with me. Yeah, I, this isn't the most important thing to talk about this movie, but like you mentioned the music and like, I mean, kind of insane it didn't get a best song nomination at least. I mean, yeah, I, guess it, I, mean, I, guess I still, a... oh, sorry. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'll still listen to the soundtrack sometimes and Jesse Buckley is really terrific in it. I had never seen her in anything before. Yeah, so. she, I, first time I saw her was that movie called, that little movie Beast a couple years ago, which mm-hmm. when she kind of got involved with the stalker type dude. and Which I heard of but didn't see. Yeah, I know, it was good. And then she was in Chernobyl, which I don't blame you if you didn't watch that, because yeah. who, who really has time for that kind of recreational like, sadness? No, yeah, no. But like, I mean, she, she, and she's going to be in the new season of Fargo. So really yeah. excited to watch her blow up. And, it, you know, it was a really cool movie. I thought it was a great performance. And I, I mean, it was a pretty, it was just an interesting story. Like, something I was totally ignorant of. I didn't know, like, European cities had Grand Ole Opry's. Like, that's a, that's, a, that's a thing. I mean, so it taught me something, and I liked seeing that world. I liked that it didn't, like, spoilers, but I liked that it didn't, like, actually have her hit it big in Nashville at the end of the right. movie. It was, like, a cool, like, actual way that it made sense for it to end, you know? Yeah, and I liked that it was sort of an angle on American pop culture that you don't often see. Like, obviously all over the world, like people get lots of American pop culture, but Mm -hmm. the idea of, you know, a young Scottish woman who is obsessed with country music is like so delightful to me, especially because I feel like it, and a lot of people, a lot of Americans are, can be kind of dismissive of that kind of music. So to see it like really resonate with somebody, I thought was interesting. Yeah. Do you read the story about, uh, Mary Steenburgen and how she even got involved with that whole thing? Yeah, that's wild. Yeah. Like no pun intended, but yeah, it is, it is, it is, it is wild. That like all of a sudden she's a songwriter. Yeah. She's just, like, but, he, I mean, it's he, a really good song. Yeah. She had arms. Mary Steenburgen, who everyone knows, like well-known actress in these parts had like a 
routine arm surgery but had to be put under for it and they think the anesthesia messed with her head and now she's like a songwriting savant and is now an oscar nominated songwriter uh or, or no not oscar should have been an oscar nominated songwriter excuse Thought me people that was going to be yeah yeah yeah, yeah. so that would have been a really cool story uh one thing i want to ask you did you understand in the movie because like i really liked it but like my one big criticism was kind of like how some of the conflict got ginned up at the end did you understand why she couldn't just tell that woman she was working for that she had kids no and that's my least favorite thing about the movie, I don't love it when the plot of something hinges on uh, one character, like not lying, but right. like omitting information from somebody when it wouldn't have been a big deal in the first place to just tell her. Like right. that is an aspect of it I don't love. Right. But the, the financial challenge, and I could even know just the husband trying to blackmail her or, or call her out for the criminal past, but like the whole thing about like, oh my God, she can't know I have a kids turned into like a really big thing. And it's like, it seems like one too many things to just throw in there where it's like the financial trouble she's having and even making it and her criminal past like that should have been like kind of enough for the movie to do and it kind of it bit off a little more than it could chew but like i still really liked it overall yeah same i liked everything else about it besides that yeah what's your number nine uh my number nine is the irishman Ah. which you know kind of a boring pick maybe uh it's boring to be like hey uh martin scorsese made a good movie (laughs) that robert de niro and al pacino and joe pesci are really great in but there you go yeah i think i don't have my full list up i just have my top 10 up but it it was just outside my top 10 like 11 or 12 there's obviously a ton a ton to like about this movie but you you so you weren't turned off by the length that's the big talking point about it no i mean i was able to see it in a theater Mm -hmm. which helps you know i don't I don't mind. Did you go to the bathroom? I didn't go to the bathroom. Did you? I did not. No, I was ready. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I don't mind a movie being that long, but it has to be something that I, you know, am interested in and am going to be able to focus on. Which is why it's a little. I understand why he would want to make that deal with Netflix, but it's a little disappointing. And I don't think that you have to see everything in a theater. Um, But it's a little disappointing to think that people are going to maybe get like forty-five minutes in and be like, "This is too long," and like never come back to it. Yeah, I didn't mind. I, in theory, I, yeah, in theory, I didn't mind how some people were like breaking it up into a miniseries, but like, no, that's like, fine. It, 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 I, there, there were good points at which you could do that, but like, I was like, at the same time, I, I realized some people aren't going to do it that way, and they're just going to like watch it in even more parts than that, and that just like kind of eats me up inside a little bit. It's like, oh my god, <laughs> it, it deserves better. Uh, so you're of the, you, so you you like the story enough, even if like. I mean, part of what I keep saying about this movie is that it, it, I get it. Like a lot of the, it hits the same beats as a lot of Martin Scorsese movies, but he's like good enough at doing this that I don't really care. So mm-hmm. it seems like you're kind of along the same lines as far as, hey, this story still does it for me. Yeah, I mean, it's not my favorite Scorsese, but it's obviously, uh, I did still like it a lot, and it's obviously like you know a genre and a cast uh, that he knows how to use really well. And I did think it was, it was really interesting to the fact that you knew it was going to be that long, it really gave enough time for the story to build, you know, like you were very invested or at least I was, Yeah, I was very invested by what was happening by the end. Yeah. Where'd you come down on the whole, uh, Anna Paquin not having a lot of lines thing? Because I, I, at first I was like very critical of it. And then other people tried to talk me onto the other end of that. And I, I, I'm kind of just of two minds on it at this point. It honestly didn't bother me that much. I think that had it been a, a less well-known actress, it right. would not even have been a controversy. Yeah. Um, and I don't I mean, blame her for not, I don't, I don't blame her for like still saying yes to the part. Like he wouldn't want to be in a Martin Scorsese movie, but I think you're right about that point. Yeah. I mean, and acting is not just the number of lines that you have, yeah. you know, like, and I, I understand people's frustration when movies 
frequently do not have huge parts for actresses, but in this case, I was not really that bothered by it. Yeah, and if you're coming into, a, and if you're coming into a Martin Scorsese movie expecting that, then like I got some, I got a bridge to sell you. You know, well, I mean, he's made movies with great female characters. This is just one that was about a more specific story that was about men. I don't know. I mean. Yeah. No, no, no. I got you. It's like, I mean, I, I guess my, my thing was more like, oh, well, if you're going to spend this much time on him being regretful about his family at the end, then like I would have just wanted a few more scenes with the family. But like, I, That's fair. again, it was my number 12 at the year. So like, and I didn't really care about the length. I would have watched four and a half hours of it as opposed to three and a half. <laughs> so that was where I kind of came down. But uh, yeah, it was one of those things where it's like, I, I totally understand if people were bothered by it, yeah. but like the experience of actually watching it myself like it didn't take me out of it or anything yeah if uh quickly before we move on did you have like if you're like oh if one of these actors is gonna win an oscar for this movie do you have a preference Mm, i think pesci probably same for me i'm totally there for anyone that like is team pacino on that but like it was really cool seeing him do something different well right especially since he hasn't been in a movie in like a decade and then came out of retirement and gave a great performance in this yeah it's wild like that he can just like he's literally from what i understand he just golfs every day and that's what he does with this life. <laughs> and it took a lot of convincing to get him to do this he's like fine i'll do it and then he does an awesome job it's pretty cool uh, what's your number eight uh, my number eight is ad astra would it be it's... fair to say that like one of your like favorite subgenres of movies is sad men in space i love sad men in space <laughs> i know i love i mean i guess we'll sort of talk about it later too but yeah i mean I love anything about space. I love astronaut movies. And this one was, I had been excited for it. I think we talked about it before it came out. I had been excited for it for a long time. Yeah, and a lot of people worried it wasn't really going to be good it. because it had been like such a long gestation period and it didn't end up being good. And I think it was kind of a divisive movie a little bit. I know some people thought it was boring or were like, why should I care about this one man being sad about his dad? <laughs> <laughs> but um, I really liked it. I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it was, uh, I mean, I don't know, James Gray just, like, I, I, I've, 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 I've now watched all of his movies, I think, and it's just kind of cool to see him level up like this and do something on such a big scale, and mm-hmm. I, I really like the way he tells stories about families, and he can do these things on smaller scales, and it's like, oh, cool, like, you have the ability to do something as arresting as, like, that moon pirate scene. And I last year we talked about the best scenes of the year, and just because of them moving the Oscars up this year, I didn't have time to do an awards podcast. And if I had done been able to do like a best scenes category, like it would have been hard to like choose to like not include like three from this movie. Like, like it's just really impressive that he like was able yeah. to create kind of some really large scale moments like that. Well, and I like that there are lots of, I mean, there are tons of actors in this movie, but nobody besides Brad Pitt is really in it for more than a scene or two. But I like that you sort of get glimpses of this world and can sort of imagine like, like Ruth Nega's character who. Yeah, you can watch a whole movie about her. Exactly. And I, I like just the sort of glimpse you get of like, oh, I wonder what her life is like that she was born on you know has only been to earth once and is watching all of this unfold and you know just like the people the other astronauts on the ship that he sort of like forces his way onto, and just like the glimpse you get of the how the moon is just like a boring airport now <laughs> like i just all of those little things i really like yeah i want to i and, the, the one movie that you could have out of the five that this movie could have been spun off into that i want is like just the economy of like a commercialized moon like that would be like really I, cool i love that stuff yeah i mean lots of people lots of people were laughing about like oh you know there's an applebee's on the moon but like just there would be an applebee's on the moon i mean come on 
this is the kind of science fiction that I really like is the kind that is not too far fetched from where we are right now, right. you know? Yeah. No, definitely. Uh, and, yeah. And I mean, pretty cool Brad Pitt performance too. I mean, like I, he's great. He has to like internalize a lot. And like I, over the last couple of years, I happen to watch like a lot of his other older stuff where he's like the exact opposite kind of person, like, you know, whether it be something like 12 monkeys or snatch or something like that. So when you have like those fresher in my mind than some of his other performances that I really love just as much, where he's just being like cool, Brad Pitt, like once upon a time, once upon a time in Hollywood or oceans 11, it's, it's nice to be reminded he can just like go into this mood. So yeah, that the scene where he uh, finally records the message to his dad, I think is really terrific. And I don't want to like, I don't want to get like too spoilery about it, but I will say that like, I thought that the way that, the way that the movie ended, like what he ended up finding or not finding at the end. Like I found that very moving. So I would agree. I I understand why some people weren't super into it, but yeah, I would agree. I won't spoil it any further and comment more on the end because I do think people should go see this. Uh, What is your number seven? My number seven is Ford versus Ferrari. All right. More more men doing things. Men doing dangerous things because it's the only way they can feel feelings. Um, (laughs) I would not have guessed that I was going to like this one as much as I did. I kind of put off seeing it. Uh, One, because I told my dad I would see it with him. And then we never got that timing worked out. And I was like, well, I got to see it now before it's out of theaters. And they got nominated Um, for the Oscar. But I had a great time. Yeah. Yeah, And I really liked it, which I don't really know anything about cars or care about cars or sports in general. (laughs) But something about... It, something about this was really fascinating to me, I think because like the idea of being in one of these races, like driving a car 200 miles an hour in the dark in the rain is like so foreign to me that it was like, I think I said this on Letterboxd, like it like might as well have been about astronauts right. also. And like I, it's just something I know nothing about and is just like beyond my comprehension. Yeah, I talked a lot of, about it, a decent amount of my podcast and that like I'm just not a NASCAR person. So, but like at least I know how that works. It's like it's only like they're only going like what 500 miles or I don't, I, I I'm not I'm so little of a NASCAR person. I don't know if Daytona 500 stands for laps or miles. I don't know, but like <laughs> I, I I I know it's not such a long race that like you. I mean, yeah, they might have to like relieve themselves in the in the in the car but like they don't leave the car you know like here it's like this is a 24-hour thing where the guys are like just taking like meal breaks i'm like what even is this race this 24-hour thing it was just like it was wild just seeing the mechanics of how all that worked and i really respected that yeah i mean like i knew that this race existed but i did not know anything about it or the logistics of it so uh, i don't know it was just really fascinating and i love the scene where christian bale explains to his kid the way the lap has to go and it goes into detail about like, you have to hit this perfectly and this is really hard. Mm-hmm. And then it gets to back to the beginning goes, and that's like three and a half minutes of 24 hours. And like, I just love seeing the process of stuff like that, that I know very little about. Did you appreciate it or even think about, cause I don't, I don't think I really thought about it that much during the movie, but then like I read about it, I was like, Oh, that is really cool. Where you know, this was like one of the leftover Fox properties that Disney had to distribute. Yeah. And I guess I add Astro was Ad too, Astro actually, too. but like here it was like, you know, largely about being creative within a larger enterprise. And there's this whole <laughs> ongoing discussion about whether or not Disney's just going to stifle all the creativity from all yeah. these things it keeps buying. I, I, I enjoyed thinking about it retroactively on that level. I don't know if that was something you even considered after you watched it, but that's yeah, another no, little funny about that. Yeah. Well, it is funny also. I mean, like, and reviews pointed this out, the idea that it, you, it makes you root for Ford as an underdog, which <laughs> is like insane in any other context. But right. in this case, you know, you're like, yeah, they did it. <laughs> it's great. 
Yeah. Also, uh, Tracy Letts being a stern dude. Uh, I love him. I mean, yeah. He could just do it all the time. But then he like, it's cool that like, you know, we're used to seeing him be the, be the older stern white man and things. But it, like, it, it's kind of funny just within this whole entire very testosterone field movie where all these guys are taking themselves very seriously. He kind of gets to be the comic relief for like five minutes. And that's pretty cool. Yeah. That scene is very funny when he gets in the car. Yeah. Uh, what's your number six? My number six is Uncut Gems, ah, okay. which is another seven. one that on paper does not seem like something I would like. Not a, you're not a big fan of basketball and gambling? I, <laughs> yeah, no. Uh, probably two of the things I care about the least. Um, <laughs> I don't know anything about basketball. I generally do not enjoy Adam Sandler. I thought that uh, the Safdie's previous movie, Good Time, was good, but it stressed me out so much that I was like, I don't know if I can if I will enjoy watching Uncut Gems at all. And then I had a great time. Yeah, I, 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 everyone, like, because this was one of those movies that it felt like at a certain point, not even just, like, people that live in L.A. New York got to see it, but just, like, pretty about every single critic had seen it because it showed everywhere before it even got released in L.A. and New York. So I felt like yeah. everyone I follow on Twitter had seen it, even if, like, none of my friends, even the ones that live in L.A. and New York had. So I just, I saw all these people talking about this, like, oh, my God, it's like cocaine for two hours. It is the most stressful thing ever. You thought Good Time was stressful? Just wait. Yeah. I, I honestly think Good Time is more stressful. And I think that, I agree. I don't know if it's just the score is a little more propulsive in Good Time, but, like, I, I think I was able to – and I saw – I think Uncut Gems was still stressful for me on the first watch, also because I brought my 83-year-old grandpa to it. <laughs> and like I was stressed because I was worried if he was lo- going to like it or not. He didn't like it. And so then I saw it again, and I was like, wow, this is actually just kind of fun. Yeah, I mean, it. yeah, it's fun. I know that's not how a lot of people are describing it, but I, it, you really get wrapped up in it. And I think all the performances are great. Sandler's great. It has... I'm not to spoil anything, but it has a moment that literally made me gasp out loud in the movie theater, which doesn't happen very often. Hmm. Um, it's just, yeah, I know it's a good time. <laughs> ah, yeah, it's pretty cool. Also, that it ended up being a hit. I think it's going to allow them to do another cool movie if they. Though this is something they've been working towards for like ten years. Um, like they, they, like, you know, they basically were trying to get it made before they even did their previous two movies and then it's just like this finally allowed them to make it on the scale they wanted to and i and i'm just glad, really glad they were able to it just i don't know it just felt like guys that were totally in control of what they wanted to do and they got to execute it exactly how they wanted to um and i'm very happy for them also another massive oscar snub and i feel like we're gonna have another, yeah we might have another one coming up on your list that we're gonna be equally upset about from the same distributor but uh i was just I don't know. I wanted I wanted it for Adam Sandler, but like it's also on him. He just signed another like six movie Netflix deal. So I mean, hard to feel that bad for him if he's gonna like leave that kind of taste in people's mouths. He can't really, I guess, expect I mean, people to just give him an Oscar. He's movie. doing fine, but yeah. yeah, he's doing fine money wise. But it's, it'd be really cool if he got recognized for like some when it, whenever he does decide to try. Uh, what's your exactly? Number, what's your number five? Well, speaking of Oscar snubs, my number five is Hustlers. Ah, yeah. What the? I mean, you know, we're recording this two days after the Super Bowl. We thought that would be like a kind of a coronation of J-Lo, and then it just <laughs> didn't happen, you know? Yeah, I mean, and we did a whole episode about Hustlers when it came yeah. out. So we don't – and people have been talking about it for – six months at this point but um well let, let, me, let me ask you then instead of asking you just any other details because we'll refer people back to our podcast but now that you've like kind of seen everything else that came out this year like i mean i think at the time we were like all right well jayla is going to get an oscar duh but like i mean it seems <laughs> I, like, I was very confident that she would <laughs> yeah so it's like besides that though i mean if you have it ranked number five on your list so i'm guessing you you, you would have been happy if it got a lot more than just that and it just got it just got snubbed you know it did i mean i don't think i was expecting it to get uh, much more than yeah. a nod for JLo, but I, I did think that she could get one. So it's very disappointing, but 
I mean, and it was, it's not like it was really that would have been like a left field nomination. Like she had gotten a couple others, other precursors and like, it was a widely acclaimed performance. So it was disappointing that. Yeah. They're, they're, they're just not the golden, they're just not the golden globes. They don't really care about just getting a big star there. Even if the big star gives like a very, very worthy performance. And, uh, I mean, I don't know. Like I, I, that, that was another one that was like still like right there in my, like, top 20 of the year also and i'm just mm-hmm. like i'm just like very sad that it it, it, it kind of i mean it, it was very successful commercially which is cool i hope uh lorraine scafaria gets to you know make something else really cool because i liked her previous movie also and hopefully that'll just allow her to but like it's just it would have been cool if it just got recognized a bit more but if anyone wants to hear hannah and i give more in-depth thoughts on that we'll refer you back to our podcast on it uh what's our what's your number four my number four is pain and glory ah you're the first which... one to mention this oh really yeah, yeah. so uh which is a movie where the a very deserving performance did get an Oscar nomination, although I wasn't totally sure that um, he would. But yeah, Antonio Banderas' uh, first ever an Oscar nomination, well, yeah, well, well deserved too. I like this movie also. He's terrific in it, and um, I mean, I liked the movie overall. But the thing that really pushed it high up my list is that it has my favorite ending of any movie this year. Oh really? Remind, remind me. What's the final? Oh, I don't want to tell you. You don't tell me the final <laughs> shot. I'm just. For, it's been a few months since I saw it, but I don't want to spoil it's, it. I will say that it, it. Maybe this will like jog your memory. Yeah. It Reframes. Uh, oh. Something you've yep, been yep, yep, seeing. Yep, 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 yep. I got yeah. You. Yep. Okay. Yeah. Just. I, I just. I. I saw it in the middle of October, so it's been a bit. Yeah, it's been a while. Uh, but no, yeah. I mean, it's a. I. I don't. I actually haven't seen. I think I've maybe only seen one more. Uh, Almodovar film and mm-hmm. it seems like this is maybe like his most personal from what I understand and it's kind of cool that it just like uh something that was so personal to him ended up being just like such a moving story as opposed to just being like hey here's a thing that happened to me it's like no this is actually like very very touching stuff and he told it very effectively yeah I've only seen a, a handful of Almodovar films and I have enjoyed all the ones I've seen but I think this might be the one that I've liked the most um yeah like I was saying Antonio Banderas is terrific. I, one of my favorite scenes of the year is that long section of the movie where he has that conversation with his ex-boyfriend who he yeah. hasn't seen in like 30 years yeah. and just them updating each other on their lives. And it's so like, it's sad, but it's really sweet. And like, it's just a terrific conversation um, that I thought was like riveting. Yeah. And obviously like pain is in the title, uh, but like, you know, it's kind of a movie about aging without like somehow without being in your face about it also even though he's like at the doctor for like an illness it's not like a typical old illness but like just as you get older you have to live with pain and i mean i still haven't really fully reconciled how i feel about the whole like heroin part of this movie i know it's a big part of it but i'm not i I, I never really totally understood what to make of it because i can't even like I, i don't think i've really ever seen like such a casual use of heroin like in yeah. a movie. it's not about addiction uh i mean like there's that i mean there's obviously a whole section of pulp fiction that's like kind of about that but like not really this is this is just a very different way of portraying drug use than i'd ever seen and i thought it was interesting i just i'm still not i'm still honestly not sure i ever really fully grasped how i felt about it but i was like this is different and this is something and i'm not not enjoying watching it yeah because you do think like it's it takes that turn and you sort of think like oh this is what the movie's about yeah. now and then it really isn't no it's uh, just like here's this uh, this guy's just going through stuff in life and he's just gonna have experiences yeah but it really i also really like in the beginning of the movie there's a little animated sequence where he like tells his life story and like details all of his health problems and stuff and it's like a very unusual way of sort of getting that exposition out of the way yeah and i like that 
So right. I don't know. It's just overall, I think, a lovely movie. No, I agree. It's also nominated for Best uh, International Film at the Oscars. So if you're, I mean, I'm, I'll hopefully get this posted in the next day. So you have a few days if you're looking for extra stuff to see before the Oscars come out and you want to, like, knock out a few of the foreign films. If I'm sure it's probably available online somewhere at this point. I uh, I definitely recommend seeing it. It's And especially if you really only know Antonio Banderas from, like, other sillier things he could do. And he, he worked a lot with Almodovar earlier in his career, but those were just, it was just stuff in Spain before anyone knew here knew who he was. So it'd just be really cool for – it was cool for me to see him do something like this. I mean, mm-hmm. I, he's, I, I like Philadelphia, the movie. I just hadn't seen it in a while, and that's really the only other serious thing I knew that he had done. And he's a pretty small part in that, too. Yeah, yeah. So this is just really cool to see him in a different mode. What's your number three? Number three is Little Women, which – Ah, we also already talked about like very recently yes so, so. Uh, and, and a lot of people saw it so like we don't really have to like kind of give people in a lot of people have seen different versions of it so we don't really have to talk too much about what it's about uh do you have any new thoughts since we talked about it like three weeks ago <laughs> i don't know if i have any new thoughts i'll yes. just say that i i think that uh when it was first announced i was kind of like oh like maybe i would rather that greta gerwig did something new like we've got a lot of versions of this but i think that uh it justify this adaptation justifies its existence that it is the screenplay is different enough and the performances sort of come at the characters a lot of them from an angle that the other versions didn't that um i'm glad that this new version exists yeah, I, I, I'll say the same. I, that's really the most important thing there is to say about this movie. If, if for some reason you haven't seen it and you're just like, oh, well, I mean, I've seen the 1994 one a lot or I've read the book. Do I really need this? I mean, yes, I think it's just impressive that someone put like that specific of a, um, a stamp on, on it and made it th- made it their own like Greta did. And it's just really cool because, I mean, it's not it's really not an easy book to adapt. And she did it in like a way where she had a very clear it's very clear. She had a clear vision and it's she was able to do what she wanted to do and in a way like even change it in ways that are pretty big, but still felt true to what Lisa May Alcott wanted to convey when she wrote the story. Um, what's your number two? Number two is parasite, ah, which okay. I would not have thought when I was reading about parasite back when it premiered at Cannes that talking about it would almost get boring because so many people would have seen it and, said it was the best movie of the year in like a mainstream way but like i'm very happy that that happened i was excited to talk to you about parasite hannah because like i knew you liked it but i didn't really i just hadn't talked to you about it but i i uh and it's my number one i i was kind of like more nutso than i normally am about not learning about stuff so it seems like you might have had a different experience you did read a decent amount of the coverage out of can so you kind of knew what the movie was about going in and you still really liked it i i didn't read a ton about it plot wise oh, okay. just that the reaction. i was seeing yeah. that it had yeah i mean because so much of the writing about it early on was like, do not find out anything about this movie before you see it. And it's um, probably overstated, but I, like, I still took it to heart. Yeah. I was going to say it's understandable, but once you actually see the movie, you're like, okay. I mean, there's not, you definitely never know where it's going and it's more enjoyable to have that feeling, but I would, there's not like a giant twist that is totally altered if you've read about it, I guess. No, for sure. But, um, yeah, no, just in general, it's a great movie. And I had, you know, been hearing about it because it premiered at festivals and being like, oh man, like, I'm really excited to see that. I hope I'm able to see it. And then it got this like incredible release. Like it's still playing 
at like the AMC near me. Yeah, it's it, unbelievable. Yeah, well, it, it never got to my AMC even because it, even though my AMC had been advertising it, and I've this is like the third time I've complained about it on this podcast. But you know, <laughs> it, it went from it went from twenty to twelve screens, so they never actually got it until after Oscar nominations came out. But now it's back in, but it really never totally left when the Oscar nominations came out, and then got the next yeah. one. I did want to ask you though, because you got to be a a, a cool uh, coastal elite person and see it in New York when it was there. What was that experience like? Because I'm sure it was probably a packed it's true. house. Yeah. I just happened to be in New York for a wedding the weekend that it opened yeah. and it sold out almost entirely. I saw it at like 10:30 AM. And that was, I think the only screening at the IFC center that wasn't sold out that weekend. So people were like really excited for it. So you said you went at 10:30 AM. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean like that was because when I, I was in New York, when I saw Little Women and it was like the same thing, it was, you know, I, I wanted to go to the Alamo Draft House there. And, you know, people just really like movies in New York. I mean, I we like to complain about like them getting it first, but like it is kind of like on a different level there with like how serious people are about getting there. Because the only showings I could get from Little Women and 35 millimeter at this place were like at 830 a.m. or 1030 p.m. for like the first mm-hmm. five days it was in theaters. And I was like, Jesus, this is ridiculous. But I mean, I don't know. It's just kind of cool, like seeing something like that with a crowd that's that excited, I guess I, I, I had that experience with Foxcatcher back in 2014 I saw it like when it was in like one of two theaters in New York or something and it's it's cool seeing it like with the, when there's that level of anticipation for like an award season movie yeah it's, it definitely adds to the experience if everybody around you is as excited to see it as you are um yeah I mean I'm sure you've talked about it a ton doing these episodes but you know it's just a really terrific movie and I'm glad that I'm disappointed that it didn't get any acting nominations but I'm happy that the Oscars recognized it as much as they did. Yeah, just again, I, I think I've probably already said this, but it's it's just odd that it got the SAG Award for Best Ensemble, but no individual accolades for any of them. And like either either at the SAG Awards or at the Oscars, you know, everyone was hoping Song Kang Ho would make it happen. Like uh, Marina De Taverna did last year in Roma, just be like a surprise supporting actor. We like this movie yeah. a lot because they obviously like it. They got like six nominations, um, but you know that's it's too bad hopefully hopefully it'll get recognized somewhere on the big night while 1917 might look inevitable for best picture at this point you know maybe we'll get a shocker um and i i hope it wins production design if nothing else yeah i actually have i have that there's an article going around today about just the making of that house the house i haven't i haven't read it it's yet incredible. I have a book and i'm i mean even more incredible than the house is that the street that the uh that the that their family's like crummy apartment is on that's a set yeah, too that's and like all built I, I, too. yeah that is like yeah. that's even like more crazy than a, the house to me i mean like i get how you would like make interiors and stuff but like to make that convincingly seem like an outdoor area that got flooded when it's just a set is that is wild so yeah that that would be a very cool thing to happen actually i don't remember what all it's up against in that category but like hopefully like they recognize just how crazy that was what's your number one my number one is The Farewell, and that's which no- is yet another movie that we have done a whole episode about. Right. It was my number two. As I kind of alluded to earlier, I figured it would show up later on your list, and it's really, really upsetting that you know it didn't get any Oscar nominations. The only Oscar nomination for A24 was for uh, Cinematography for the Lighthouse. Just like a rough year for their awards team. Uh, bad job by them. The Farewell deserved better. Yeah, we, we talked about it at length. It obviously kind of held up against all the award season stuff for you. This is a summer movie, and it kind of stayed at the top of your list. Well, yeah, I rewatched it on the plane when I was coming back from L.A. the other day. And even just like watching it on a plane on my phone, I was like, I still think it's great. Like, it's funny and it's very moving. And like all of the performances are terrific. Like, I just, you know, it says something when a movie is about terminal illness and you find it very rewatchable. It is, though. Yeah, it's just. Yeah. I mean, and um, 
I really was hoping that it would get at least a screenplay nomination or a, I thought maybe you could get a surprise supporting actress nomination for Zhao Shuzhen, but you know, what are you going to do? Yeah. I mean, Oscar's going to Oscar. Yeah. I mean, that was, it was, it was just very disappointing. Like between that and, uh, that, I mean, Oh, I was happy. Like knives out got its one nomination, but it was like, Mm -hmm. you know, it was like, you could put it in the farewell uncut gems and like knives out and just like sub them in for like three of the, like whatever three other best picture nominees I don't like as much Then like, I would have been like, yeah, I like all of those movies. That would have been like, yeah, that would have just been like perfect, you know? Um, but what, what, what can you do? I mean, like you gotta like, I mean, I've got to, I'm learning to like set my expectations like very low for this stuff. Um, uh, before before we head out, Hannah, I'm just going to read off my top ten in order because I haven't I haven't actually done that yet. I've just like said them when okay. they popped up with other people. So if any listener still cares, I'll just like let them know that they can look at mine at the end or look at my letterbox. But my number ten was Marriage Story. My number nine was Booksmart, a movie you pretended to kind of like when you did a podcast with us. I don't like it very much. <laughs> no. <laughs> and uh, my eight was Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. My seven was Uncut Gems. My six was Toy Story Four. My five was Little Women. My four was John Wick, Chapter 3, Parabellum. My number three was Knives Out. My number two was Farewell. And my number one was Parasite. So when I uh, post this episode, I will do my thing where I assign the point values, like, you know, 10 points to number one, nine points to number two, and so forth. It's very scientific. Uh, basically, may as well be the preferential ballot. And I will uh, put that in. I'll rank. If anyone's just curious where we all fell as a group, I'm going to put that ranking in, in the podcast description along with timestamps for everyone's segment. So if you want to go listen to your friend that was in this thing and you don't really care about someone else, then you can jump around. You press play. That's all I ask. Hannah, thank you so much for joining me um, and being a consistent guest in 2019. I look forward to talking to some interesting 2020s with movies with you and uh, happy Oscar watching. Thanks. You too.